Anything we need to get off the table before we get into it? Nah. <laughs> nah. I just got to put something on the table. Yeah. <laughs> oh, are you talking about the literal table? I thought we were. I thought there was like a moral oh. dilemma in the fabric of the group. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. I'm bringing issues to the table. That's our main, you know, goal here. What about? Wait, all right. Okay. I- Oh, you you go, you go. No, no, you first, you first. All right, this is just bullshit, though. So maybe maybe yours was real, but uh, I was just saying. Uh, maybe, <laughs> possibly, it could be true. Um, no, I was just gonna say, hey, Trump getting those two K checks for us—that's pretty sick, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what's Man. up. I mean, it would be cool to get two thousand dollars. I can't lie to you, but um. I, f- I have a feeling that will be dated by the time this comes out in <laughs> 10 days. Mine is, mine is slightly less bullshit, but it's just, um, okay, so I did a little, look, like, Michael Camino. Chimino. Chimino. He has a weird, like, the face, the race he is, oh. you can't tell. I know he's Italian, but, like, have you seen pictures of him in, like, sunglasses? Well, because he had a surgery that altered the look of his face, like, r- radically late in life. I, I, I've seen him in sunglasses in the 70s, and he just looks like an Italian guy with sunglasses. Okay, I didn't know about the surgery. He, oh, yeah, yeah, no. Late life pictures of Michael Cimino are not too pretty, but he was able to rock it as a, like, he, he knew, like, I'm just gonna throw on the big sunglasses throw the peace sign up i'm gonna look like a god and it he just did. looks mysterious it, it is mysterious. <laughs> he's a mysterious man and he's the subject of season two of bank check here on extended clip uh the after hours feed our sub podcast about altruism bank check has been you know uh the fans have been clamoring upon uh, the the return of bank check and we're we're finally doing it but unfortunately this first chapter will be in the uh know you first uh version of podcasting as Malcolm <laughs> is up in Watsonville yeah uh, Malcolm how you doing up there I'm doing great you know it's it's funny you know whenever we release a, a bank check it feels like a stimulus check gets released afterwards so let's uh <laughs> let's keep our hopes up was that true did we record bank check? I feel like we recorded bank check season one right after the first stimulus check. Yeah. And the only stimulus check we'll ever get. $600. Well, it'll get lost in the mail. True. I just want, I just wanted to keep it like, keep, you know, cause this is a, this is our sub podcast about checks. So I just wanted to, you know, keep it on, on topic. That's very true. And uh, joining us, you know, we didn't, have any guests last time to share our love of the Fairley brothers and we figured this time we should bring someone on uh to spread our love of auteurism and great cinema so uh calling in or really joining the discord call uh from I believe London, Ontario, Canada is a returning guest and host of the Sleezoids podcast it's Josh Lewis Hey, how's it going? I've never listened to the podcast you guys are making fun of for this. Is that a, is that okay? <laughs> yeah, I I haven't either. Okay, good. I've I've listened to no, like. It's not that we're making. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say I listened to like five seconds and I was like, all right, I get it. No, I mean we're not making fun of them. This is this is an entirely different show, you know. Oh yeah, no, for sure. No, <laughs> we just happen to both be auteurists or whatever. I, I don't even know if they would con- know what that word means, but you know, that's a little. It might be being set aside. Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 no, well ahead, I'm, I'm glad to be here, uh, second time caller. Nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so as we said, 
Michael Cimino is the subject of this season of Bank Check. And, you know, if you didn't listen to season one of Bank Check and you don't know what this show is all about, uh, there are certain directors in history where, you know, maybe there was a script involved, maybe there was just a pitch right to an executive, <laughs> but there was a check written. And they went to the bank and um, that's how they got paid for making the movie. Yeah, a lot of not film people don't know this, but it takes some money to make a movie. And these are their stories. <laughs> well, so, uh, Michael... Ch- <laughs> oh, go ahead, Malcolm. Well, I was just going to say that a, a history of great movies is a history of great men. And uh, <laughs> I feel like maybe Michael Shamino uh, might be one of these great men. Thank you, Malcolm. We tease here, but uh, as, as we are like basically just an auteurist podcast, like oh, so many of our picks are just like, oh, we'll do it because of this director and this director, you know, or we'll do a series based on these directors. Uh, it is, you know, important to acknowledge what we're talking about. These are these are uh, directors who uh, are able to basically tell a story of their life through their films. They're artists who make personal works in a very commercial uh, institution known as Hollywood. Hmm. I can't hear anything. Uh, are you guys all good? I can't hear Eddie at all. No, I couldn't hear him for a while. Yeah, I was being anything. quiet because I assumed that he was talking, but uh, I can't. Yeah. I can't hear anything Eddie's saying. M- me too. I thought it was maybe my connection. <laughs> so <laughs> no, we're good. at least yeah, we're in Michael the same Chimino, boat. You know, you think he's some crazy, you know, outcast. Whoa, he made these three-hour movies. Well, he's as commercial as it gets. He started uh, by making or shooting commercials. He was a madman. You know, in the 60s, he, he was down there, Madison Avenue. He had an MFA in painting from Yale. And he was like, I'm going to be on my Don Draper shit, you know, shoot some ads. Uh, he had a great visual style from the very beginning. And you could see it just from like the first frame of his first movie, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, uh, that beautiful landscape. Uh, that he has such a keen eye for landscapes and for, you know, uh, I'm looking at my DVD of Wagon Master right now and him and Ford are both definitely, you know, masters of the use of the horizon line in their landscapes, which are, you know, so influenced by painting, but also so influenced by the motion that's inherent in cinema. Uh, Clearly, just two films in, I'm already a big fan of Michael Cimino, uh, comparing him to the greatest director ever. So, uh, yeah, how'd you guys like these movies? I dug both of them. I mean, I had the Deer Hunter was the only one I had seen before, um, and I was I liked it when I saw it as a youth, but not nearly as much as I did now. And I was curious, like, um, I don't know. It, it's always interesting when we're like tackling these artists, like from the very beginning. It's like hard to like flesh out sort of a through line but with this um i don't know he seems to chimino likes to hang with the fellas oh, there's yeah. a lot of male camaraderie <laughs> in these and i think with thunderbolt and lightfoot into the deer hunter there's like a very direct link with sort of the uh vietnam war and processing that um that i think is really uh interesting to see absolutely what about you malcolm Malcolm, did we lose Malcolm or did we lose the call? Oh, I think we lost the call. Oh, no. We're keeping it solid. Yeah, no, we're, we're good. We oh. could just run the show. Uh, Michael Chino. Yeah. 
Yeah, John. You know what? You know it is. Sometimes you know people from other podcasts so they break off and start other ones. That's, that's right. That's dude. the whole fun of the. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Let's go right now. <laughs> um. So. No, dang! It still shows Eddie talking. Maybe. All right. He he disconnected. Oh, that's that new internet that he was bragging about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I'm a big fan of it. Yeah, it's r- real uh, brand new stuff. I could smell the new car smell. <laughs> no, every time we're playing Warzone, his internet would always go to shit because his mom would start watching her programs and we would always laugh at him. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. would be like, oh, guys, my mom's home. Like, um. I'm gonna disconnect from the game. <laughs> <laughs> That's the real reason uh, Eddie hates uh, streaming. It's not because of any, uh, you know, I don't know, downloading torrenting stuff. It's just like it's interrupting with that war zone. I don't blame him. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I hope he skims over this audio. Here's all of this. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be careful. I forgot that he's the one who does that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you better. Yeah, don't don't say anything you wouldn't want him to hear on here. No, he'll, he'll know, include it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he'll. That's true. <laughs> yeah, all of this is getting used. This is a uh, Eddie, oh. JT. Oh. oh, oh, hey, 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 hey! We got disconnected there. Sorry. That's all good. Malcolm and I just kept uh, just kept running the show without you. <laughs> yeah, we're actually starting a new podcast. <laughs> How long were we disconnected? <laughs> like, <laughs> three to four minutes. Yeah, like like I feel. straight up, whatever you started saying your big speech, um, Malcolm and I couldn't hear you at all. You just immediately cut out. Dude, me and JT both gave big speeches. And we're just like <laughs> thinking that you were silent. I'm going to have to do some insane editing to see what I can do about that. Yeah, maybe maybe you Not could give us the, uh, the gist and one of us can jump in as if we heard everything that you said. <laughs> no, I think we got to be honest here. Yeah, that's true. We, we got we to gotta be honest here. I, I am... I am on record here saying that, like, if the last three or four minutes of the podcast makes absolutely no sense, uh, I'm I'm at fault because I had my phone locked, so I didn't see that we got disconnected, <laughs> and uh, and we'll we'll give a summary of it anyway. I I talked about how great Michael Cimino's movies were, and so did JT. <laughs> yeah, uh, <hell> yeah. <laughs> uh, so did you guys, you guys heard what I said about him starting in uh, advertising, right? No. No. <laughs> oh, okay. well. Like, I, like so, Josh said, me and, me and him started our own podcast. We, we got a good five minutes start yeah, you can, to you our can, own you podcast. You can skim through the audio. We started our own show in those brief, like, five minutes. <laughs> okay. Okay, great. So uh, do I need to be informed of what you guys did on there? Or should I just listen to that and put it in there? No, that's for you. You can listen back on that's that. a little treat. Okay, cool. Okay, so we'll just sum you guys up what we were talking about then. Yeah, bring us in. Uh, bring us okay, up off the great. bench. God, we're, we're doing experimental podcasting. This is the Godardian influence here. Uh, we're we're creating a dialect. You got You got to cross cut the two different conversations. <laughs> oh boy, did you just call me D.W. Griffith? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, anyway, so 
I I was I gave a brief primer on Chimina's background as uh, and I didn't mention this he studied graphic design I believe first or visual design rather before going to Yale to get both a BFA and an MFA in painting and then he went Mad Men mode and uh, went to Madison Avenue to shoot commercials uh, before moving to Hollywood in I believe seventy one. Uh, to pursue screenwriting and Hollywood, mm-hmm. and, Damn. and, and that, that was where he did. A, he did a rewrite on um, what was it? Mag- did Magnum Force. He did a rewrite on. I think. Yeah. And what 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 other screenplays did he get to write before he got to direct? I should have looked this up. He, he yeah, I should have had it pulled up because I only noted that one because of the Malpaso connection. Because Thunderbolt and Lightfoot is a Malpaso production, mm. which if you don't know, which would be shocking as an extended clip listener, is Clint Eastwood's production company. Right, um, right. Oh, no, sorry. So but, he, he also wrote Douglas Trumbull's uh, Silent Running. Just that I was impressed with these first two flicks from Chimino. I think that, like, oftentimes when you're, like, uh, tackling a director, like, from the beginning, or even if you're going, like, out of sorts uh, with their films, it's kind of, like, difficult to, like, sort of, like feel them out, see what they're all about. Yeah. Um. But these two are clearly just about about the boys, and I like the direct sort of link, um, between Thunderbolt and Lightfoot in sort of like, um, loosely being about like the Vietnam War and sort of the relationship of like older men, um, who have fought in the Korean War, sort of like I don't know Jeff Bridges ultimately dying and that sort of thread to a more direct, um story about the vietnam war Mm -hmm. i wanted to get just right into thunderbolt and lightfoot let's let's dive into this great film thunderbolt and lightfoot it's it's not just this you know genre mashup of like buddy movie uh road movie crime movie comedy uh and the road movie i guess was a big part of its funding as easy rider and like the kind of you know uh hippie road movie even though this one's much less hippie uh was very marketable at the time Mm -hmm. uh and also it has western touches of course just as easy rider did but it's it's about being gay with clint eastwood and jeff bridges you know (laughs) (laughs) just two men in a vehicle and uh, the, their passion for living out on the lamb. It's a beautiful film. Uh, the deconstruction of masculine roles in this is one of the many jumping off points uh, for Chimino's like, deep pockets of subtext and uh, history and thoughts on America and just like raw genre chops as well. Uh, and as I said, yeah, it, from the very beginning, it's so clear that he's like a studied enthusiast of painting. These wide landscape shots you know often work as a bridge between the more intimate scenes but the landscapes are what you remember because he's such uh you know an incredible landscape painter with the camera uh and putting those ca- uh those paintings into motion of course because he's a filmmaker and not a painter mm-hmm. i think i think with shimino his style what kind of stood out to me from both these movies is that like how uh geographically informed all of his shots are it's he's always wanting to kind of give you the the um, he's always framing shots in a way that meshes well with the setting whether it's like the bar in a deer hunter kind of like the close intimate kind of playing with like blocking or whatever or something more you know distant to show like the wide scope like in his landscape shots like he's someone who 
not only wants to show you the entire length of the road, but kind of like the the bend of it too. And I'm I, I'm really impressed mm-hmm. by that. Mm-hmm. And also just like for the roots of this show, you know, like all that we're talking about with his influence of painting. But that mixed with these being like tried and true genre movies kind of immediately dissolve the high and low dichotomy of the art forms. And uh, he just hits such a sweet spot in the middle that I still wouldn't call middle brow because like it's still, you know, it's he has some pretty gnarly genre elements alongside uh, these masterful painterly compositions, especially in the deer hunter uh, once he enlists. Um, what's his name? Yeah, once he enlists uh, Vilmos Zygmunt. Josh, what did you what did you think about Thunderbolt and Lightfoot? I had a blast with Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, and and for a lot of reasons you're already talking about, like the the beautiful like Montana vistas. I mean, he opens on that on the shot of like that church where Eastwood is giving like a sermon. He's laying. It's a weird image just watching Eastwood uh, deliver a sermon in in the first place. But that long shot he does to open yeah. that film, where you get this long shot of the car pulling its way in across the wheat fields and we kind of like move above the wheat fields to see the church and then obviously there's like the big chase that goes through that same wheat field and everything but the way that he uses the location and the way that he uses his camera there are really really amazing and you see that across a lot of his stuff where that even when he's working you know within familiar sort of genre elements i feel like he always finds a unique way to kind of like draw a scene out or feel it out like thunderbolt and lightfoot specifically even though it's kind of like a road hangout movie that's in that vein of as you mentioned easy rider but also like two lane blacktop where the road is sort of like a little bit of an idea Mm. of sort of like a freedom um or or badlands i loved that uh nate fisher called it gay badlands was what he called the movie Yeah, no, I was going to say, Josh, like the the Hellman or the Tulane comparison is very apt there because of all the new Hollywood big shots that I could compare him to, uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot just reminded me of Monty Hellman more than anybody yeah. else. Definitely, definitely. And I and I, I also just think the way that he finds like lyrical moments in there. And I, I feel like that's what ends up kind of sticking sticking out to you is, you know, there's a lot of time in this where like, you know, there's moments where you would think this is kind of a heist movie. And there's times where you think this should be another filmmaker would do this as like a tough procedural. And so much of this movie mm-hmm. is Eastwood and Jeff Bridges just like drinking beer or stealing a car or eating pistachio <laughs> ice cream. There's there's entire <laughs> gestures sent out where like Jeff Bridges, he's got a gun pointed to the back of his head and you could just see that look in his face where he's like, I want one more lick of this ice cream before I get shot in the back of the head. And it's just a moment that you wouldn't, you know, someone who's not really there in the moment with those characters and with the images wouldn't think to, you know, leave that in. Um, so it, it really makes Chimino uh, stand out. And I feel like it actually makes the the character and the performances like like hit harder. I understand why these two movies in particular, like, you know, got the acclaim that they did and so many people latched onto them. The way Chimino will direct a scene will kind of let things, you know, um, go a little bit longer than usual or like kind of try to find side characters to kind of create like this cutting rhythm within to kind of create new tensions within a scene. I mean, I think it really enhances the acting and the performances. And I think amongst, you know, it looking good, I think Thunderbolt or yeah, Thunderbolt and Lightful is a great star power movie that just uses Clint Eastwood's kind of charisma and Jeff Bridges, you know, very new charisma 
in this movie and kind of just uh, lets them, you know, slightly butt heads, but mostly get along. I really like how Jeff Bridges is kind of like this fresh faced, like optimistic, let's do it, where Clint's kind of like that weary of the world, cool guy type cynical. And, yeah. and, it's, and it's kind of, I mean, I think it's kind of one of those rare movies where Jeff Bridges outswags Eastwood, at least in my opinion, just in terms of just yeah. like being like a, a smart ass and all that stuff. I, I mean, I really liked his performance here. Oh, I, I laughed my ass off at that bit where Jeff Bridges is just screaming at the girl on the bike that he loves her while he's trying to like run <laughs> yeah. her over with like the work truck. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That is insane. I mean, I guess he's really into uh, just like people passing each other in lo- in large trucks on the highway as we saw that in both movies uh, uh, for this week. But yeah, the, the lady on the motorcycle just taking out a hammer and starting to <laughs> bash the truck that he's driving yeah there's so many amazing the, little like, like sub characters like that bits. like you're talking about like that bit yeah. too where he they get they hitchhike with a dude who's getting high on his own exhaust fumes <laughs> and he's got a raccoon sitting in the passenger seat and in the trunk of his car he just has like 100 white rabbits that he just starts like shotgunning in the middle of the street <laughs> And his car is half lifted, so it looks like a giant dune buggy, too. It's just like lifted in the back, kind of, and pointed down. It's so weird. Every every character they encounter is so strange. The first scene of Jeff Bridges stealing uh, the first car, that Trans Am that they take, the white one, is so funny. He's just like playing with that guy's sympathies. He's like, yeah, I was a Korean War vet. I have a wooden leg. you know. <laughs> uh, just, just very funny. And I, I think that what you said about him outswagging Eastwood is very funny, Malcolm, because through both of these movies, it's like, He's very studied about masculinity. And another anecdote that I found kind of funny at first, but also kind of informative is that he was in the weightlifting club in college as well, <laughs> as well as being an art student. Uh, I don't think he continued his weightlifting career at Yale, but in his undergrad studies, he was a weightlifter as well. Uh, but I think that's like the the Linklater type dynamic of the jock and the artist, the, the inherent clash there in uh, their persona and like the masculinity and also the detached criticism of that masculinity that of that masculinity that they've seen in the world and recognized from that more outsider perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, and Bridges carved a really cool space for himself in the early seventies when he first got started in like being like that kind of like um, uh, existential teenager a bit with like a sense of humor. But I think like I think of him a lot in like Last Picture Show and. Um, um, I, we did on the podcast, we talked about Bad Company, which was like sort of like this really sad Western that he was in. And, but then also I thought a lot in this one in particular of Fat City, the boxing one that he did with Stacey Keach, where he's like this poor boxer and mm-hmm. Stacey Keach is kind of like the 50 year old version of him. And he sees himself in the young Jeff Bridges and he tries, you would think that that's like a sports movie where like, you know, uh, Stacy Keach would train this kid and he would live vicariously through this kid's success. And that whole movie is just uh, Jeff Bridges just fucking it all up um, and failing just as hard as as him and them kind of bonding over that experience. And I was reminded a little bit of of that with obviously with the with where this film Thunderfold and Lightfoot ends. But also, um, this is just a lot more kind of fun. I guess. And I think that that's a really important element Mm -hmm. is that like you spend so much time just having fun with Eastwood and with Jeff Bridges before it takes, you know, sort of like the, the, the turns that it, that it does. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of that humor comes from like just small details 
and things like that. I think one of my favorite things about this movie that would just have me cracking up at certain moments is when uh, Eastwood and Bridges rob that couple that have a bunch of uh, shirts in the back. And so they always like, they keep like these really fresh, freshly like pressed um, button down <laughs> shirts on throughout the movie. I don't know why I think that's so funny that they're just, they're just wearing shirts that look brand new the entire movie. But <laughs> yeah, I fucking love that. Well, it's also funny because it's part of that chameleon like aspect of them. You know, they, uh, they steal what four, maybe just three different cars during the movie. They're always driving different stuff, wearing different stuff. And it's like, guys like them are outcasts that don't really fit in. So they just kind of take these outsider roles and disguises and Jeff Bridges literally, you know, going into drag for the climax, of course. And, and then we find out he didn't even need to go into drag, but it's like, Hey, you know, he, he got off on it a little when he looked in the mirror. I mean, he's a pretty lady. He's not wrong for checking himself out a little bit. Also, it's so funny. The thing that he, I mean, we're skipping way ahead and we'll, we'll work our way through, but uh, the thing that he whacks those guys with when he's in drag uh there are two shots where he's like bending over and it looks like he's like tucking a ginormous dick but it's the thing that he whacks the guys with uh, but it's it's a very i don't know there is a lot of like very funny raunchy humor in this kind of like uh very surface level kind of humor and also kind of deeper subtext but also just like more subtle humor as well throughout oh man the joke like where i mean to speak to like raunchy humor where it's like the woman that uh eastwood has slept with and she's like well i and uh Eastwood refuses to drive her home and she's like, well, I'll just go out and like uh, scream rape. And then when she does that, just the little one liner you get oh, uh, from the couple where he's like, do you think it's really safe to stay here? It's like, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, uh, the husband very excitedly says, well, why not? <laughs> yeah. Very strange joke there. <laughs> For some reason, I get it. I get it completely, but... <laughs> Yeah, the, when when when, when, right, so, when Jeff Bridges turns up in drag in in this, it's like when the fellows are sharing their gender swap face app selfies in the DMs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like the you know you're like uh, I don't, you know I don't think I'd get you know something like that, but you know late at night and like you're a fat security guard, you know someone knocking on the door, it's just like yeah, I mean, what else are you gonna do? I don't know. That didn't, that didn't come out exactly yeah, how I wanted to. Is gonna make me act up. <laughs> well, and and they also spend a large part of the movie being just chased around, like cartoonishly so, by George Kennedy and Jeffrey Lewis, who are sort of like old mm -hmm. uh, members of Eastwood's heist gang, who think that you know he betrayed them when their heist kind of went wrong. And they spend a, 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 there's a lot of comedy in just like watching them just burst through like kind of like a warm, tender moment between the two characters. And they're just trying to shotgun Jeff Bridges. And the best part is Jeff Bridges isn't even that mad about it. You would think that there would need to be like a whole plot line of Jeff Bridges being like, man, you're, you're bad news for me, man. But he's stoked about it. He's just like, this is so exciting. Like, I, I wish I could be like one of yeah. you guys. And Eastwood very early on, like kind of codes it to him a little bit and is goes, you know, you're honestly better off getting as far away from me as you can based on the people who yeah. i've you know in my 30 years of <laughs> uh doing heists yeah i mean when when eastwood first like tells him to get lost like 20 minutes in he, he just says you know i like you that's all i just want to be friends <laughs> yeah. it's like you know you just want to you just you know I, i'd want to hang out with eastwood too you that, know that moment is so earnest and beautiful yeah. because it's like he's trying to offer him his watch but like 
I don't know. Very rarely, I mean, even in movies for the boys about a hangout, I I don't hear a line that like direct like that. Yeah. So the the big chase that uh like or there is a big chase rather with the two guys that are following them uh that leads up to the midpoint where then they all kind of just band together and plan this heist that'll be in the third act but the chase that they have driving through the dirt where there's just so many like very quick shots of just a car passing and dust just completely covering the screen you know and then they eventually use the dust like that dust just blinds the two guys following them at one point uh but chimino shoots this uh chase scene so perfectly uh i i really love definitely adding it to the ghost ride the whip list uh asap the car play is amazing in this movie i mean there's so many different like car tricks chimino pulls off he does like with the guy high off like uh exhaust fumes he's like dipping in and out of like hills on the highway and then yeah eastwood just like clamping on to Bridges' car at the beginning it's just this is <laughs> this is a tried and true car classic i would say yeah uh, they, they then get jobs in the town where they're going to have this little heist, the four of them, uh, still mainly focusing on the titular duo of uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. But one of the other guys gets a job uh, like driving this ice cream cart, which is also a very cool little car. I love I, I, I love the kid who's an asshole about about the time. And they're just like, you guys aren't doing <laughs> yes. your fucking jobs right. You're supposed to come down the other street. <laughs> That scene is so funny because also that first shot, though, uh, the first frame of it looks like it's like a Edward Hopper painting or something like that. Like all those suburban houses in a row that looks nothing like the rest of this movie. Like no, the, there's nothing in the movie that really looks like that because, you know, he had to take a job where he takes a route into a neighborhood or whatever. <laughs> uh, but just remembering that we are in the 70s. This isn't like a outlaw movie i mean it is an outlaw movie but we're in the modern ish age in the 70s where there's suburbs and bratty kids and stuff like that (laughs) i mean i feel like that point is emphasized even further with uh the schoolhouse that clint eastwood uh hides his money in you know back in a a previous job and when they go back to see it in the middle of the movie now it's a full-on you know elementary school it's uh you know progress of america we've been changing yeah yeah that's what jeff bridges asks him he's like what what happened and eastwood just gets kind of like this throwaway progress i guess (laughs) (laughs) oh what's that old saying the the slow march toward death called progress (laughs) kids kids do be learning though that's for sure it's true the other job one of the other jobs though is uh, the department store uh and there's a really great shot of the dude walking up like from the it looks like it's a split diopter until it's revealed that it's a mirror shot when he walks out of the frame when he's going to grab the uh the pantyhose that they're going to use as masks and i found this in both of these movies chimino is such an expert of using mirrors uh to play people's reflections off of and also just like pure trickery just like revealing that it's a mirror shot with a slight camera movement or something like that mm-hmm. uh there, there was a shot in the deer hunter that's ridiculous like that uh but i i found those shots to be really effective uh he also does a lot of split diopters in one scene in the deer hunter too uh but as we said the school uh is just a normal ass school and then uh eventually after 
their whole heist they do get back to the the real school and find the money there uh but the heist itself is really i i didn't expect it because this film has such a leisurely pace uh but the intercutting is so precise and it builds momentum so well uh where all the you know everyone's doing their jobs as necessary uh it's a very very slick little procedural thing there mm-hmm. but but again with some strange details like again like bridges uh showing up in drag but an even weirder detail i found was them using the giant like anti-tank cannon inside <laughs> yes. the bank uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, dude. Using, uh, like, it, it even, uh, what's it called? It, it's, like, military property, too. Yeah. Like it's on the box that they stole or whatever. So, just, like, using military property to rob a bank safe is just amazing. Yeah, and, and, and somehow they drive it into his car by using, like, Gary Busey's, like... <laughs> like work van or something like that that he did that (laughs) and and they just don't build trunks like that anymore dude but when i was watching just uh george kennedy who's obviously playing kind of like the the more sort of uh like homicidal weirdo that eastwood used to Mm -hmm. uh, get up but but you get the impression too that he's also just weary that he he wants out in a way and that eastwood kind of stole he feels stole that from him but he he rather than taking a warming to Jeff Bridges, is very um, very annoyed about Jeff Bridges, actually, and someone who could be so young and full of <laughs> optimism and cracking jokes while they're loading the giant fucking cannon into the back of his car. Yeah, those trunks are great. I remember in my grandma's car, I used to do them, and she would like, pick me up from elementary school way back in the day. She had one of those trunks where it's like the middle seat in the back seat. You could pull that down. You know, a lot of cars have that. It's like a cup holder there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. old cars. That was oh, the, the little secret compartment. Yeah, to the, the back. crawl space into the trunk. Yeah, that's how you. That's how you put a turret in your car, man. <laughs> <laughs> or, or a cannon. You know. <laughs> uh, but just you know, throwing on the headphones, mounting the cannon, and doing your job. That's what it's all about. You know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, just the imagery of the cop tied up in the bathroom stall when the rest of the police force arrives played very comically. Uh, Yeah, I feel like this one in comparison to like, I wouldn't say it's like cracking me up the whole time or anything like that. But having just watched Deer Hunter uh, an hour ago, it's like, oh, this is the funniest movie of all time. (laughs) I I, I honestly feel like, I don't know, like for me, I I was laughing the whole time. I feel like kind of like it's a loose structure and stuff like that it really does find a way to put a focus on the comedy in this movie where whether it's subtle or or you know obvious like raunchy jokes i mean it's just small details you know i don't know why things make me laugh anymore but like like when uh, they reveal the safe or whatever after like a blowing back you know some walls or whatever and like George Kennedy just sneezes at the end of the shot. I don't know why, but shit like that's just hilarious to me. I don't. But well, yeah. even that hilarious confrontation, like fight that they have, that. right, where uh, George yeah. Kennedy yeah. and Jeffrey Lewis like go after him, and George Kennedy in the middle of the fight just starts having like an <laughs> asthma attack, and, he, and Eastwood kind of feels bad that he's beating an like an asthmatic man in a fight, so he just gives the guns back to him. <laughs> <laughs> I was so confused by that, and then I was laughing, and I was like, yeah, that's probably the right response. I'm just supposed to laugh at that. Yeah, I mean, I, no. I think the implication, um, there's just a lot more history between the two, and, you know, he doesn't really actually want to kill him. But George Kennedy, he is acting pretty, like, psychotic at a certain point, which has really bad, um, you know, results for Jeff Bridges' character as we get into the finale here. Yeah, that's, and that's a yeah. good scene, too, because, like, it shows Chimino's love for the contrast 
especially maybe on a scene to scene basis, but also within scenes. Cause I love, of course you get the fight, you know, the goofy fight, and then they just kind of go chill on the rocks and talk about their plans and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, there's a beautiful detail where Jeffrey Lewis helps carry um, Jeff Bridges down the hill because Jeff Bridges got, like, sucker punched in the fight, I think. And Jeff yeah, Bridges is yeah. having a hard time, like, making his way down the hill to have the conversation. And Jeffrey Lewis literally just met this guy <laughs> in that moment. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's like George Kennedy's little second in command. And so you almost feel like he has a little bit of, like, a, you know what? I know what it's like being the second guy. I'll help him down the hill. <laughs> totally uncommented upon but it was just a nice little you know friendly detail yeah it's these details that I make me movie... yeah. no, oh, no no go ahead Mom. Yeah, i was just short comment but it was like it's these details that i feel like i notice uh almost in the forefront you know just exploring chimino's filmography from the very beginning because i haven't seen any of his other movies but i feel like he's very detail oriented and it you know, enhances scenes visually and just also, you know, with, uh, you know, the dramatics of a scene as well. And I mean, it, it being a Mal Paso production and also starring Clint Eastwood, like the comedy does kind of feel like Eastwood comedy at points, you know? Absolutely. Uh, and that is, of course, a very high compliment. <laughs> uh, so as we said earlier, uh, when I said the end of the movie and the beginning of the discussion, uh, they find the old schoolhouse, which was moved, uh, to like a commemorative location uh and there's a great scene where there's these two old geezers checking out the schoolhouse oh isn't that nice you know and uh they just sit there and aren't even intimidating they're (laughs) just like looking straight ahead and that's intimidating enough for those people to like rob themselves essentially (laughs) well well they just laugh at them (laughs) yeah (laughs) That, that's one of the funnier scenes in the movie for sure uh especially as it uh, leads to the the grand finale uh as they get it uh they they get the money uh but jeff bridges uh suffers from a stroke and uh it's it's really like tragic to see you see it right away Tremino is like very good at uh showing like only the essentials kind of mm-hmm. uh, and there's a few scenes like that where it's like oh he you know, clearly studied the silent masters where there's a lot of dialogueless scenes where it's just in pure gestures and editing that he's able to convey what's needed, uh, which is especially the first signs you see of bridges having a stroke when they're, you know, taking apart the school, uh, the chalkboard. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's just like uh, the, the short like cuts to him. Uh, they're not too heavy handed. I feel like he doled out that information very, like very methodically uh, climaxing with Clint leaving him on the side of the road while he goes to buy a Cadillac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, it, and it, it's really um, slow and brutal kind of moment because the, like they they do that heist and there is kind of like a, a precision to that heist, but that second half of the heist when everything starts going wrong and you know the boys they be messing up, um, they start getting chased by the cops. Their their plan to go into the drive-in doesn't work because George Kennedy reveals himself by sneezing in the trunk of the car, and um, it, it gets there's this really sad moment where you know he dumps his partner. Um, played by Jeffrey Lewis, like out the back of the trunk because he got shot by the cops while the cops were shooting at the car. And then he gets like viciously eaten by a guard dog in a department <laughs> store. Yeah. Like really, really vicious oh deaths. God. And what happens is that George Kennedy is like obviously very 
he was very upset about, um, you know, Eastwood and Jeff Bridges, you know, relationship that they were developing. And he even said that, you know, he's, you know, Eastwood, he's like, he's my, my best friend. We've known each other since before the war. You mean like fucking nothing to me. And we see that because he just kicks him <laughs> in the head over and over and over again during yeah. that escape. And you assume that that's sort of like where this, you know, this this stroke or this sustained sort of like brain damage kind of came from. And yeah, so just watching that slowly take hold of his body where, you know, he can't he can't move his left arm and he starts slurring his words and he's trying while he's trying to like hand eastwood like the cigars that he bought for them to celebrate and you know he eastwood Ugh. bought him like the dream car he told him about at the beginning of the film the cadillac it's a really really um like sad moment as jeff bridges just sort of like keels over and 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 dies there and eastwood just sort of like snaps the cigar and and uh and and, and drives off yeah, it uh, is that it, such a quick shot of him snapping the cigar too. just like, oh, my God, what a great punctuation mark mm-hmm. uh, before uh, like cutting to him driving away. Really great. No, I, I kind of like that. The, the the death, it is like it has this grace note with the cigar, but it isn't dwelled on too melodramatically. And I feel like it kind of, uh, you know, keeps the kind of the tonal consistency that's going on throughout the movie. But also, you know, it shows the hustle continues mindset. Clint keeps hustling. He keeps driving on. That's <laughs> what you got to do. Well, the, yeah, he has a he has a great line that sort of he says near the beginning of the film that's something along the lines of like, you know, when you don't know what to do, you know, you just keep moving. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um. Yeah, this is a really fantastic flick. I think that like it's one thing to make like a zany like 70s style like heist comedy, but because of uh, Chimino's masterful direction it, it adds so much subtlety and depth that's able to bring out a lot of like I don't know there is so much of like the death of the 60s in this and sort of that generational clash that adds so much more to like the comedy the characters just everything about the movie like especially the I, I think of the sequence there where they're like um uh, doing those jobs before the heist and it just shows how ill-equipped for the straight life these fellows are but there's sort of no like the increasing suburbanization of America there's really no place for them mm-hmm. and just like the relationships between all of them uh, crumbling and just that there's no like you know from the beginning there's no happy ending like even if they do get the money like what are they going to do with it? Would they be satisfied with it? And just chasing that dream for no reason at all. It's a, it's fun, but a bummer. Yeah. Um, Malcolm. No. Yeah. I think I, I pretty much agree with what you said, JT. And like, I, I guess I, I, I just, I, I, the ending is sad, but I don't, I don't feel that, that deep sorrow, I guess, or something like, I, I do feel like this, the, the, the tone is I don't know. I, there's something very light and fun about this movie, and I feel like it's willing to go wherever it wants to go. There's just a lot of uh, weird characters and stuff like that that they encounter that, that just have like a specificity and a strangeness to them that um, that are just so well carved out. And I mean, for for a debut movie, I mean, this is this is a really uh, impressive step up to the plate. You know, I wonder. I wonder. Oh my if, God. I, I, Oh, go ahead. No, so I, I wonder. I wonder if he'll do anything in the future. This Michael Chimino. 
Michael Cimino, one to watch. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Went too far for Eddie. Damn. <laughs> no, no. Uh, <laughs> Eddie was offended by my edgy joke. <laughs> No, I'm joking. Yeah, no. I didn't even mean it no, that way I either. I had something else to say, and it just caught me off guard, kind of. <laughs> so I was trying to think of other debut films that are of this caliber, and there's not too many of them, to be honest. I mean, like, obviously, fucking Citizen Kane, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, there's just, like, such uh, detail to, like, uh, image crafting, too. I mean, of course, like, because other... I could think of other really impressive debuts that have a lot of, like real positive aspects to them that make them really good movies but like this is something that's firing on all cylinders yeah i mean it's worth noting too that the film was shot by frank stanley who's like a regular sort of eastwood collaborator and this kind of does look like it it is noticeably a chimino film versus and not that he's not you know not doing some eastwoodisms and he got lucky that eastwood loved one of his scripts and basically wanted to direct it himself Mm -hmm. anyway you can see the version of this that eastwood would have made himself but it it it, it is really interesting that you can see the similarities in the vistas and in some of the the choice of the anamorphic lensing and stuff that you can you can see chimino already in his first movie and you can see it you know how it moves into the deer hunter considering that you know frank stanley i think i know mostly from magnum forced and the eiger sanction i don't know if you guys have seen the eiger sanction the eastwood one that he directed i actually haven't seen that one it's the one where he's like an indiana jones type like climbing like snowy swiss mountains to like kill one of the people but he's got to figure out who the guy is before he can kill him like it's just he knows it's one of the people on the mountain trip with him really weird movie where like you know eastwood has like a black girl playing a chick named jemima brown and the villain has a dog that he calls like (laughs) faggot um really odd film just in general <laughs> but it has some really beautiful like telephoto lensing of like you know the the swiss mountains and the location work so frank stanley was used to doing vistas but they didn't look like this and i was i was very surprised going from seeing the movies he directed with eastwood um or shot with eastwood to seeing what he he shot with uh chimino because it's very distinctly him and as eddie put it's it's very painterly like even just the shots of the road while they're driving on it and uh you know they got like that paul williams song like where do i go from here going as eastwood's just driving off into the sun and stuff uh really um um you know classical and also it's it's got a bit of like western in it absolutely yeah there's just like the endless you know horizon lines which is what called back to john ford for me and the use of the horizon lines but contrasting you know putting them very uh high or low in the frame and you know uh just like once in a while throwing in a low angle shot like the first shot of jeff bridges as he kind of just like walks in front of the camera at a low angle framing against like telephone poles and the sun pretty much as he's walking up to that car dealership uh that really kind of catch me off guard because the the wide shots just feel like he had been working on them for a month you know like yeah. these these wide shots are so precise in their use of depth of field and this one with stanley and the next one with uh zigmund is so interesting which like which parts are in you know softer focus you know even is just like hard to even consider dramatically it's so much easier to just kind of give yourself over to the frame and just like indulge in seeing a small car pass through a large landscape yeah yeah Uh, so as we pass into a large helicopter passing in to a war crime called the vietnam war 
uh, <laughs> The Deer Hunter was his next film. And this was a project that started just with the Russian roulette aspect. This was like a Vegas set script uh, about Russian roulette <laughs> that got into Chimino's hands. And Chimino wanted to cut the Russian roulette aspect of it. <laughs> he was like, yeah, this is a cool hilarious. script. I don't like, know. I don't know why this part's necessary. <laughs> You know it's so funny. Yeah. So I like your Russian roulette movie set in Vegas, but what I'm gonna do is move it to Vietnam and get rid of the Russian roulette. I think <laughs> that was his pitch. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because this movie, like, I I like it a lot, and I don't mean this as a slight, but it is like have there's a lot of Russian roulette scenes. A lot of players well, playing like Russian three, roulette. Well, like set pieces, yeah, and they're like very like structuring of the movie kind. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean the first one doesn't come till halfway through, but still, it's like pretty fucking uh, vital part of the movie. Obviously, also three. That's a lot of times to play Russian roulette, in my opinion. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's how many hours it is too. It's a three-hour movie. Damn. Yeah, the, the Deer Hunter is just another movie about a bunch of dudes having a good time. <laughs> exactly. It's about when your boys go away. Uh, because to me, this film is about uh, <laughs> uh, John Cazale's character. And it's about when your friends go away and then they come back and you impress them with your new facial hair. <laughs> you know, it's funny uh, contrasting this to Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. This is uh, a dude suck movie. This is like uh, aside aside from like all Absolutely. the war, all the war aspect. It's just I love the aspect aspect that De Niro completely hates his friends and like has so much <laughs> contempt for them. Thinks he's better than them. Like it is it is like kind of like he's a like a big. He thinks of himself as like a big fish in a small pond. And I think I think De Niro. I one thing I want to get out. Maybe you know it could be a fun prompt. I think De Niro's character in this movie is one of the strangest main characters I've seen in like a big budget war epic or just a big budget movie in in general just, yeah. just, like just a very strange guy who doesn't know how to communicate with people whatsoever even before the war mm -hmm. so I, I i like that aspect of it well there are definitely some facial expressions that are like oh yeah he just did taxi driver two years ago <laughs> you know uh but at the same time it's like i don't know there is there is a certain agedness to him in this like especially when he has the goatee that it's just like i had to check uh, not actually but in my head i'm like is this actually a 78 movie like he looks so much older and it looks like he, uh, how he you know rocked the the goatee and like something like heat of course mm -hmm. uh, angel heart but i, I feel like <laughs> oh yeah of course you know, the 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 more important film to talk about uh, but uh <clears throat> I feel like his performance and his character are so strange. And I think the character on paper maybe isn't as strange as you pitch it. And it's the, the performance that really True. Uh, makes it so strange. I saw Dave yeah, Kerr I mean, in a review of Thunderbolt and Lightfoot call, uh, 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 what do you call it? Sumino style, the aesthetic of inarticulateness. And like, I feel, and, and I, and he meant that as a negative, but I, I think it comes up as a positive here in this movie. And I think it's, you know, perfectly conveyed by the in inarticulateness of De Niro, but JT, I interrupted you. Please uh, say it's all good. Yeah. I, uh, wholeheartedly, I mean, like, I think it's something like where it's like 
you're so young going off to war you're not really like in that like i love how much time is devoted like before the war Mm -hmm. and just like really exploring the layout of the town this is sort of like a digression but like this is like one of the top tier pennsylvania movies (laughs) that like exists at all that is that this is movies about pennsylvania as much as it is vietnam the region i mean i know some of it was shot like um, outside of Pittsburgh, some parts Ohio, but like this story in particular, like I had a cousin who went off to like um, uh, serve in the Middle East and had a very similar like <laughs> um, path to De Niro where he got very quiet and aggressive afterwards. Um, and it's bleak in that sense where it's just yeah. like you're a young man who's like confused with who you are. You can tell when he's sort of like uh, flirting with Streep at the wedding where it's like uncomfortable in his own skin. And then you just throw him into like into the fucking shit. And it's like, how do you try to process that? But to the Pennsylvania specificity of it, I mean like opening with these beautiful, like dark, intense steel mills, like all of the like sort of Appalachian trail in there, that wildlife. It's like, I don't know. That's like where I grew up and it's, you feel the character of, I mean, it's a trite thing to say at this point, but yeah. like the town is so uh, much a part of it. Well, and you you mentioned Ohio because the main thing that they did there was the wedding, uh, because there's a historic uh, like church that they shot it in, uh, which was like a huge hassle, and they weren't even halfway through the production when they got to that scene, and they were already over budget. Like, uh, and apparently they had all these like Russian immigrants bring actual presents uh, to the wedding. <laughs> There's a huge pile of presents in the yeah, wedding. Dude. You see it when they leave, but it's like fucking like they they just got that community, I guess, of that church to just like come through and give presents. Like this is it's funny because he has like the historical like disaster shoot after this with Heaven's Gate. This one. The fact that it, you know, won a bunch of Oscars, made a shit ton of money is a saving grace because it has disaster written all over it. You know, it goes over budget so quickly and there's all this crazy shit, them improving with guns to their heads. At one point, I guess, uh, Kazal, like there was one bullet in his uh, revolver, but no matter what, like when they did a take, uh, you know, because the cutting, you can tell too, uh, you know, cause I always checked to see it wasn't the yeah. next bullet up, but they put a live round in that revolver for whatever fucking reason. Jesus like, Christ. There's no, absolutely no reason <laughs> to do that. <laughs> uh, but that scene rules, you know, yeah. uh, it would have ruled just as much without the bullet in the gun, but I don't care because it's a great scene. <laughs> You gotta put the fear of uh, death into your actors, or else they won't be shown on screen. I get it. I get yeah, it, dude. Yeah, fucking Christopher Walken having fucking rats walk all over. <laughs> all of them having rats and fucking bugs crawl all over them. It's disgusting. It's it's shot in uh, Thailand for Vietnam, and you know the attention that Chimino pays to those Pennsylvania landscapes is equal to you know how he looks at uh, Thailand for Vietnam. And, you know, he's so dedicated to finding just like, I don't know, high vantage points to just craft these incredible vista shots that you can just kind of sit in and get such a great sense of uh, setting and location just by sitting in a wide shot for five to ten seconds, you know. Uh, and especially, it's interesting to compare the first images. The first image of White Hunter, uh, I almost said White Hunter Blackheart, uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot is 
Deer Hunter? That very... What? Oh, no, I'm, oh I'm you're going, going back, back to Thunderbolt. I'm going back. Uh, yeah, I'm gotcha. going to compare the two. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. The first one of Thunderbolt and Lightfoot <laughs> uh, is that low-level landscape shot of like the wheat fields. You know, that's the first mm-hmm. image. Uh, very painterly, very beautiful, uh, very still as the titles go over it before it gets put into motion, of course. Uh, and then this one opens on a truck at night passing under a bridge next to a steel mill. And when you like describe both of those images, one obviously sounds more romantic than the other. Uh, but this one is like even more beautiful. I, I am obsessed with the way he shoots uh, the area around the mill at night, both in these opening scenes and after the wedding, when a nude De Niro goes and lays down on the basketball court that they have there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there, there's a shot that I I really took to as well, where like you know they're they're going home from working at the at the steel mill, and you know they're getting ready for the party, and you're getting a look at sort of like all of the you know the the guys like going home and and talking to the girls and getting dressed and everything like that. And there's a shot where they go to Meryl Streep's house, and you can sort of like you know you can see sort of like the the intimacy of the neighborhood, and then all in the background, all you can see is like the smog in the air, like from the factory that they were just walking from and the way that he cuts to one to the other it really connects them and you would think that you know that would be sort of like a negative image but the way that he uses it here it's it kind of connects them all together like he the the fact that he spends like just an hour and what almost 15 minutes just sinking you into this community and this group of people and the specificity of their relationships to each other and their work and um the way that he finds ways to even connect that in the visuals of the film i was really really taken with no, yeah, I love the detail Absolutely. that the that the the bartender, the guy's bar that they always go to, is also baritone in the in the church choir while, while they're getting married. It really mm-hmm. gives you that small town feel, you know. This guy's around everywhere, yeah. and and also um, and that fucking shitbag MC at the wedding <laughs> his hands on Casal's <laughs> uh, girl's ass uh, was working at uh, the the market or the, like the pharmacy or yeah. whatever. Uh, like he looks like he's the pharmacist at the grocery store that Street works at, uh, while he's like smoking a cigar. <laughs> yeah, and and, 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 the, and the contrast that guy's the worst character in the whole movie. I don't care about the war criminals. That guy is the worst. Or or like a like a, again sort of like another sort of like Chimino detail the 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 contradiction of they're at doing like what it, I guess it's like a Russian Orthodox wedding with like the crowns and shit. Yeah, uh, it's like super fancy, and then there's just De Niro going up to like Meryl Street being like. Like, you want a rolling rock? <laughs> That's a good beer. <laughs> rolling rock, best beer around. Yeah. <laughs> Such a funny line. <laughs> and also the fact that it's this Russian Orthodox wedding that also has a giant banner that says, like, to serve our nation proudly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just American flags hanging from the bed. It's just, oh my God, that dynamic there is so great. Just Chimino laying it out there on the table right away, you know? Uh, our, our original cultures might be melting away, but at least we have this this beautiful nation of America with all of its imperialism, war, and uh, just contempt for uh, the working class. <laughs> in this first segment, when you're in Pennsylvania, uh, the, the wedding is what kicks it all off. This is a very long wedding scene, too. This wedding is... I'm going to say 25 minutes or so, if not longer. Uh, And there are all these little subplots within it. 
Uh, Kazal, as we said, getting very mad at the MC getting handsy with his mm-hmm. girl. Uh, De Niro very drunkenly flirting with Meryl Streep, and at one point almost trying to kiss her, uh, which is yeah hard to hard to stomach. Uh, the cringe acting there. Uh, you also have Christopher Walken dancing his ass off, like, turning up. Well. Like in every movie that he's in, but uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's such a great walk and dancing performance in that scene. I love when he jumps over the beer. <laughs> that is the stupidest dance move ever. It's very funny. Very funny. <laughs> it's nice to see him so sprightly there because one thing, like, I mean, this is kind of cutting to the end a little bit, but like just seeing like the life he has in that first like act. And just like how dead his fucking eyes are at the at the end, it's yeah. oh god. God, he, oh. He's, he, he, oh god. He's such a carefree guy, you know. Before going to war, even so carefree when his friend tells him, you know, I think my wife is having a baby by another man. He's like, just don't worry about it. Keep on going. <laughs> <laughs> Keep your head up, bro. Come on. Yeah, man. He, he in in the first uh, like third of the movie, he's just like he's rocking his red plaid. He's singing along to like Frankie Valley. And then he has kind of like a heart to heart with De Niro where, you know, they both, you know, had an entire like drunken night at the wedding. And he just caught up to De Niro, who's like hanging his schlong in the streets and sitting on the basketball court. And he says something along, along the lines of, you know, everything's going so fast, man. And it, you do at that point, it does really feel like you've been just living in like the last night with these people. And the way that Christopher Walken talks to me, he's like, you know, I fucking love this place like this is this is home to me this is really important to me and you got to promise that whatever happens out there that like we're gonna return to to this this is what i want because it's also set up too that robert de niro though drunkenly flirting with meryl streep he does know that christopher walken and meryl streep are actually um you know sort of taken with each other and they have a lot of sort of like subplots there i think meryl streep is like moving in with his uncle or something because her dad is like an alcoholic abuser that moment where he's introduced in that mirror shot i think that's the mirror shot you were referring to earlier right eddie Mm -hmm. that's crazy shot (laughs) (laughs) doesn't walk and pop the question at the wedding or yeah no he proposes to her but like uh yeah yeah, as i saw yeah they they were dating and she was moving into their place while they were going to be in Vietnam to avoid her abusive uh, dad. Uh, And then De Niro was, you know, on his Mr. Steel, yo girl shit, (laughs) (laughs) which also kind of seems out of character for how like uh, inarticulate his character is like how strong he comes on. But I guess being drunk, you know, unleashes that kind of, I'm going to, I'm going to contrast you say it makes perfect sense that like a guy like that would be like in friend with in love with his best friend's girlfriend, because he's like (laughs) someone who has like no social skills of his own. So he just, you know, attaches to whatever's around him and like him on his Mr. Steal Your Girl shit is just literally him like vampirically walking around the wedding, staring at her from a distance. (laughs) It is like, it's not exactly the smoothest moves. I, I think this is like, I, I can't, I can't really get over the particularness of this De Niro performance. He really plays it in such an ambiguous way to where, I'm thinking up questions that don't that probably are not even relevant to the movie, but it's just like 
Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna back Malcolm up on his on on his take there because I also thought that scene where they get into like kind of like a a, a weird tussle with each other over the boots on the hunting trip is super yeah. weird. Oh and God. and and De Niro keeps like intentionally like making it go on longer and like establishing sort of like dominance over his friend. And Walken has to come over to him and give his friend you know like his boots and it literally come over to him and be like, dude, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> like yeah. we're all we're all spending our last like day together we're trying to have fun <laughs> dude de niro is insane in this movie like uh the more we talk about it yeah I, I really love his performance and his character but the when they first walk out uh to go hunting and you get that shot of the clouds and it's this insane like eclipse looking thing with a lens flare on it too and he's like uh yeah there's sun dogs in the sky that's a blessing on the hunter sent by the great wolf to his children <laughs> and everyone's like I think Dude, what I- the fuck are you talking about I think the the modern equivalent of what De Niro is in this movie is just a guy whose taste is too esoteric and he'll try to talk about some people like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, (laughs) after he explains the sun dogs in the sky, uh, they go to the bar before the wedding, you know, get a little relaxed, you know, sing along to some Frankie Valley, have the classic rolling pin Russian mom come in and yell at them. Uh, and that's before the wedding the very long wedding scene then takes place before uh, they then go on the hunt uh, which is I don't know it's it's also very strange the way he shows the difference between like the the wedded couple leaving for the night and then the car uh, going off to the hunt I was kind of confused by the way uh, that was edited together but maybe that was intentional I don't know I just sound dumb now. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of an opinion on that. I guess I don't re- really remember that that well. But yeah, no, this was okay. Michael Cimino uh, trying to capture the contradiction of the American psyche. <laughs> Damn, we're going with that. Thank you, John. <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> so, so uh, there's this pretty lengthy scene of them just parked uh, at the off the side of the road where John Cazal thought there was like a cabin that they were going to hang out at. I guess <laughs> he's like, I guess they must've moved it. They, they must've moved it, <laughs> which I guess that's like the school, you know, things yeah. change. They moved it, <laughs> which is they so moved funny. It. Uh, they moved it in both movies. Snacking. <laughs> they're just snacking and one dude dips his bologna in the mustard before putting it into his bread and then the other guy has to upstage it by just dunking the Twinkie in the oh, mustard oh that's awesome <laughs> one of the grossest th- of all of the things in this movie that's one of the nastiest for sure <laughs> yeah and I love that brief detail too where you get like this really amazing vista of them going into the mountains and the trees which sort of you know Watkins sort of talks about a little like poetically but before they do that it's just just held on this really really long shot where the one dude gets out and they keep pulling back to like go and pick him up and then they just drive off the second he tries to get into the car just fucking with him and it's just really like it's like this really beautiful painterly shot and just the actual subject of that scene is just all of the friends just fucking with that dude on the side of the road and pissing him off 
And I love, I mean, you say it's a painterly shot and it's like, there is no point of view for that shot. The, the camera's like hidden away in the trees kind of. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very strangely framed shot, but it's masterfully framed. I mean, as we said, uh, Vilma Zygmunt shoots this one. Both of these are in uh, Cinemascope and yeah, the the f- every inch of the frame, every pixel of the frame, to say it properly for our digital home viewing, mm-hmm. uh, every pixel is utilized perfectly here uh, in these wide vistas, even when they're just doing the classic prank of not letting your friend back in the car, <laughs> which is then called back to uh, later on when De Niro's watching them uh, have his return party, uh, still up to their old tricks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think also what makes uh, Shimino's uh, compositions so painterly is that he's such a he's so, he always uses natural line to kind of like uh, get the balance of the shot. You know what I mean? Just like uh, I don't know, like the yeah. way the way like the the mountain divides, you know, with the skyline, or just where the the road divides amongst the lake is that's a that's a very painterly technique, and of course, you know, it looks beautiful. Yeah, and the, and the colors that they did on the new remaster of the film too look really, really nice. Like even just the way that like the um you know like kind of like their vests will like pop off like the the frame a little bit. Like they will be in like beautiful blue sky and the green trees, and then you will just see like them in like their hunting outfits and stuff like that, and kind of like intruding on that beauty a little bit. Um, as uh, it's I guess it's sort of established that De Niro is like he's he's the deer hunter. You don't understand. He's the best. Yeah. He's the one shot king. And uh, I, I I was I, I had to read up how they got the shot of him uh, actually shooting the deer. Luckily, they shot it with a trank. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they used a close up, shot it with a trank, and we just watched the deer go to sleep. That's right. <laughs> That's right. But I love how it's uh, soundtracked too, because the soundtrack has like a kind of classic dramatic film score throughout. Uh, but then it switches to these almost like gregorian chants almost during the titular deer hunting sequences uh where de niro is just moving across these vast landscapes like just you know be very very quiet he's hunting for deer it makes it like i mean to a certain extent like the hunting culture in like i don't know western and like central pennsylvania it is like does take sort of a religious kind of quality to it Mm -hmm. but i love building that up uh, as like as, as such an important like moment those chants are punctuated by the sound of the rifle i don't know i i really love those deer hunting scenes for very basic reasons you know i wish i could read into it deeper uh but it just i don't know just one body instead of three or four uh moving through his wide shots gives it such a more ominous tone in the way he intercuts, you know, the deer and De Niro and the way De Niro gazes at the deer uh, or, you know, he's acting, he's gazing at the camera, Uh, but uh, it's just so like masterfully executed for me. I mean this, like in terms of the deer stuff, I think this is something that like put me off of it when I like watched it and I was a little younger is that it's like very direct and like you have the whole like he shoots the deer in the beginning, you return and he can't shoot. You have the confrontation with the green beret in the beginning. Like Chimino's like telegraphing like a lot of stuff, but his directness to me, like this time around, felt very similar to like someone like Oliver Stone, where it's like you have such a clear and pressing point on like American imperialism and just like uh 
culture at large, the way things are like changing and the past is fading. I think it like fits like a level of uh, uh, like op- openness and upfrontness like this being very direct. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think a huge part of that too would just be that like the amount of time that you spend on them too, because I get what you mean that like there's very obvious sort of like um, sort of like mirrored symbols that we get in the first half and the second half of the film. But I think that there is something to be said just about like how much time is actually spent with those characters, just seeing them like that. I feel like another movie would either try to tackle this kind of story by actually taking you through the events more specifically like uh like a direct timeline i mean like and actually trying to trace almost like a plot of that timeline whereas this is it almost feels mm-hmm. like you just have like three different like scenes or movements almost to it where it's like more of like a you sit down with these characters you hang out with them for an hour and 15 minutes you get into sort of like you know their working class sort of like american traditions that they have and then immediately it's it's not like that smash cut when we do get to vietnam it goes from you know them singing into the bar into the into the heat of it and you are just dropped into you know there's no sort of like setup where you get to meet you know their commanding officers and they're told this is where it gets real son or like you're just already there um and oh my god no uh, clearance clearwater best vietnam movie <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I was kind of i was kind of mad i didn't know what war we were in because i didn't have any ccr <laughs> uh, but i do love that it's not even like the smash cut it's like the a very slight J not you know you hear yeah. the choppers for like three yeah, or four seconds right. before it cuts and I, I you think know that, exactly what's coming from just the sound of the blades no oh, that, the, the, the movie you were describing Josh I feel like is just platoon basically it's literally platoon and I do JT I do like the directness of this movie although I feel like there's a couple parts where it kind of rubbed me I guess the wrong way. I just thought it, it just didn't hit as much. And I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I think the ending kind of didn't okay. do it for me. I don't know. I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You're on my list, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I got a permanent spot there. <laughs> but I mean, I think with that directness and like the, like, I don't know, making some points a little bit more obvious than others, there are definitely things that like, I don't know, big spots are telegraphed like them talking to the green beret saying fuck it but just how much i i didn't notice the first time around like walking like how full of life he was in the first half mm-hmm. that's something mm-hmm. i feel like that you could miss out and like how much he re- re- talks about like wanting to return to home and that mm-hmm. thing like that i i don't know there are moments there that are bigger and more direct but within that like with thunderbolt and lightfoot um a lot of Chimino is subtlety and like that gray area. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I wanted to say that scene uh, before the chopper blades come in though, uh, where one of them is playing piano, you just get like a series of split diopter shots of people like, yeah. watching the piano being played. Uh, and it is really beautiful. And also the one it goes to twice of John Cazal looking and you know, he's not going with them, but he's like, you know, not just sad to see his homies go, to but to see his homies probably die you know yeah it is uh it's it's insane how much kazale's character how much detail he's given and i think that is in due part to how much time we spend with these characters but he gets like his own tics like looking insecurely in the mirror and stuff like that it is just like 
It is the the amount of how much Kazal's uh, p- character is painted out. It's something you don't really find in a lot of other movies, let alone war movies. So once we get to the war, uh, we see a, I guess, North Vietnamese guy throw a grenade at like a bunch of people that are in this little hole. And then Robert De Niro sets him on fire. <laughs> it's it's crazy. Just like getting right into the fucking flamethrower, like 30 seconds from them teary eyed uh, listening to their friend play piano is uh, quite a bold choice, and I, I really admire. Oh yeah, it. that 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 filthiness is like really stark, and like right away. I mean, shit, they they have that that moment too, where like not only is there you know like uh, children being mowed down, there's also like the pigs on the ground like pulling the bodies around in the in the mud and stuff like that. Oh my god, yeah. I mean, you could say it's like uh, I mean, there's a lot of readings of movies like Apocalypse Now, and I think I I see this get lumped in with uh, like exoticization or whatever and like especially with just like the insistence on showing bugs and pigs and nasty (laughs) yeah that's what vietnam is to you like i get that (laughs) critique too but it is a movie where you cut from him you know uh, or you cut from this group of friends being together potentially for the last time ever to uh him setting someone on fire (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know also it's like oh yeah you go you go no, you no. Continue. The okay, I was going to say, um, I I want to tackle another common critique. I I, I you see this point I posted like uh, two times a month on Twitter. It's like, wow, America goes to other countries, destroys them, and then makes movies about how their soldiers felt sad about it. It's like, all right, first of all, it's like we're you know. If, Americans making movies that's probably what's going to happen good or bad but second of all it's like it's mostly it's 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 like people who go fight wars are like the underclass of America you know what I mean it's like these are not the people to to blame you know what I, I I don't know it just seems like a weird I don't know we've never respected the vets on extended clip and I don't think this is the episode <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm not respecting the vets but it's just it's just I don't know that's a, that's just a weird critique you know what that is that's trying no, to be yeah, smarter it's sad than to a see movie. young boy get their life fucked up yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean I love this movie I, I understand that <laughs> yeah that's that's just when you try to be smarter than a movie you become dumb that's a that's a that's a success <laughs> quote you could put over a picture of my face. That's a that's a golden Malcolm Nugget. <laughs> I was gonna say that this movie faced a lot of controversy too, even at the time for the Russian roulette stuff, right? For like sort of like it it like not being sort of based in any sort of like uh, historical thing, and yeah. sort of made the Vietnamese sort yeah, of yeah, uh, moved it to Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. and and, and <laughs> that it, it kind of just made them look like absolute torturous psychos, like making them play Russian yeah. roulette sort of against each other. Even though, again, I think Chimino, to his credit, uses it. Because we don't get any larger overview of the actual conflict itself, like this movie is very grounded in the intimacy of the relationships of the couple of characters that we are with. Um, obviously, they would view a lot of this stuff that way. But then also the Russian roulette is just kind of used as a um, sort of like larger allegory for just sort of like deliberate, violent senselessness in a little bit and the way that he sort of draws that tension out of that sequence obviously the sequence is very widely um praised for just being so awful (laughs) and unbearable (laughs) to like actually experience to sit there and watch these characters be forced to play russian roulette against each other their friends um until one of them you know gets a bullet in the head yeah and it's like Sure, you could kind of think it through a little and be like, okay, this is what, an hour into this movie? Maybe one of these guys dies walking into De Niro. They're going to live. Like, you you could kind of just see it in the the structure of the movie yeah. or whatever. Uh, 
even with that, it is the most intense scene. Like, obviously, everyone says this. It's like saying that the Godfather is good, which we did a lot <laughs> for the last few weeks. Uh, but this is a very intense scene where they're in this uh, POW camp, just submerged in water up to their neck, looking through the cracks at these other prisoners of war playing Russian roulette at the gunpoint of rifles, you know, of other people's rifles, while I guess these what, these North Vietnamese communists are betting on Russian roulette. Some, some... <laughs> that pussy John McCain didn't have to it's deal Vegas, with baby. bullshit like this. <laughs> you know, also, I like how um, with this uh, Russian roulette scene, we see De Niro coming to his own in a way, you know, he never really could in real life. You know, he's a good comforter of the scared. And then when it's time to, you know, escape from this prison, he, he you know, he becomes a perfect soldier. You know, instead of, he realizes the, the only way to uh, win this situation is to put himself in even more harm. It's just like, how do I get myself not killed? I put more bullets in the gun that I'm shooting in my head. That's how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> and he does it. Yeah. <laughs> He wins. America won the Vietnam War. No. Uh, 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 that was going to be my response, but I didn't want. Yeah. <laughs> just, oh, this movie, you know, it's great. I'm glad they won the war. You know, it was all for something, at least, right? <laughs> what I was going to say is that reversal, you know, where he puts the three bullets in the gun and then reverses the situation. They take out the entire room of Vietnamese uh, soldiers who were torturing them almost effortlessly, but obviously it's all the pent-up uh, tactics that Robert De Niro has been storing throughout his whole life in his brain. <laughs> uh, and so it just looks effortlessly as he, uh, the three of them, uh, uh, Nick, Michael, and uh, Steve and Steve get on a makeshift raft uh, to float down river before an aborted helicopter rescue happens where only Walken gets rescued and the other two uh, fall after like trying to get onto the chopper back into the water. And I guess De Niro did that drop like five times or something like that. <laughs> like this fuck? is the definition of trying too hard to make a movie. And it still works. Like I, everything about it is like that bullshit, like method stuff where it's like, we got to do it real. And you're just endangering lives spending. I mean, the spending studio money, that's fine by me. Uh, but endangering lives is bad, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it looks cool, but it does look cool. And the, the, the bone break is just ridiculous there where Steve's, uh shin i guess is just completely split open uh and you only get a short glimpse of it but i'm thinking of it right now and the the images in my mind you know those two seconds on screen really did a number on me (laughs) yeah that looked like that hurt that's all i gotta say about that You gotta be careful with those zingers, Malcolm. <laughs> almost spit I thought we were anti-troop. I thought we were supposed camp. to be like, "Fuck the troops." We're, you know, we're cool and anti-troop. We don't. No, listen. dude. I almost. I literally just did a spit take for the first time in my life. I, I contained it. I contained it. I put my hand over my mouth. I was able to keep it all in my mouth, but I almost spit out a handful of water. I, I literally took a sip as you delivered that excellent zinger. Um, <laughs> all I got to say is that my uncle was in the Vietnam War, so let's let's talk about the subject with a little 
a little respect, a little bit sincerity. <laughs> I don't know about that one. Uh, <laughs> um, we got a troop over here. <laughs> <laughs> My uncle kind of looks like De Niro when he has when De Niro rocks the goatee. He kind, I think he kind of copped that look from De Niro. But otherwise, anyways, anyways, anyways. Yeah. So as Josh said, this is structured into like a few grand movements. You have the first hour and a change uh, in Pennsylvania, and then you have the Vietnam uh, first Vietnam segment, Vietnam Part One. We're just getting mm-hmm. started. Well, and 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 I love too that again. It's not like a combat sequence. It is like the yeah, the, the overall the sort of like of way that this fits the into the scope is that it's just like this really intimately painful sequence of torture, and then really really mm-hmm. messy and also painful escape, and that's it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's nothing. You know, <laughs> even though there's a cool shot where Robert De Niro jumps out of the helicopter, you know, like it. it it, comparison especially to other vietnam war films this is just really a kind of deliberately kind of gross and messy sequence that takes place and yeah. the rest of the movie is just like you know trying to live with having experienced that at that point how that how that it's actually a changed movie. a person yeah <laughs> yeah it's like a torture movie more than an action movie uh, yeah which i think more war movies probably you know it's an apt thing to do for a war movie <laughs> Well, I mean, John Woo would eventually make his own version of this with a bullet in the head, and he would put uh, Hong Kong action sequences into it, and I think that oh. movie's incredible, too. Holy shit, I just realized that bullet in the head is uh, a Deer Hunter re- remake, kind of. It is, That's, yeah. Uh, it, damn. Um, <laughs> bullet in the head, <laughs> great movie. Malcolm, adding knowledge everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I've obviously run out of insight. Let's see. <laughs> no, that's the thing. You, when you run out of insight, you got to add knowledge. <laughs> insight <laughs> plus knowledge. You divide the knowledge, and the outcome is insight. <laughs> insight, see, knowledge. I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm pointing out my brain with my pen. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for uh, uh, the that- numbers that make the podcast great. Mm-hmm. Well, because the, the, the last the last section is De Niro going home and yeah. trying well, to sort of the last re- section. Well, because it, it, it's it's that contrasted with Walken staying behind. It's those two things sort of happening. Yeah, yeah, in conjunction and then De Niro other, right? in the third act going back to. Well, they they don't cut back to Walken at all. Uh, once you go back with De Niro, mm-hmm. uh, it stays with him until he goes back. Mm-hmm. But there's there's sort of like Robert that brief moment where he sees him play before he leaves, right? And he tries to get his attention, yeah. but Walken doesn't notice because the first time yeah. we actually yeah, see yeah, Walken yeah. play is in the bar in Saigon, where like this random French man just comes up to him. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. "You ever oh, heard of the the OG?" colonist the, the Russian mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought he was trying to fuck him at first i was like that would yeah. um i love that yeah. that scene where de niro sees walking uh win like a, a round or just sees him play russian roulette and then he gets in walking gets into the car with that french guy and as he's driving away he throws all the cash in the air baller moment <laughs> i gotta the game pays beach bum mode exactly exactly <laughs> As we were saying, yeah, like the middle segment of this is Vietnam. You know, you have the torture and the escape and then him hanging out in Saigon waiting to be deployed where he sees Christopher Walken and what he's been getting up to but can't wrangle him. Uh, And then De Niro's you can't go home chapter where, you know, he has the taxi driver just uh, mob right past his welcome party because that's a bit too much. And, you know, maybe it had been done before, but I feel like that establishes something that, you know, has been done in so many wars 
horror movies, but always feels kind of true. Like this in American Sniper, you know, when he goes home, mm-hmm. I think the second time, and he's just chilling at the bar, and his wife's just like, where, where are you, man? It's I'm not like, the yeah, same. It's not the same. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's uh, really no sad, even though you can see that he's clearly trying, like watching him like reignite like the rituals that we spent the first like hour of the movie setting up. Like when he first, he misses mm-hmm. the party, but he goes up to his two friends and he like jumps on them and wraps his arms around them like he's he's so stoked and he's so happy but there's something like there's this weird element to it where like he's clearly trying to force it and then he's talking about you know like yeah. their facial hair everyone's kind of acting like a little awkward no one knows exactly you know like what to say yeah uh, the the steel mill fire imagery that are that's repeated from the very beginning obviously takes on a very different image when you've seen a flamethrower being used in combat, you know, uh, seeing those images of them doing whatever you do at a steel mill. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And yeah, everything just obviously has a different tinge to it with De Niro walking around, not in, not in like combat uniform, but whatever the, the suit version of in uniform is. (laughs) Uh, He's trying to get free pancakes at IHOP or something like that. Walking around like that. Well, that, that that scene where he goes bowling and he gets to be like the version of the green beret that they saw at the beginning of the film where they're all, you know, ha- you know, getting excited and getting drunk and they're going to war the next day. And that dude is just like, like, fuck off, like, stay away from me. And then De Niro finds himself in that same moment when they're all bowling and, um, you know, Meryl, Meryl Streep's just she's she's throwing the ball down the lane. And De Niro, they, they think they even try to, like, hand him a drink and he's just like, no, I don't even want to drink anymore. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think the bartender offers him a free drink, and he like turns to the bartender, says, "No, thank you." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and like the, it's it's very sad when he comes back. Obviously, another great mirror shot is when him and Meryl Streep do finally decide to spend a night together to comfort each other. You know, uh, they can't do it at her house, so they go to a motel, and you get this like long shot, and then it pans to the side. Uh, and it just keeps panning around and you think it's the thing where it's like kind of giving them their privacy you're <laughs> supposed to imagine what they're doing or whatever. But then when it pans fully around, we're in like almost medium close up of them in the bed and you realize the first image uh, was a mirror and it's been like a 180 degree m- movement. And that camera movement is just astonishing. I had to run it back twice. <laughs> this is a three hour movie. Multiple times I did pause it to rewind to rewatch certain scenes because the camera work and editing is that good. I love De Niro and Streep's relationship in like the third in this movie because it is just pure disconnection. But, you know, of course, Streep is craving just for any semblance, you know, of, you know, uh, Nick or anything like that, or just, you know, just any comfort in general. And De Niro just being completely unable to provide that even for himself is just a, yeah, a little devastating rest. The war, the war affected people. It came back different. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, good stuff. And then, of course, we get that mirrored uh, hunting scene that, of course, has the different outcome. This hunting scene also, you have more shots of the other guys dicking around, shooting their rifles. Very irresponsibly, I got to say. There are some dangerous shots taken. Just like De Niro uh, said at the beginning of the movie, I don't want to hunt with these guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he showed why. 
<laughs> he fucking hates those guys. It's so funny. Absolutely. <laughs> the only like, boys in town, though. <laughs> exactly. That's the small town was. Go over to the next town. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like you can't make, you know, these friends don't really reflect uh, what I want to do or people I actually like, but, you know, it's either this or nothing, so... Fuck it. <laughs> De Niro then gets a hold of Stevie, who's in a hospital. Uh, he's a double amputee now, and he has been receiving, as he says, socks from his wife, which is also just a hilarious gift to give someone without legs. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they are socks full of money, uh, and it's not from his wife. It's his wife was doing Walken. a bit for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's like, you jack off into him. Exactly. Oh. Oh. Uh, 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 uh. So Michael assumes that they're coming from Saigon, uh, and Christopher Walken's like supporting him with card money or whatever. Yeah, I mean it's impressive just how many times he's done Russian roulette and yeah. not domed himself before Bobby De Niro hops over. Exactly, but he doesn't recognize De Niro at all. Uh, so is, well, I mean, I think it's like a ref, like just I, refusing to face him, kind of, because like he has been sending the money, and then he does cut undo, cut underneath that surface right before he pulls the trigger. Uh, the last time, of course, when he remembers the phrase, just one shot. Uh, mm-hmm. but De Niro going back to get his boy, just walking around with fat wads of cash, <laughs> uh, just throwing at it anyone who will take it. Uh, I, I really love that sequence of him going back for walk-in before the final Russian roulette showdown in which they go, you know, two rounds and walking on the fourth shot finally pulls one that's loaded. Uh, and it's, uh, it's tragic. It's, it's honestly just like, I don't know. It's so raw when De Niro just runs over and just like cradles his head and is just screaming. Uh, just absolutely. Oh, and the, no the blood like there. squirting out of the like bullet oh. wound and everything, and him trying to like put it back in almost. Yeah. <laughs> trying to like oh, cover God. it up. Yeah, he yeah. Imme- that's his first instinct is to cover the wound, which is yeah. just like, oh, you're putting your hand right on. Uh. Uh, and the way that blood gushes in this movie is disgusting. There's some like squirting in this. I, I love too the way that they kind of set up like how the image and the severity of just like the idea of a gun has changed to him too. Like that moment where his friends are messing around with the gun and one dude, he walks in on one friend pointing a gun at the other one and he takes it from him and he's like, what the fuck are you doing? Like he's reminded, obviously, of the of the torture sequence. But then when he points the gun at his friend's head, and I can't remember, does it, I can't because uh, does he put one in the chamber? Yeah, yeah, no, and he yeah. forces Russian roulette he on him. He forces Russian roulette on Kazal. And yeah, and he Kazal almost wins. fucking pops his head off, dude. That's that's psycho yeah. shit. <laughs> and then he just runs outside and chucks the pistol as far as he can. Yeah, oh, what a great scene. Uh, that scene is like the most psycho shit ever like, <laughs> jesus christ and yeah that's the one where they had one bullet actually in the chamber despite the fact that you know they still checked before every take that it wasn't that one yeah uh, but they still yeah no reason for that whatever <laughs> i, I should have showed up Chimino's set and did what De Niro did to john Cazal for playing with guns like that <laughs> um, exactly I, I think you know what makes Poor John Cazale died of cancer. Like, he was dying of cancer while he made this movie. <laughs> uh, it was just like, yeah, what if that guy died with a gun instead? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I don't know about that. But 
No. Well, uh, no, he he was diagnosed before, like uh, yeah. you know, uh, Streep. Oh no, I mean this is you know Wikipedia tier anecdote. Uh, but Streep apparently was cast because she wanted to be with Kazal after he was diagnosed because they were uh, uh, engaged or married. Oh wow, I forgot if they were married or just engaged. But Streep initially took the role to be with Kazal after he'd been diagnosed with lung cancer. Oh, Jesus. that's that's yeah. sweet. Um. <laughs> What do you call? It? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, what makes Walk and Steph much more tragic is that, and like even uh, what's the other guy's name, Stephen? Like you know him being you know losing the limbs is that uh, De Niro is by out of all three definitely has like the least to live for. You know what I mean? Like least on the <laughs> on the horizon, and like definitely hates fucking life even before Vietnam goes off and then he just has to kind of deal with him like being like him being really good during wartime and not having any use to normal society whatsoever not even being a pleasant you know wallflower he can't even do that right <laughs> christopher walken's blood is gushing all over the place and then we go back for the funeral uh, and by the way, when De Niro goes back, I do like that he links up again with that uh, that French guy uh, who who's the, like the liaison into the underworld here, the OG colonist. Uh, but it, then we go back for the funeral and, uh, you know, Vietnam as a war ends with Christopher Walken shooting himself in the head and an ABC journalist on TV live from an attack ship in the South China Sea saying that the U.S. has pulled out finally, <laughs> uh, which is just like, oh, my God, such a ridiculous image. Just like, I don't know. It, it's weird also to see the television just like in the middle of this wide screen uh in, in the middle of the scope image and the focus of that and it's like yeah vietnam's over we did it let's sing god bless america now mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so harsh and like i uh, also to add on to it being just like you know someone from the news reporting it uh the last shot of this it, it looks like in between an Edward Hopper painting and a Budweiser commercial. <laughs> that fucking still frame of them clinking mugs at the end. <laughs> Just ridiculous. Uh, one of the most, like, th there's a surface level reading of it, sure. Everyone's back together and they're bonding as Americans or whatever. Uh, but I think that's such a complicated image to end this film on. Yeah. Uh, really one of my favorite final images I can think of off the top of my head is yeah. the God bless America. The part that rubbed you the wrong way, Malcolm. Yeah. I think, what? I think the image is good. I think your, your comment on the image too, Eddie is very, very funny and intelligent, but um, what do you call it? Yeah. Well, I just, them you. singing God bless America just was, I don't, I don't it's know. Over I, the top. It's Absolutely. yeah. It just, I don't know. It was too much. It was over the top. Look, it do felt I wish like they just hummed it. Sure. <laughs> I, I it's a good it for the first half yeah it's a good movie otherwise i just thought that part was just a little bit off and it unfortunately happened at the very end also that that last shot the shot itself the visual of it as a uh, you know chimino we've you know called his compositions very painterly that one was inspired by the dogs playing poker painting you know um <laughs> <laughs> But what I said earlier also about like uh, that that shot being a mix of, you know, a painting and a Budweiser commercial, it's like, yeah, that's his background. He studied painting and he worked in advertising. 
And it's that push and pull of artistry and working in a commercial industry like Hollywood that absolutely devastates his career, you know, uh, as we'll see on next week's episode. <laughs> but J- JT, how do you feel about like the way that this kind of wraps up the the funeral, the the last scene, making some scrambled eggs and singing um, God bless? Yeah, the God bless. I mean, all of this stuff, like as I was saying earlier, that is like moments that are like really big or like over the top really like hitting the nail on the head with that is they don't feel like out of place because other movies that try to have these like sweeping gestures where it's like see this is where the meaning is you're supposed to understand that they don't have a level of like uh clarity of character and specificity specificity in setting that this does it's like them singing god bless america I think has like a, a weird muddled tone to it because that is something that I feel like a lot of, I don't know, middle America, like they're, they like, it's sad for them as well. But I think they're like, they're confused just as much about doing that. And I don't know. It hits those points very hard with a lot of beautiful images as well that make this a uh, very strong, powerful and coherent text. Uh, Malcolm, any final thoughts on this movie outside of your hatred for the final act? Uh, final act. Now we're now we're stretching it out a pretty long. <laughs> we're talking about five seconds in a movie. Um, no, I mean Deer Hunter's great. Uh, I kind of like the contrast of his first two movies because I, I, of course, there's obviously similarities to him, but I, I think um, him kind of taking this this epic. Uh, structure, you know, also kind of, you know, doing a prestige film, but, you know, not, not really going, it just coincidentally a prestige film. It got prestige, but, you know, he's willing to get ugly. You're swimming with the rats and all that stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to check out Heaven's Gate, you know, after seeing this, which was kind of an epic, I'm trying to double, I'm, I'm willing to double down on the Chimino, you know, length, epicness, all that shit. I want to see him go full hog, and it seems like Heaven's Gate was his uh, his big swing in financial miss, but I bet it's artistically sound. Yeah, well, and it, 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 it's it's worth noting too that he didn't have like even though it, now it's like a classic, but like when he was making it, like they wanted to cut it down to like two hours and twenty minutes, and um, the Universal execs were really pissed off about the uh, God Bless America thing because they thought it was anti-American. Like he he uh-huh. had trouble getting some of the stuff he got into the movie that that it feels basic now, but he had trouble just getting some of that stuff even into the movie, and I I, I think that's the stuff that kind of gives it a little bit because like jt was pointing out that that doesn't kind of have some of the same sweep that a lot of other movies in this sort of category do but i do think it does have a bit of that feeling of like american myth a little bit of that sort of like there there is a little bit of an epic quality there to some of the length even though you know it is closer in probably construction to something a little bit more you know sort of like 40 and about that sort of like individual moral and emotional tragedy and devastation it makes a little bit of that like new hollywood sense of just god unflinching brutality when it comes to the actual subject matter itself and but I, but i think ultimately by the time you get to the end of the movie you really do feel a sense of really painful 
disillusionment and something that they feel as well, both about the traditional sort of like American bonds about the military, but also I think too about, you know, some of the relationships that they, they have to each other. The fact that this opens at a celebration of relationship at a wedding and ends at a funeral, I think is very um, telling. Absolutely. One more point I wanted to make about this before we wrap up. Uh, I mentioned that uh, the Vietnam War as depicted in this film ends with a TV broadcast from the South China Sea, you know, a U.S. military ship with media on board, maybe 30 years later or so, because I'm putting this in the canon. You know, this is one of the great films, not just one of the great films, but like uh, in terms of American film history, this definitely has a spot in telling the story, you know, the Mm -hmm. grand narrative. And uh, another one that, you know, a much lesser film that is in that grand narrative as well picks up there 30 years later when Bruce Willis is introduced in Armageddon while he's <laughs> drilling into that same South China Sea and hitting golf balls at Greenpeace protesters. You know, where was America <laughs> then and now? Uh, or really then and then. But I, I think in terms of like the the grand narrative of american cinema uh, i i just had to bring it back to armageddon for that very brief parallel <laughs> uh but the more apt comparison i guess is as josh said mm-hmm. both the unflinching brutality and kind of revisionism <laughs> of new hollywood and that kind of fordian uh moral questioning and that relationship of moral questioning with american history uh even if the new hollywood guys are quote unquote more progressive than ford uh but none of them could freaking compose a shot if you ask me <laughs> i'm just kidding we just we we, we like to have fun around here you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> hey some of those guys some of those guys couldn't compose a shot but i'm not going to name names on this week's extended <laughs> uh, uh, uh. clip <laughs> um and I called this an extended clip. It's not. It's not. This is chapter one of season two of Bank Check. And it's it's been a great one. I, I, I'm so glad that Josh joined us. Uh, Josh, a- anything you want to tell the listeners? Any, anywhere that they can find you? I mean, they all follow you, but anywhere else they can find you <laughs> online? Yeah, no, you got you guys know the drill. You guys know the drill. You don't need to hear anything else from me. I'm just glad that my first episode of Bank Check uh, very much mirrored the filmmaker we're talking about and went lo- historically long. <laughs> yeah, I think the longest Bank Check we did was like a little over an hour for the last Fairly one. I think most of the Fairly ones were over an hour, but the last one was like five movies and a ranking segment yeah. and it was much shorter than this. <laughs> but, you know, I'm very excited to listen to uh, the Heaven's Gate conversation, which should be about four hours long. <laughs> I can't it wait to watch would it. would be appropriate because we're also doing Year of the Dragon on that episode. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh uh, that'll be next week's chapter of Bank <laughs> Check. Uh, any final words from the boys? Go follow Josh on social media. Run them numbers up. Let's get those numbers up. Get it at the Josh L. <laughs> um, I think we've had a lot of fun tonight uh, talking uh, about the troops, America. But uh, I just think, hey, throw them a little support too. <laughs> I, I denounce that. There is no support to be shown to the troops. If you support the troops, unsubscribe from the Patreon. And that is all I'm going to say goodnight. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Twitter, that's what's actually true.
Wait, more people are talking about smoking weed on Twitter than Brett Favre? Yeah, just at any given random time. Just You could plug and play any subject like that. And I just be don't like, think that's true for all four times that Brett Favre retired. There was more Brett Favre talk true. than weed talk on Twitter. But what, what's there's he like up a, to? There's a tweet with weed in it like every like five seconds. Yeah, yeah, that's what <laughs> I'm saying. A tweet with weed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess ever-trending topics maybe just stay there. But I guess people tweeted about Trump every second for yeah. the last four years, Sometimes five years pretty much. all you got are fat tits and a bag of weed and that. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Are you just searching latest I, I, weed? Yeah, yeah, latest weed tweets. This, yes. is, this might be the new way to use Twitter is to search a topic. <laughs> Fuck your timeline. Just go latest. Yeah. I I honestly use the search function no, quite I a bit. It's yeah. very funny. Uh, you, you find some very good tweets that I've learned not to favorite because I get fave snitched. Uh, yeah. People don't dig into my likes or anything, but it pops up on the timeline if... You know, yeah. uh, depending on what version Wait, of Twitter you're using, fave snitched. Before? Well, not like in a not in like a call I've been out. Called way. out? No, 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 no. Just like you know, in a DM, someone's like, "Come on, man!" And it's like me liking <laughs> something just very silly that I shouldn't <laughs> be liking publicly. Uh, that's <laughs> I hate that shit. Yeah, um, but you know, we're here. We're talking about digital media. We're not going into the the time machine to talk about Michael Cimino yet. We're still debunking the myths. <laughs> I, are we recording? I guess now. Yeah, we're recording. We're recording the number one media studies podcast <laughs> extended clip after hours bank check season two, chapter two. Um, this chapter covers Heaven's Gate and Year of the Dragon, but I'm kind of stuck on that. So, I guess would weed just never trend if people are tweeting it every five seconds? Well, see, that's the hypocrisy of the media, right? It's because uh, you they know don't cover the real trending topics the re- that yeah, exactly. people care about. I couldn't have said it better myself, <laughs> because you know it's like some news comes up. I saw I don't know Brett Favre's name come up, and it's like a thousand tweets about him. I don't even know what the fuck he's done, you know, recently. But I was, I was like, I had a thought. It's like I bet more people are just saying like I'm smoking weed on Twitter. You know what I mean? People Weed, are just being sex like, and PlayStation. Exactly. That's what's on people's minds. That should that should would be trending all the time. It should be a truthful list of what is being talked about the most rather than the latest I don't know. Yeah, the bullshit the media wants you to talk yeah. about. Yeah. Some fucking raid or I don't I don't know. Fucking care. spin zone. <laughs> it's all spin zone, man. But yeah, I don't no, I think you do bring up a good point. Um, especially about like people just tweeting that they're smoking weed. <laughs> <laughs> Which is definitely something people tweet about every five seconds. <laughs> Honestly, I should just I should every just, time. I, yeah, I should just tweet every time I go to pack a bowl. <laughs> smoking, weed. smoking weed. That, that I think I might expose myself to. Yeah. That. No, yeah, I can't put myself out there like that. I would get called out immediately. <laughs> Y'all still follow this addict? <laughs> Follow shaming addicts. <laughs> follow shaming you for how much you know weed you smoke. <laughs> you know he's hooked on heroin, right? You don't want to follow him. Yeah, isn't that why people are bad at Ariel Pink because of his drug use? <laughs> yeah, he was smoking on that. <laughs> smoking on that forty-five pack or something. Yeah. Oh boy. Well, we should get into bank check though. Yeah. Uh, Heaven's Gate is the next. You know, uh, the next journey in Chimino. And uh, 
I don't know. It's the film that sunk New Hollywood. It bankrupt the studio. It's, you know, we talked about the deer hunter last week, how it was like, whatever, five days into the shoot, they were four days over schedule or whatever that number breakdown was. And uh, this is kind of the bad version of that where it doesn't come together for a version that the studio feels comfortable releasing. It doesn't win over the hearts of the viewers, despite the very rough content and long runtime. Uh, no, this was a film that was butchered in its release. It was released, immediately pulled, and then re-released in a very short, very truncated, uh, you know, not director's cut form. <laughs> and uh, then really wasn't screened again until it was shown on TV, like decades later. This was just like, oh, Heaven's Gate? Yeah, that's the bad movie that sunk a studio. You know, that's all it was. So yeah, I mean, you know, of course we got we have the lens of you know uh, of history to look back on. You know, we aren't in this moment, but it's like you know, same with Godfather Three. It's like, how do people think these movies are so bad? Of course, it's like I guess people kind of tied it to like films financial, um, uh, its financial work it did at the time. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, people people, people uh, tend to root for films or even you know. Uh, praise films for how much money they made the executive producer yeah which does not feel like any sort of like proper evaluation of art and that might be a very obvious point to make but it's kind of ridiculous how much people are affected by that you know and i mean i feel like in watching this like i could definitely like see things that like I don't know from a different perspective why people would hate it because like I mean especially the long cut like it does go off into a lot of places but that's part of the joy of it. No, yeah. So I get I guess my idea you said it was like released kind of in a butchered version like a shortened yeah. version. Maybe that maybe that's bad. Although it's just, you know, it's a good movie regardless I I I'd imagine, but Yeah, I mean it feels like it's hard to cut an hour out of the movie True. and make it make sense, but it is a slow movie that you probably could cut an hour out of and still kind of make it make sense. Uh I mean for God's sake, Isabel Huppert isn't even introduced until like the 70 minute mark <laughs> and she's like the third build character. But what is Heaven's Gate? It's a western um and it's kind of like so many revisionist westerns were, it's set toward the end of the Old West. And Cowboys and Indians has become Cowboys and Immigrants. And there are just these roving hordes of Russian immigrants and other groups uh, who are just trekking through. And, you know, there were historically a lot of disputes in, like, the homesteaders and, uh, you know, migrants and stuff like that, which I'm not entirely read up on. But apparently also most of this film is invented for conflict. But I mean, I think it like it definitely takes like like thematic truth in like the history yeah. of like American. Absolutely. Uh, empire. I mean, if Chimino is changing things, it's to make more of a point, obviously. Uh, you know, characters are saying things throughout this movie. Like it's getting hard to be poor in this country. The country wasn't even formed yet in this movie. <laughs> like yeah. the country is so young and still expanding. I feel like 
uh, it is, you know, through and through a revisionist film and maybe people aren't ready for a revisionist Western to that extent. Even though I think in the seventies, we see a lot of very harsh revisionist Westerns, whether they're Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood's or even Robert Altman's, you know, true. You know, I guess maybe, um, maybe why people didn't attach to it so much. I mean, like, like you said, it takes a while to get going. We don't see who pair 70 minutes, uh, into the movie and it, it revels in kind of like these small, maybe insignificant seeming moments, you know, you know, if Samino's, you know, long takes and stuff like that, that maybe, you know, people just weren't interested in. Maybe they wanted more gunplay, you know, something like that. They yeah. Rourke was in it. They wanted some cool gun spinning, you know, <laughs> but it is, I, I feel like this kind of, I don't know, especially the beginning, there's kind of like this immersive quality to his work. Well, he'll have a lot of uh, like non-dialogue moments that just really immerse you into like the flow of the society i mean even um when he's getting off that train after kind of the, the college scene that they show before you know it shows kind of like the class difference in like the hordes of migrants walking one way and him just walking another way to his his carriage that he owns it's just i don't know just very striking uh you know visual metaphors right mm. out the bat and you say he and we should get into briefly what the film's about and it is a three and a half hour movie that you can c- kind of describe in a one-liner it's like i don't know this guy uh first of all same last name as me this guy james averill which hey i might have one of those in my family <laughs> uh he is a harvard grad an elite uh, who is, you know, homesteading. And uh, he, he finds out that the local association is going to pay, uh, you know, all these fellow whites who have been around for, I don't know, probably not that long. They're going to pay them $5 a day to basically just exterminate all of the immigrants uh, that are in the area on the basis of them bringing what are uh, what's considered anarchy and stealing and thus uh, is the beginning of the american concept of law and order basically <laughs> like he's painting with a very broad stroke with this story uh and maybe that's what people took offense to was like the revision the amount of revisionism and how he can mount such a very specific political argument about the formation of america as poor immigrants who were beaten down even further by the white people who barely beat them there uh but it's a pretty effective one for me i don't know i found this quite uh quite a moving film in its message alongside obviously just being one of the most beautiful films of its era no yeah the the visual style in here you know i mean you see this in all of his movies even you know in like year of the dragon somewhere maybe you'd expect it a little less but it's just like you know he gets the painter um comparison a lot and it's just because i feel like his his frames are always just active with either some sort of movement or some sort of background thing going on or just you know the framing it's just everything's so de- deliberate and so grand and, f- and fits this kind of epic uh, movie scale. I think with this episode, this set of films, the motion is so much more important than in his first two films. Mm-hmm. His movement in these films has improved so much. His sense of movement with the camera in Year of the Dragon, we'll get to it. There's some like insane, I mean, it's his best action in Year of the Dragon. He, he's not a particularly strong and kinetic action filmmaker in his first three films, despite being competent enough to shoot action. Uh, but in this one, it feels like 
the goal of Kiristami's 24 frames where he's like bringing paintings into motion almost, or at least the first image of Kiristami's 24 frames, which is a painting. The other ones being uh, photographs, but there's a couple shots in this that feel like maybe in his first two movies, they would have been still shots, but just the slow moving toward a subject while still keeping uh, it in perfect focus and the background in that perfect soft focus uh, him and Zygmunt just achieve like some incredible images some of the most like beautiful breathtaking stuff kind of proto Malik I guess if I had to make a comparison I, I guess maybe somewhat like Tarkovsky uh, it, just in terms of like the weight of the camera in it's like yeah. kind of floating movements I mean, right from the beginning, you have, like, these sort of beautiful sweeping through, like, the graduation ceremony, which is something that, like, feels, I I mean, definitely, I would imagine, probably part that got cut because it does meander, but you just get this luxurious moment of, like, celebration there, and also it really hits home the point of that Christopherson's character is a part of this elite class, Mm. and I, again with his previous work, I love the perspective that he takes on in this because it's just that of someone who's like from the elite style background, trying to like muck it with like poor people and like earnestly trying to do like what he thinks is good, but just sort of realizing like that he can't. And it's Mm. sort of just so tied to his own class standing. Yeah. The sequence that it opens on in Harvard is so elegant and like, almost claustrophobic like being in that hall where everyone's just shouting and is it john john hurt's character that gives the speech uh where he's just like roasting them in old-timey fashion where it's like i guess that's a good bird (laughs) that was my same reaction i was like what the fuck is he talking yeah dude i i was so scared that everyone in this movie was going to talk like that and i was like maybe that's why people don't like this movie john hurt has the ugliest fucking hair in this like his look at the beginning is just i it's like it's like uh clifford yeah (laughs) is what he looks like that's so funny that literally came like right to my mind right before you yeah i'm glad glad you said that john hurt plays william c irvine a classmate uh of christopherson's christopherson plays the main character jim averill uh and they later meet at this small town in is it in wyoming i believe Yeah, yeah 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 and uh so the time lapse between that Harvard graduation and the image of Christopherson coming in on the train feels so freeing. I mean, that like lovely shadowy shot of Christopherson on the train approaching the town where it's like, you could see dust particles floating in the air and it's just such a vivid shot uh, in the movement of the train. It, I don't know. It just feels so like freeing in comparison to that stuffy elite society that was on display for the first 20 minutes or so. No, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, I, I love what you're talking about, like the sunlight coming, that that um, the train window, that's revisited a lot, and I love kind of like the harsh sunlight pouring into like every window it seems like it can in this movie. I mean, it just in- increases just the picturesque quality of it. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I can't go on enough about how gorgeous the scope cinematography is and how... We talked so much about the painterly influence and how here he's, you know, putting it into motion and using real life textures to such a degree. We'll get to the big battle toward the end, but 
he apparently installed this insane like irrigation system under a ditch because they were tearing up the field so much in rehearsal that they couldn't have grass on there. So he installed this irrigation system with like underground watering so that they could have perfectly green grass uh, to contrast the red blood during those action scenes when people would fall down. Damn. But it's like that sets you back <laughs> pretty far. I mean, John Hurt, like at first, apparently Chimino wasn't letting actors go do other stuff while he had them just fucking chilling. <laughs> so uh, like Bridges, uh, Jeff Bridges, who's in this film uh, and Chris Christopherson just like collabed on some country jams and we're just like <laughs> making music the whole time, I guess. And then John Hurt finally was able to get out of there and he went and made the elephant man and then came back. Interesting. So, you know, that, that the story about the irrigation, I think that's what that caused the California water crisis problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you know, as great as this movie is, is it worth it? It might be. It might be. Some of those images, <laughs> yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty damn yeah. nice. I was rewatching like a little bit of the opening today, um, and there's like we talk about that big like march of immigrants there, and mm. there's a part where they're just like going into like like more dust is created mm. by the people at the front of the line, and they're just disappearing <laughs> into dust. Into dust. It's Ugh. so beautiful. God, I mean, there's so much like visual metaphor to be drawn that might be kind of heavy handed. But at the same time, I don't know. There's like it's again that mix of an image speaking for itself and montage, though. Like he is he is creating these huge, meaningful shots, but he's also stitching together scenes that are built out of the combination of images. And I feel like he's developing that sense more and more with every picture or sorry, with every movie coming in as a painter, you know, and developing that sense of montage. To go on about how beautiful the film is, um, sometimes we throw it to our friends on here, sometimes we throw it to people like Armand White, you know, read from a little bit of him. Uh, I'm going to throw, you know, a classy old gent, one of the most esteemed film critics of all time on this film. Roger Ebert. Ooh. <laughs> the Ebs? All right. He begins his review with, we begin with a fundamental question. Why is Heaven's Gate so painful and unpleasant to look at? Oh. I'm not referring to its content, but to its actual visual texture. This is one of the ugliest films I have ever seen. Its director, Michael Cimino, opens his story at Harvard and continues it in Montana and closes it abroad, a ship. Yeah. And yet a grim industrial pal hangs, hangs low over everything. There are clouds and billows of dirty yellow smoke in every shot. It could possibly justify it. And when he runs out of smoke, he gives us fog and such incredible amounts of dust that there are whole scenes where we can barely see anything. So why isn't this like a five star review? Why is this what a, a fucking loser? Yeah, why is this a one and a half star review? I don't get it. That's that's like dumber than his like most dumb review. Like yeah, it's like there's no, literally no justification for this. Like how is that ugly? There's dust in the yeah. shot. <laughs> I'm sorry, this movie's too dusty. I I sneezed. Yeah, it made oh, there's me sneeze. Yeah. My allergies. <laughs> yeah, it was just like oh, there's too many clouds in this picture. <laughs> it looks bad. I mean, watching an Ozu movie. <laughs> just like, yeah, we get it, man. You yeah. like clouds. He must not be much of a noir fan or yeah. something like you know. God. <laughs> anyway, 
so we continue to explore this town. We go cockfighting with Jeff Bridges in an incredible scene where I'm sure cocks were probably harmed. This film also did face quite a bit of protest from animal rights activists, as it probably should have. The deer hunter, we know that they tranked the deer, but in this one, there is apparently some brutality uh, that actually happened to animals that is shown on screen. Uh, so, you know, vegan alert. Yeah, it must be. The, I can't think of any. It's just the cockfighting, right? Like and the horses. The horses. They shoot horses. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> Don't yeah, they? Yeah. <laughs> it's a long movie. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. There's a lot of things that happen in this movie that you kind of forget about. Uh, the opening kill, though, before we even know what's actually happening, though, is played almost like spaghetti western. It's like silent and like, uh, well, the Russian family are talking to each other. But before the association talks about this kill list, even we see this small family of immigrants uh, just like separating raw beef or something like that, something gross in their tent. And uh, then you just see like the silhouette of a cowboy approach and he just shoots the man of the family and rides away. And it's like almost cartoonish violence, but it's also like very intense. I don't know. (laughs) Well, it's very stylized, too, like the way how he shoots through the cloth and yeah. you look at it. And then I like how when he rides away, that transitions into the other scene with mm. the the immigrants and whatnot. And, you know, Walken, that's played, that character is played by Christopher Walken. Um, and Walken in these two Sermino movies uh, have like kind of, it's kind of a tone I haven't really seen from him. Maybe I need to check more of his works, but he plays like these very like... Um, I don't know. This is more second half of the Deer Hunter, of course, more than yeah. the first, but kind of like these kind of gaunt, very self-serious men. Yeah. That like, you know, his, of course, you know, in later his career, he kind of gets memefied, but even in his like 90s performances, he seems to, I don't know, be a little looser. You know, it's, it's interesting to see him so tightly wound in these movies. Yeah. I mean, this feels like the reverse of his performance in the Deer Hunter yeah. where he's like, starts off in this as like very cold and detached and then sort of humanizes as he goes along into his death. But absolutely. His name in this movie is Nathan champion, which is also very (laughs) funny. So yeah, we get these long scenes kind of exploring every part of the town. Um, You know, you have uh, Jim reuniting with John Hurt's character after that meeting about killing all the immigrants, you know, and they're catching up over this game of pool. Uh, And I don't know, just the casual manner which uh, Chimino shoots that pool scene because they are not actually playing a game. He's just kind of poking around uh, like an eyes wide shut. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. It adds such a great atmosphere. I mean, it's a very basic thing to add, you know, quote unquote work to what a character is doing in addition to them just having a conversation in this instance, it's them kind of lounging uh, and playing pool. But I don't know. I don't Something about that makes their reunion so bitter oh, yeah. uh, of just those striking of pool balls while they're talking. It's really, really well done. No, yeah. Chimino does that a lot in this movie. I know it's kind of like the narrative arcs of scenes, like uh, the pool scene comes to mind or maybe, where Christofferson and Hupera are uh, at that, you know, beautiful river, all those river shots. And it's like, he'll start a scene out, you know, almost with pure bliss, you know, the bliss of catching up with the old friend and remembering the good times or uh, seeing your girlfriend naked at a, <laughs> at a beautiful river. And then the, the, you know, the reality of the situation sets in and then they have to talk about it. And the mm-hmm. scene turns very sour and kind of grim. Yeah. 
Um, so when Christofferson first challenges this notion, you know, these people just think he's like a class traitor, but the reverse way, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. uh, like he even says, I'm a victim of our class, you know, <laughs> it's the rich man's burden to help the poor. Yeah. Uh, but the other people don't recognize that. And that framework is set out so early on. And this film just takes such sweet time to execute it. You know, he finds out about this 50 minutes in. He doesn't tell the immigrants until two hours and 20 minutes in that there is a roving squad of like militia militia guys that are going to kill them for money. You know, mm. <laughs> like he, he takes so long to weigh the options and to weigh the moral ramifications of what he and what his country are doing. Also, just kind of like, you know, his his position in, in terms of class, like how you know, rich people see him as a class trader where it's even like, I don't know, some, some aspects of his relationship with Huppert are just broken because he doesn't, you know, he's too rich to understand certain things or whatever. I mean, I, I, I think there's like a certain scene where like, uh, Christopherson's, you know, he really wants Huppert to leave, you know, before the roving, uh, death squad comes to town and, you know, she's like, well, I can't just drop, you know, everything I've ever had and just leave. And Christopherson's like, Chris, Christopherson's, you know, so I'll get you new stuff. She's like, this is all like I've ever had. Like yeah. there's sentimental value to all this, you know, uh, you know, stuff that's not financially valuable. So a little over an hour in after uh, Christopherson finds out what's going on in that town, he returns home to Huppert, who we meet uh, very briefly on dresses. <laughs> uh and yeah, I mean, who paired Christopherson's relationship is kind of disaffected. I mean, she obviously her English isn't amazing. Uh, and so her her line deliveries are a little bit stilted. Uh, but she's really quite good here and can express a lot with her face. And it's nice to see like the contrast in her behavior between how she is with Christofferson and Walken as well. Like I feel yeah. like with Walken, like you get the sense definitely that she is more infatuated with him and that their relationship is more like, like, I mean, while you get, you see a lot of Christofferson and her like sort of playing around, uh, it's more more serious and dependable. Yeah, yeah. Christopherson like refuses to compliment her or something. Like <laughs> that. Very like funny principle or male just, soul. Like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> I will not compliment a woman. <laughs> hey man, been living that way for. Well, what does Huppert do? She works at a uh, a house full of ladies of the night. Christopherson, he's a woke king. He's okay with that. Yeah. He's not threatened by that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, we explore the the bordello, as it were, a little bit. We get there's one shot that was really funny of just like this huge Russian guy playing guitar in bed with like four ladies passed out or in his arms slash passed out, whatever. I don't know. Made me laugh. <laughs> just pleasant you yeah know? uh but it's just like you get that and you get like the beautiful shot of the smoke from the train enveloping john hurt and then you just start getting death squad kills and it's like yeah. oh geez this is fucking bleak <laughs> I, I love that visual motif kind of throughout yeah. the movie of kind of shimino like a scene will kind of end or you know even a shot will just kind of seem to have come to a conclusion it'll just hold it a little bit more to see like a, you know fog roll in or the steam of a train kind of, uh, you know, uh, encapsulate the frame. Very good stuff. Uh, also, uh, one thing that we get for quite a while is uh, when Huppert 
goes to chill with them at the uh, the roller rink. We get quite a quite a long scene of that like roller skating oh, stuff yeah. and like ro- roller skating fiddle player for a while, which is pretty cool. It's amazing. Uh, it's amazing. I honestly really love how long that goes on. And then even after everyone leaves, you get the little scene of Christopherson and who pair together and a very long shot of an empty dance floor uh, with them just like under like the door frame kind of not even all the way in yet some of the most beautiful images in this film are interiors surprisingly for a director whose landscape work has blown me away more than pretty much anyone else that i've seen recently yeah i love that like i mean the dancing and then the big ceremony at the beginning they just like those two feel like such nice direct links i mean aside from obviously commentary on like um, American Empire in this linking the deer hunter just like his love of Chimino's love of community and depicting like a very elaborate like setting like that really comes out in this it's like the natural next step that like after you see a little bit of the town in the periphery in deer hunter that like most of this movie is just like hanging out you get to experience mm. all of it and the communal aspect of immigrant groups in America in specific, mm-hmm. like in the the Russian wedding of the deer hunter, obviously. And then in this film, uh, and then, of course, in the next film with Year of the Dragon. And obviously, you know, people got mad at that film for having racist stereotypes and stuff like that. It, you know, we'll get to it. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like easy to draw a comparison of like, where America left those marginalized groups, how it treated them from beginning to end pretty much. No, yeah, it is, It is. you know, if someone saw only one Shamina movie and it was Year of the Dragon, you know, it is, <laughs> it is interesting how kind of that differs. I mean, it, it has the same through line, of course, of him telling like, um, like immigrant stories. And I think that's what, you know, recontextualizes and kind of softens it a little bit for me because... Chimino, he it is the perspective in which he chooses to view for America is from those viewpoints, and mm-hmm. I think that's a reason why a lot of these movies are so good. Absolutely. Also, um, also just to mention that roller rink scene. I mean, just the the kind of like the circular tracking shot of people um, going around the ring. I feel like he pulls that out a couple more times. Just yeah. these circular tracking shots that are just uh, you know. Just, I guess it's a common pleasure. It's kind of the fun you get when you're being dizzy. You just yeah. spin around and just. <laughs> I used to do that. I used to love that as a kid, just spinning uh, around and getting really dizzy. Just you watching uh, <laughs> your view pass by you, kind of yeah, left to right or whatever ex- way you're spinning. Exactly. Yeah. I'm glad Shamia could bring that pleasure no. back to yeah, me. Yeah, when I got an office chair when I was oh, a little kid, oh, oh, oh. sitting in one of those. Why do you think I switched chairs with Mal? <laughs> I, I, I love the swivel. Uh, but it relates to, you know, a lot of silent cinema has that like bit like the crowd. King V door has a lot of those shots with so many fucking people. And there's the kind of like overlaid uh, shots where it does kind of have that kaleidoscopic effect of people just shooting out in all directions. But it's not just people. It's like hordes of people. Yeah. And Chimino has access to so many fucking extras. There are <laughs> hundreds of extras in so many of these scenes. And he's able to work with huge crowds of actors so fucking well in this and in Year of the Dragon. Frankly, I was surprised with how many extras were in Year of the Dragon for it all being shot or almost all being shot on sound stages. Uh, but this one, they really packed in quite a few fucking people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess if you're making, you know, this this scale of a movie, you have to go all out. And yeah, exactly. United artists learn, you know, yeah. that artistic decision pays off. They got a great <laughs> movie. 
as a result. <laughs> uh, so three of the men from the association then, while uh, Isabel Huppert is by herself, they come in and, like, you know, slash her up and, like, rape her until Christofferson comes in, guns a-blazing, uh, and kicks off the action, finally. You know, fucking two hours and 45 minutes into this movie, finally we get a little action. Enough <laughs> <laughs> of these immigrant dances and slices of life. I mean, where's the gunplay? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it's really incredible. It leads to this crazy shootout where Isabel Huppert is doing like the big stunts on a horse while shooting. <laughs> like she jumps off a carriage uh, onto a horse at one point while it's moving. And I can't believe I saw her do that stunt in this movie. Like that was fucking ridiculous. I love the carriage. The carriage stuff is kind of going back a little bit, but like that one carriage scene where like she just brings the carriage in to show off to the rest of the town is one of the most crazy. hauling ass yeah hauling at just going super <laughs> fucking fast and it's like i don't know chimino i might be going too big brain on this but the way like chimino just hooks that camera onto the carriage is mm-hmm. like kind of like new pov of new technology you know who yeah, yeah. seeing seeing things in a whole different way she's zooming past you know her you know Im- fellow immigrants absolutely like dude yeah. no that's a very apt reading of yeah. it too and you know they're all just hollering the old men are hollering at her and the women are like what are you doing this fucking lady coming through like, yeah. it's, it's a very comical scene but it's also fucking like hardcore action it yeah. looks like she's gonna tip the carriage every time she turns and I have to say, like, they probably tipped that carriage, like, at some point uh, in the production, because there's a couple shots that look like there's no way it doesn't tip over. And then it doesn't, like, cut properly. Like, the next yeah. cut is on four wheels again. And it's like, uh, that's, that's pretty sus. You know, Chimino like to do it for real. So, yeah. Spreading misinformation. Carriages are not that safe. <laughs> exactly, dude. This is very, you know, this is a movie where people are just driving like fucking maniacs in carriages. I do not approve of this. And I think that's why people didn't like the movie <laughs> is the depiction, you know, Traffic it's too safety. unsafe. Yeah. <laughs> unsafe driving propaganda. <laughs> uh, so after uh, the shootout, Christofferson then tells the kind of, uh, de facto town hall that's gathered at the roller rink all about what's happening. And that's when they have a very productive town hall and they all like very concisely zero in on their immigrant group being marginalized economically and through like straight up ethnic cleansing as well. And so they just want to fucking kick their asses and it's awesome. And it, turns into full-on war for there where or from there rather where uh malcolm you talked about that like uh circle of huge people moving around then it comes back here in violence rather than an embrace where you have just a cavalcade of wagons kicking up dust where you get this overhead shot a few times that's so gorgeous where uh yeah the group is just standing in the middle firing at these wagons and it's just a fucking carousel of dust and death. It's beautiful. And the machines that they create, the the shields, it's just like, it's just a, I don't know, it's just something you don't see every day. It's, I like a good unusual weapon or, I don't know, war tool or something like that. They just build like a, a wall on wheels, basically, that they... Mm-hmm. They pull up and, you know, kind of center them around. And, yeah, when you say it turns into war, it's like they got grenades and shit like yeah, that. Dude. Like, we're getting <laughs> we could full-on explosions. It's crazy. 
Well, I mean, they bring in the the army at one point, the yeah. the private group that is trying to get all the immigrants just indiscriminately killed, like to back them up when uh, yeah. Christofferson's uh, fighting against them. Mm-hmm. So Jeff Bridges and Isabella Huppert end up dead, and we get uh, them kind of being the emotion. Oh, no, 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 dude. They they get shot in the war, and then you think everything's going to be fine, like they're about to escape. And then the lead of that guy, you know, the guy who's trying to kill all the, the yeah. army that was trying to kill all the immigrants, fucking Merck's who pair and uh, Bridges right in front of Christopherson. Oh, he pulls yeah. his guns out and nabs a couple of them. But yeah, literally just blown to pieces right in front of him, right when you think they're about to, you know, ride off into the sunset. Yeah, it's an incredible ending in that regard. I mean, like, I don't know, uh, because those giant overhead shots that show all those dead bodies like it has quite a bit of weight to it but yeah it's not until you get that kind of second the real punch is when it's the characters you've watched for three hours yeah. <laughs> you know uh it, it's not when the nameless uh guys that represent <laughs> the metaphor of the movie all die uh and then we end up in rhode island on a boat with Chris Christofferson after everyone is dead and he's back into high society. Yeah. And uh, he goes such a strange final scene where he goes back into the, the cabin of the boat and there's a woman in there. He sits with her for a minute. It's the woman from the beginning of the, his girlfriend. Yeah, from yeah, yeah, yeah. His elite girlfriend <laughs> sits with her for a minute, goes back out up uh, onto the deck. And that's the end of the movie. <laughs> it's just yeah. like... It's such a understated, uh, you know, back to reality for him, even though he doesn't have to live in reality. He's a rich guy. He can just live on a boat uh, or, you know, in Rhode Island with his boat. Yeah, but, you know, it's funny. I like Chimino. Um, I like the ending of that because, like, Chimino's highlighting elite mediocrity. You know what I mean? You know, these, of course, because, I mean, you know, the character of Christopherson, he's been through a lot, so maybe it's. A little more under, you know, understandable how disaffected he is, but it is just kind of like you know, kind of the stuffy, you know, unpleasant parts of rich society that rich people seem to submit themselves to, kind of the passiveness and you know, never really being satisfied. So, Christofferson's you know left to elite mediocrity, and he gets to stare off you know into the ocean on his big boat, but he doesn't like it. I mean, this might be a little bit too much of uh, of a personal read on the behalf of me supposing Chimino's identity and how he felt <laughs> about it. But, like, it definitely feels like, I mean, with the amount of effort and, like, time and how over budget and how dedicated he was to it, that this was insanely personal to Chimino because he has, like, a very similar story to the Christofferson character. He's, like, a third-generation like Italian American immigrant went like who the family was pretty well off at that point. He went to fucking Yale. And so he's sort of like, I I can understand why he has sympathy to the immigrant perspective because I'm sure he grew up and was raised with that, but also like lives a very elaborate lush elite life where he's like working in advertising, goes into screenwriting, goes into the movies. And like, you can sort of feel that, Christofferson's struggle of like trying to do more for immigrant communities and like what can you do and then ultimately like an impotence and like failure to actually do anything and just sort of fall back into class roles seems like it's something that Chimino is struggling with a lot because he's making a lot of movies that are really aware of 
American imperialism and racism and just like, I don't know, at the end of the day, they're movies. They can't change yeah. anything about it. He's very much aware of the problems, but he's a rich guy who can't really do dick all except mm-hmm. make movie, make a damn good movie about <laughs> <Yeah>. it. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny to think of that maybe in the context of the next movie, yeah. Year of the Dragon. Uh, <laughs> just the way that movie, not to get too ahead of ourselves. But. <laughs> I mean, we we can pretty much wrap up. Yeah. I wanted to get back to the animal stuff. Uh, yeah. I did, yeah. So the American Humane Association asserted that four horses were killed and many more injured during a battle scene. Uh, one was blown up by dynamite, and this footage appears in the final cut of the film. War as hell, man. What can I say? You want to know something grosser? Yeah. Uh, one assertion was that live horses were bled from the neck without giving them painkillers so that their blood could be collected and smeared upon the actors in a scene. Jesus. <laughs> Chimi- yeah, you know, it's funny. Shamito's great. Love his movies. But you hear some of the onset antics, and it's like, all right, come on, man. Because it's, <laughs> it's, you know, he gets... I guess people uh, put him under like film bro core mm-hmm. type stuff, I guess. And it is like, I guess the that's the bro part, the the relentless treatment of <laughs> <Yeah>. animals, <laughs> <laughs> and the the nudity too. But I don't I don't mind that. Yeah, I don't mind that. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. That part's fine by me. <laughs> it's all right. Kind of the back half of uh, Walking and Who Pairs relationship we didn't really talk oh, yeah. about. Um, but I love that scene where uh, Walken is so eager to show Huppert like the changes he made to his place, and like, and he shows the newspaper wall that he's built, you know, kind of impressing her, and it's, and how she kind of like looks around, and she's just like, oh yeah, this is, you know, this is nice, <laughs> and then it's like, yeah, you know, I, f- I feel like I've been in that exact situation before, but also it's just like the way that ends to where like Walken's place literally gets set on fire, and you see all those newspaper wallpaper. Uh, the newspaper wallpaper go up in flames. It's yeah. Just... I mean, also there's the contrast there with like how Christofferson is living in like big elaborate yeah. houses, like contrasted with Walken where it's like, it really makes you just like, I don't know, like Walken a little bit more <laughs> oh, because yeah. he's just like, he's a broke ass guy trying to, trying to put on the charms yeah. and like make it. He's a son of the soil. I mean, it, that that's, that's, it's addressed early on in the movie when he's, uh, you know, he, he finds, you know, some immigrant, stealing a cow and he you know lets him off without shooting him he's like you know you're you're one of us like you're a russian like us why aren't you trying to help us but you know it's the classic that goes on in america too you know yeah so it happens in heaven's gate (laughs) god heaven's gate's so fucking beautiful man i'm just like gazing at some of these screenshots i took and it it led me to one scene that we didn't really talk about i mean i think one of us mentioned it briefly but uh who parent christopherson's little date by the river yeah. uh, is just such a beautiful detour that so many movies wouldn't take. Uh, it's almost reminiscent of Bridges and uh, Eastwood's little date by the river in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, uh, where there, there's actually a very similar composition this time where the tree would be uh, where uh, Bridges and Eastwood were laying uh, is actually their carriage. And it's Christopherson and Huppert perched up against that. Uh, but then also Huppert in the water. Uh, just like a beautiful... There's this one shot that kind of reminds me of Godard in a way. Uh, the way he would shoot his widescreen stuff in the 60s. Like two or three things I know about her. Uh, the way that Huppert's elbows like take up the entire width of the frame. 
uh, I don't know, Chimino's precision in shooting the, the romantic flourishes feels as, uh, like, he pays so much attention to it in this movie, maybe more so than in the first two movies. Uh, other than if you count that as a romance in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. It's about on that level, I would say. Yeah. No, you know, it's... it's um, I think, you know, because I feel like precision, you know, precise is a, you know, a word that's used to describe a lot of di- a director's visual style. But I, I feel like it doesn't apply to anyone. Like, it applies more so to Chimino than any mm. other director i can think of because he just every single frame he makes he makes a point to just fill it with so much just you know you know whether it's movement information just he's he's really making the most out of each shot which is so it's so rare in american movies to see <laughs> yeah. that yeah like it is actually let me pull up this dave kerr quote about year of the dragon not to, okay no this will be our transition okay. if you are do you have anything else to say about heaven's gate jt are you down to go dragon i mode? think i'm down to go drag are you down mode. to go chinese mode because <laughs> <laughs> i don't I, 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 let's go to chinatown <laughs> if i remember this correctly he's not i don't think he's as hot on the movie as us but he makes a good point to where um he says chimino's talent is at least 50 percent hot air but that <laughs> but the part that is not his superb feel for movement across the panavision frame seems especially valuable Say what you will about his overstuffed, over-detailed images, but they at least represent a notion of cinema, as opposed to the flat television aesthetic that dominates Hollywood, that no film lover could afford to ignore. I think, I think that's a good point. And it's like, I don't know, even if, because there's some, there's some racial stuff in Year of the Dragon that's yeah. not exactly, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it my FDA stamp of approval. <laughs> but it's, I mean, from as visual works alone, Chimino's work is you know insanely valuable is something yeah. that I'm, I'm learning no exactly I, filmography exactly i think kerr kerr is there on a wavelength that i'm not fully on because i think i'm just more into the movie on the whole i'm, I'm yeah. willing to forgive some, or maybe misread positively uh some of the stuff some of the racial stuff in this uh i wanted to counter you with another friend of the pod uh i know dave kerr you know film bro 101 uh, let's make a little room for the ladies uh please do man Pauline Kale says that Year of the Dragon isn't much more xenophobic than The Deer Hunter was, but it's a lot flabbier. The scenes have no tautness, no definition, and so you're more likely to be conscious of the bigotry. <laughs> but she she always uh, she always comes through with just like the takes that are just like you're just kind of like all right you yeah. know what I mean it's just like she's just like I don't know bored so she called it racist yeah it's like <laughs> exactly she finds like just weird ways to dislike movies and that's I think that's one of the more annoying traits of a critic it's like you think about their reasoning you're like what the fuck are they talking about <laughs> like, why? that's why i only like kale as like a writer specifically yeah. and not even like grouping her with film critics i like reading her reviews because she says such dumb shit in such smart ways yeah uh, that she is always interesting to me she has more lazy prose in some instances and she has some more like very passionate prose about some stuff but i think i like the middle ground with her when she's kind of mixed on a film and really just going galaxy brain in either direction (laughs) and you disagree with every single point she makes uh but like it's still a good review like the persona review so dumb but i love it (laughs) i've read it like three times it's in kiss kiss bang bang uh like she just doesn't get it you know, <laughs> just doesn't get it. 
No, yeah, it's it's interesting because I was going to say it's like, you know, in her doing that, her weird reasonings, I was going to say 1% of the time she'll be like right on the money. And then I tried to think of that time and I couldn't produce it. You know it's mainly I mean? like with Brando stuff, I guess. Like yeah. she's smart about actors. Yeah. And she's like an anti-auteurist. So that means the auteurs that she actually likes, she like feels passionately about. So when she writes about Brian De Palma, it's usually interesting. But like... She's generally kind of an anti-autourist, which is why I disagree with so much of her writing, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> little kale corner. Yeah, kale corner. Uh, a little segment of uh, Bank Check. But let's move on to Year of the Dragon. Mickey Rourke plays Stanley White. Uh, what a great name. <laughs> oh, yeah. Another. This character has my last name. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. I hope there's a bomb somewhere in Chimino's filmography. I feel like there's no Germans next in week. Chimino's filmography. We'll see. <laughs> maybe in the credits of his Chanson du Cinema short. Uh, maybe. <laughs> we'll we'll look for it. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Stanley White is the most decorated officer in the NYPD. And he's made the captain of the Chinatown precinct because there is kind of a war brewing in Chinatown. Um, and you know, if there's a war brewing in an ethnic neighborhood, why don't you put a proud racist on the beat? <laughs> yeah. You know, he's going to take, take, you know, extra steps to take care of. Yeah. Like people call it like he is called a racist in the movie. It's something you just kind of, that's one of his character traits, just like the hat he wears or his, you know, the way he looks at people. He's racist. That's something about him. And it's, it's. You know, that's kind of the driving force of the movie is yeah. that like yeah. police are evil racist things. And like, yeah. I don't know. That's not the only point of the movie, but that's an easy reading. I yeah. mean, I think it like it definitely opens you up to a territory where it's like this is not a woke movie, no. but like it's like I think there are interesting things to be said with how it interacts with like racism, like the him, like Stanley being a Vietnam vet as mm. well, that I think it's like, it's more than just a surface level disregarding it of, oh, this is entirely racist because it has a main character that has those views. I, I'm, whenever I think about this movie and I saw it like three, I'm just completely baffled for some reason. Like Rourke's character is insane. Yeah. Like it is, and it is like, it is, it is, it is is like, it's, I don't know. It's like when people are like, oh, characters are crazy. It's like, this is one of the more unpredictable characters i've seen portrayed on screen i don't really know how i like it it's very enjoyable and it's, yeah there's obviously some i don't know it's for some reason like the problematic parts of this movie are kind of impacting me more than other <laughs> parts of this movie does and it just makes me feel really weird and conflicted this, about it the like, scene where uh so okay let me just give a brief rundown to the movie uh so rourke gets with this local reporter uh tracy zoo and he kind of uses her media presence to infiltrate while also brewing this romance with her uh, this very one-sided romance while she has a boyfriend too uh and uh one day he just shows up and she, you know he is also married and just ignores his he is one of the number one wife ignorers in all of cinema <laughs> uh, he just shows up with like a stack of books at tracy's apartment she's like what are you doing here and he says these are my chinese books i'm moving in <laughs> one of my favorite lines it ever is, it's uh you know it's also because to talk about 
this is a movie that's aware that you know police are racist and stuff like that but it's also it knows the different types of racists and you know mm. you know to crib from you know king of the hill how you know cotton hill the grandpa knows that you know uh, the neighbors are Loatian and stuff yeah. like that. Rourke is that type of racist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To where the very studied racist. Yeah, the pol- and like, you know, he's racist, but I guess he wants to make a positive impact in the community. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> well, he uh, just wants to do his job. He just wants to do his job. Yeah, that is, you know, that is. That is also what's funny. I don't think he ever is like, I, I just want to make this place a bit like just the most like standard line a cop could ever say yeah. in a movie. You don't even really get that, which is why I think it, his character is just extra unhinged. But yeah. like the, the, the police department racism is like something that seems uh, it's a little less visible, but maybe is a little bit more harmful, you know, it's stuff like that. It's like, well, it's just, pretty visible, it's, dude. Yeah. They, they're dropping slurs every time they're talking. Well, to yeah, each it's, other. it's visible, but within the rooms of their yeah, yeah, offices, exactly. that's, yeah. that's, okay. I guess that's what I meant to the outwards appearance. So the problems that are going on in Chinatown, you know, Johnny Ty is this upcoming triad member who is kind of breaking all the rules. He's not paying up to, or he's forcing the Italians to pay up and he's getting into some issues with like the Thai gangsters too. Uh, and it's kind of like, it reminded me of Abel Ferrara's Chinatown in that regard. Cause that is a movie that, yeah, it does play with a lot of stereotypes, but it is very interesting because it's about this brewing gang war between these triads in Chinatown and the mobsters of little Italy. And like that border slowly moving back and forth and you know that one plays this romeo and juliet thing in it this one does maybe it is romeo and juliet <laughs> a cop and an ethnic person <laughs> yeah you know it's i mean not to i don't i don't know why i, I preambled that with that but it's you know it's funny cuz i feel like i said like heaven's gate kind of takes the you know it per, uh, maintains the perspective of chris christopherson as you know someone who's in a higher class but it takes like the immigrant perspective where I think what makes this one kind of maybe less emotionally impactful and stuff like that is like this is Rourke's POV. Yeah. And yeah. it's, you know, it's even reflected like in the camera work. Like, yeah. I feel there's like, more POV yeah. shots in this movie than any of his other ones. I yeah. Because it's part of the procedural mode, though. This is a fucking cop movie yeah. more than an auteur yeah, movie. Definitely. You know, like it's a Dino De Laurentiis produced cop movie where apparently there was some shady dealings. I think Chimino thought he had final cut if he brought it under a certain time. And then De Laurentiis uh, said technically he didn't, but like there wasn't any problems or something like this, which led to a lot of problems on their next collaboration, which we'll talk to uh, talk about next week uh, where Final Cut was rejected. But in this one, it's like Chimino is in the zone. He knows how hard the industry like failed him basically and he knows that he needs to deliver a slick genre movie and honestly it's there in the formal chops like the police procedural scenes go fucking hard this is his best action by far like the car chase the final uh shootout on that train bridge uh i mean we're getting way ahead of ourselves but there's a shootout toward the end with joey ty and stanley just walking across this bridge that the train was just on and such beautiful images but also just such precise action in the montage there you know no yeah kind of like these pov shots for rourke it's like uh it's much more like examinate examinatory i don't know if that's <laughs> examinatory yeah is that a word sure yeah it's a word it's just like the way like you still get those frames like these wide frames even in like some of the 
still shots where you see Chimino just fucking packing the frame. But also you get like kind of, I don't know, these weird frenetic, like almost like a stranger, you know, stranger in town POV where he's just soaking in Chinatown, mm-hmm. like jerking his head just to, you know, get all the details. And yeah. It's, 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 I mean, it's visually striking. It's great stuff. Yeah. I think it's just like that weird contrast of Chimino going like genre mode to like, I don't know like what the circumstances leading up to, I would imagine it was pretty difficult for him to get yeah. another movie after heaven's gate, but it's just, I, I don't know. I think that's what, lends itself to the weird racial element as well because I do think there's something there with like the reporter and her relationship to like being Chinese and like also her class standing that like differentiates her from the mobsters Mm -hmm. but like really the overriding like Rourke uh, like (laughs) support like you're supporting him to a certain extent that's like too much well you're saying you're supporting him I think that's what it's supposed to be, I guess, technically, because of the genre framework. Yeah, yeah. But that's, it's like, that's it's what up makes to the it viewer like, to know that there's a distance. Exactly. You know? yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I think that creates, like, putting Chimino into that genre yeah. f- framework makes this weird butting of heads. Totally, totally. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's a very interesting butting of heads. I can see why some people wouldn't be so hot on it. Yeah. No, I think it's very understandable. But yeah. also, I don't know, yeah, like I said, like, I, I think that it, those, those tensions just... Like the way how, you know, we still do, you know, Chimino wants us to, you know, root for him. I think it's also just because it's, his character takes so many fun turns. He's so unhinged mm. and just are just crass too. And just yeah. like, just very, just, I don't know. He goes through life in a way that's just not admirable, but entertaining. And so yeah. just kind of like this fast tempo that Rourke has, you know, I hate, you know, it's kind of a cliche, but it feels very coked out. Like it's just, oh, totally. Yeah, it's, just it's, like, it's an 80s, like, yeah. not shot in New York, but feels like it. She talked about the locations. First, I wanted to say quickly, though, in terms of the racist point of view and the genre framework, one element of the production is that this is a script written by Oliver Stone. Oh, yeah. This was part of the deal. Apparently, Dino De Laurentiis. Everything I've read about Dino De Laurentiis in the last two weeks makes me fucking hate this guy. Uh, he like was gonna make Platoon if Stone wrote uh, Year of the Dragon because I guess Chimino and maybe De Laurentiis also had read the script for Platoon and were like floating around it maybe. Yeah. And he was like, okay, we'll let you make this. Just write this assignment script. And then De Laurentiis just didn't produce Platoon. Like he had to go make it somewhere else anyway. <laughs> the, the, the fact that the idea of at, go, like going from Year of the Dragon to Platoon is uh, <laughs> a very funny one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're kind of on a streak there, Stone. What, what was on your mind? <laughs> we'll also throw Scarface in there yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I don't know, know what other assignment work Stone had. That, I don't think I've seen any of his other assignment this work is, writing-wise. This is completely off base. I mean, I guess Natural Born Killers. Is that assignment? I don't know. But oh, I, I just mean writing. Oh, writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, I switched it up in my mind there, mm. the roles. But um, fuck, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Very off base. But I watching JFK and Nixon recently uh just a problematic thing about stone he's displays homosexuality as the most sinister thing you could ever do it's hilarious he has bob hoskins playing uh um j edgar hoover of uh clint eastwood fame and um 
And like, like I don't know, just like the one scene, like there's just a throwaway scene where he has to acknowledge like J. Edgar was gay, right? And he has yeah. like his, his like uh, some like teenage butler come feed him like a fruit slice with his mouth. Like it's just <laughs> like, I don't know, just a random aside, but like every, t- and then of course the gay scenes in JFK are, are next level. Those seem yeah. fun, but like. Yeah, those are at least funny <laughs> or fun or good. <laughs> I don't remember. No, they're good. Yeah. They're in like powdered wigs. Yeah, it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Just something I noticed. Yeah. No, it's okay. (laughs) It's good to notice things. Um, Back to this movie. I did want to say, though, mainly shot on sound stages in Wilmington, North Carolina for Chinatown. (laughs) Insane. That's so funny. Yeah. I I mean, just like they built Chinatown on a sound stage and it looks fucking great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's also some stuff shot in like Toronto, Vancouver, and Bangkok. And apparently uh, they really cut it together. Kind of like, uh, what's it called? Wells's Othello. You know how there's sequences in there where it'll cut from one country to another because he made that film all over Europe, kind of? Mm-hmm. Uh, this film has one sequence that cuts from, uh, I guess, a studio in New York to an exterior in Bangkok to. Uh, like a studio, the studio they shot at North Carolina, like all back to back or something like that. Damn, well, I didn't notice. Uh, it. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah, no, it's kind of incredible that they're able to pull stuff off like that. But for the most part, it is a studio bound film, and I think that it's kind. It's funny because there's this anecdote that Kubrick saw the film on the premiere and w- had to be convinced by Chimino that it actually was a set and not the real Chinatown, uh, which I feel like. At that point, Kubrick had been in England for like 30 years. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he remembered the old Brooklyn he grew up yeah. in very well. <laughs> Mr. Chinatown expert over here. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, that, that story seems a bit funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> Kubrick came up to me and he said the movie was great. <laughs> Thought it was like the real thing. That's Dino Dealer just selling the movie. Hey, fucking Kubrick. He said it was a good. That's the thing on Wiki. I'll say it next week probably again because it's for one of the films we talk about next week. But uh, they even transcribe him on Wiki saying, I know give him final cut. <laughs> I saw that. That's so fucking funny. That rules. Yeah. That's, that is like the one pot. That, like if Dino's like has that heavy of an accent full time. Kind of makes every awesome. kind of makes every move he does just a little bit better. Yeah, that's weird because like in reading uh, Lynch's uh, uh, autobiography, I don't think he really butted heads. I mean, what did they make together? Like other than Dune, like a little bit. I think Dune and Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet. Oh, okay. Yeah, I forgot Blue Velvet. Damn. Okay. Uh, anyway, back to this one. I I thought it was funny though about that Kubrick anecdote because this reminded me of Kubrick that controlled environment. Yeah. I feel like Chimino couldn't make this in the real Chinatown. Like his control of extras again is so precise. You have to think about that. These aren't people on the real streets of Chinatown. These are hundreds of fucking extras that he's populating this faux Chinatown with. Uh, pretty incredible use of extras in this film. For a totally different effect than Heaven's Gate, too. Totally, yeah. You know, it's funny, you know, once you mentioned Kubrick, because he's another one who gets hit with the precise. And I'm trying to think, because there's just a certain, I guess there's just the tone of Kubrick's movies inform the visuals in a much different mm. way. And I don't think that tone that Kubrick has is found anywhere. Especially in here. movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Especially here. Yeah, this is, I mean, I 
Dave Kirk uses hot air as a pejorative. I use it as a compliment. Like I yeah. feel like this movie's running on some good ass hot air that I'd like to huff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, within 15 minutes, it's like his harshest, like right wing provocation kind of like either you're going to take it from the center as him being some crazy lunatic who's racist or from the right, like hell yeah, that's hell great. Yeah. <laughs> or from the right, like is that what he thinks of us? <laughs> like the Armand White type response, yeah. uh, the zero point zero two percent. It's the Armand White of conservatives. <laughs> that's that should be his uh, new at instead of three X chair zero point zero percent. You know, it's funny. This this does have like a uh, the tone. Like, of course, it's a little more complicated, but reduced down to its more simple elements feels like a Seagal movie or something. Yeah. Like oh, that. yeah. And yeah. that's what that's what's kind of enjoyable about it is to see, you know, kind of this visual mastery within the frames of that type of movie. Absolutely. I mean, you say it could be a Seagal movie. That's what the audience has thought, though. This was yeah. up for like Razzies and shit. Like yeah. people thought this was trash, you know, and it's like this is fucking prime like 80s genre fair because you have this masterful director behind it staying within the framework you have a legendary bozo performance by rourke i mean we're underselling how fucking great he is he's he's in basically every scene there's very little of this movie he's not in uh and he is the most impactful person in every single scene by far one of the most impactful like acting performances i've seen like yeah ever not <laughs> like not even i think of course i think it's a great performance but i'm not even saying that as like a good or bad thing it's just like the way he carries himself in all these scenes is just creates a I don't know, just a crazy high energy movie just, yeah the first time he meets with the journalist there's this incredible tracking shot following them to their table through the chinese restaurant mm-hmm. but the best part about it is how the camera settles before it goes into shot reverse shot of them talking at the table because it's so seamless from this like masterful tracking shot into this very easy rhythm of shot reverse shot i don't know chimino like really has everything uh the the grand gestures and the small building blocks of genre scenes uh like it doesn't feel like those aspects of filmmaking are butting heads it feels like he's kind of you know flowing them together very smoothly Let's see. <laughs> I just have the phrase written down. It would be racist if you were white. Well, I'm trying to think of what the context was there. <laughs> There's too many lines you yeah. cannot take out of context. Yeah. Okay. Movie. No. Now I remember. Okay. This was uh, the the initial meeting uh, between Stanley White and Tracy uh, when you know he was just like saying that she should be reporting on all the crime in Chinatown uh, and how, you know, Chinese people are like, you know, running rampant with crime and it would only be racist if she was white. So that's how she's going to be his like tool. in the media. <laughs> uh, But they settle on something a little more down the middle than that, you know? <laughs> and as I said, uh, as their relationship grows, as do the feuds of the gangs and as do, uh, does the relationship between Mickey Rourke and his wife, uh, like that relationship deteriorates over that same period. As I said earlier, one of the all-time wife ignorers. Well, one of the all-time. Uh, doesn't the wife die or something like that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's just like, what a relief. 
<laughs> I mean, not really, but it's just like the way it's just like swept away with, and then the rest of the movie. Well, it's and, right before the like climactic action scene, but sure. it does it, that does take like twenty minutes of the la- the last twenty minutes, basically. Yeah. Uh, so we could basically. It, it it's just all kind of like building up from there. You know, Mickey yeah. Rourke becomes more racist as we go, even though his new girlfriend is teaching him not to be. Uh, but, you know, that violence just gets it back started. You know? <laughs> and also like the way he, he treats like the cop that's working with the younger cop, Asian cop that's working with him. Herbert. Herbert. And yeah, like, the undercover guy that they work yeah. with. And ultimately kind of how he it shows like they kind of sacrifices him in a yeah. way. Yeah. Um. It gets very bloody toward the end. Yeah. Like that back half is ridiculous. Was they have Herbert working in that Chinatown restaurant that's run by the triads? Like, there's oh, yeah. an insane shootout there, and it like I don't know. It's just like he's his action filmmaking is literally on another level. Like I did not see that coming. The way that he was able to cut together that shootout compared to the very messy but still like beautiful action of Heaven's Gate. You know? Yeah. No, I watched this and heaven's gate in the same day and it's Crazy. like getting fucking whiplash yeah. from the difference between these two films because i was really worried like when chimino has that fall from grace there it's like are his movies going to suffer as well but clearly no yeah like he just adapts to a different framework and is able to produce something like super beautiful and fun mm-hmm uh, so at that point, it becomes, you know, this war on Chinatown, as they say. And, you know, after Mickey Rourke tells all the cops that it's a war on Chinatown, he also says, fuck their civil rights, which is maybe the definitive line of the movie. <laughs> Other than these are my Chinese books. <laughs> because Mickey Rourke's got to read up on the enemy, you know, while he's also sleeping with the enemy. How does this movie like wrap up? Wrap up. Because I'm kind of forgetting myself. Okay, so Joey Ty basically like crosses one too many lines. You know, there's this old like OG triad dude with a voice box who gets super pissed off at him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, meanwhile, like, you know, so a war is basically breaking out as um, Tracy and Stanley are having their most romantic night together. And, you know, the exterior at night uh, coming in through that giant window of her apartment just looks beautiful. And they have that really romantic scene together. Uh, And then he comes back home and his wife breaks up with him. uh, And, like, it's like, well, I guess that's enough. But then he's immediately ambushed. (laughs) And they just kill her right after she breaks up with him. Which is ridiculous. <laughs> it's not quite what you said, like, what a relief, because they're still chasing him. Yeah. Yeah. But it is pretty funny that it's like, I guess I don't got to deal with the divorce. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good proceedings. Like, narratively, it just kind of... It's, yeah, exactly. It's just sweeping some loose ends. Look exactly. who's keeping the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if only all relationships work like that. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> Stanley, you know, chases the people uh that shot his wife and uh or they didn't shoot her, did they? Didn't they or did they shoot her? Bombed her. Killed. God damn. Yeah, let's just <laughs> She so got Stan- murked. Yeah. So Stanley uh chases the people that killed his wife and it leads to this like chase of all the principals showing up, you know, triad cop and undercover. Um, the undercover officer that they've been training, Herbert, gets murked. 
uh, and they end up at this train tracks, as I said earlier, uh, where Stanley and Joey Ty are just kind of like shooting at each other in this fog and this train rolls by at one point, but I don't know. You just get this shot reverse shot of them basically in silhouette, just drenched in fog, huge wide cinemascope frame. And they're just like taking up a narrow part of the center of it. Uh, and it's just such a beautiful moment before the shootout, which is one of my favorite kind of dumb, potentially racist <laughs> endings uh, to a movie like this where, you know, Stanley has it, but he's, <laughs> Joey Ty's just like, you know, I can't go through with you killing me. Give me the gun so I can kill myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know what, like, is is that supposed to be like a seppuku thing, even though he's Chinese, not Japanese? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it is a Chinese tradition that I don't know. About. Maybe I think it was kind of gave, gave a tad bit different framework where it's like, you know, Chinese people don't go to the police like they'll or something like oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah, we yeah. should yeah. introduce that mythology that yeah. he brings in early, where it says, you know, for thousands of years, Chinese people do not go to the police, and yeah. it's like, I've never. Okay, yeah, I guess <laughs> well, that, that's what's funny about his research is that he he gets on that that racial knowledge. You yeah, know what I mean, he's like he's like actually mafias were invented invented by the Chinese. Oh yeah, not I, the Italians. It, watching this, I just imagine an Italian guy shutting the movie <laughs> off like twenty minutes in. Like, oh, <laughs> what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> Yeah, this is this is a good movie that could just upset everyone. Yeah, every exactly. involved. And then, but also, I mean, yes, that part is racist. Not racist. Yeah, that part's racist. But what well, happens? I, I don't know if that yeah. is. Maybe that's me reading too much into it. Maybe that had no racial implications yeah. at all, and it was just like a pride thing. And True. It just yeah. Didn't want, but that's such a weird thing. But it's also just such a beautiful gesture. Like I loved watching that. No. Yeah. You know? But I think what follows... I just couldn't think about it for more than five seconds without going, what the fuck is this? <laughs> but it's a great thing to watch. Well, I think what follows follows that up is even more baffling. It isn't like Rourke... Rourke shows up to the funeral procession. Yeah. And he's like, arrest all these motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> he just goes complete crazy mode at the end. Like, he's just like... He's just like too entrenched in like this... And then doesn't it end with uh, Tracy just getting taking him out of the protest? And she's like, oh, you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great end. <laughs> yeah. It's a really funny, happy ending. And it is like a cyclical ending, too. Yeah. It's because, like, he didn't do anything. It starts with a funeral proceedings. And then it ends with a very similar one, yeah. you know, uh, for another Chinatown legend that was killed by a cop, you know? <laughs> And uh, so it's like, yeah, he, he didn't really do much, but he did get a new girlfriend. Got rid of that <laughs> wife. Yeah. <laughs> Seems pretty successful. You know, I think she'll ground him, maybe. Maybe a little bit. Probably not, though. Probably not. <laughs> I liked his wife. She was doing housework. She was like, look, man, I'm fixing the fucking oven. You know, <laughs> that was a, that was you're a, out there being racist. I'm doing real work. That was a great. There's like small touches in this movie that are just so like, I don't know, out of left field. Like, I love when. We're introduced to his wife just fishing, uh, like trying to fix the washing machine. Yeah, and she has like pretty much every part of it out on like, a, <laughs> a, a, like a cloth or something like that. It's and just also like, this weird like ashtray on a cloth where if she like misses, it'll just set on fire. Probably, yeah, right? like it's a weird setup there. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's the details that we enjoy. Exactly. Yeah. Any any final thoughts on Year of the Dragon? It was great. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. You know, I hope. I mean. 
I think you know we you know Bozo. We kind of cribbed that from Lex G. You know, yeah, yeah, the way yeah. he uses it. You know, we know he reps that set of the Year of the Dragon poster, and I think this is the ultimate. You know, Bozo who kind of rules performance. It's immediate, like top three, just cause absolutely because of, of course you know we've sang Chimino's praises throughout this episode and Rourke's praises for this performance, but it shouldn't be understated how high energy, manic, just. Uh, truly unpredictable performance this is and uh it's good stuff he also like the hat action is very 40s and 50s noir but very out of place too like it doesn't fit in at all it's so (laughs) unnatural but you just see it in that classic like classic hollywood revisionism tendencies of new hollywood where it's like oh yeah we got to do it like in double indemnity but we're being racist 80s cop (laughs) uh or not double indemnity it's not a cop noir but uh you know whatever yeah Uh, (laughs) regardless i love this film and it has just a little bit of that touch of that like new hollywood stuff but it really feels like something else it feels like just chimino moving forward working in a genre framework and uh yeah, I, I can't wait for next week. I can't believe that we're about to finish off his filmography so quick next week. It's such yeah. a, it's a shame. It's a I was shame. like holding out on doing this because I was like, okay, another bank check. That's going to be a huge thing, you know. Yeah, this was so quick. Yeah, but it's because this guy doesn't have that many films. Yeah, I missed this motherfucker already. <laughs> yeah, that's, exactly. that's what I'm saying. It's like only three movies left. That's a shame. Yeah, it that's, is a shame. But I can't wait to watch them. But hey, next week we're going to be talking about the Sicilian from 1987. Desperate Hours from 1990 and The Sun Chaser from 1996. He also had a segment in that Chanson Son Cinema. It's a couple minutes, so we'll watch that too. Okay. Uh, that's his last work from 2007, actually. Yeah. yeah. Whole 11 years after his last feature. Damn. Yeah. So uh, I guess that was uh, that was chapter two of Bank Check Season 2. Another long one, but I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Appropriate for Tremino, of course. Yeah, I mean, epic length. Uh, epic length. <laughs> And got anything epic to say to uh, to send us off, JT? Oh, fuck. Don't put me on the spot like this. <laughs> Just go epic mode. Yeah. Um, Keep that epic shit rolling. Keep on listening to the extended clip. You know what to do. JT, any final epic thoughts? <laughs> I don't like being put on the spot like this. <laughs> Our program is going to get uh, deplatformed any day now, but you know, <laughs> yeah, that's true. just big tech censorship striking once again. My eBay reputation, like it's the show <laughs> off of. <laughs> that would suck. If Malcolm selling busted laptops on eBay brought extended clip to an end. I do have a PayPal. This is like, I've, I've run into pay, like trysts with PayPal before. Really? Yeah. It's just a. Uh... And now he listens to the Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> do I need to cut that? uh yeah cut it okay just, no, no it's okay yeah. uh it's not related to movies yeah that's we're, why. we're back on bank check uh the final chapter of season two and uh, malcolm just told his story about how he defrauded <laughs> one of the great uh one of the great corporate monoliths of late capitalism but you know we have to we have to hide we have to hide when we do things like that when we're when we're on our robin hood shit much like christopher lambert <laughs> in the sicilian yeah, I, like anything we do, you know, just I'm going to speak for all of us to where it's, you know, it's like if you see us something doing bad, just one of us doing bad, just know we're going to give that to the lesser. It's you know for a I good mean? cause. So yeah. If you see me in public doing something weird, just know I know what I'm doing. 
Yeah. And it's it's good. It's for the good. <laughs> yeah. If you see Malcolm following a woman at a department store, just know that a Sicilian peasant just got a plot of land because of him. He has sunglasses on in the store. <laughs> uh, so as I said, eh, we're back on bank check and we're saying goodbye to Michael Chimina this week. And it's really sad that we already finished his filmography. Uh, but The Sicilian is the first film that we're going to be talking about. And this was one of his first like uh, kind of problematic productions, I guess. Uh, after, you know, Year of the Dragon went relatively smoothly, uh, although it's problematic in content. <laughs> uh, in comparison to Heaven's Gate, it's not like he was, you know, having trouble. But here... Apparently, editing was a huge disaster. Back to the whole final cut shenanigans. Um, the executive producer, this guy Begelman, apparently like called in Dino De Laurentiis to speak on trial. They, there was like a lawsuit about the final cut of this Damn. film. And that is when Dino De Laurentiis, as a witness, someone who had previously executive produced a Chimino's film, uh, said about Year of the Dragon, hit that famous line, final cut? I know give a him final <laughs> cut. <laughs> Damn, producers literally turned state evidence against him. Yeah. Against Michael, a, a, a true cinematic outlaw like, for final cut. Almost all of his films also have that strange credit of executive in charge of production. It's not a credit yeah. you see on a lot no. of movies, mm-hmm. but it's because they always had to have an executive reigning in the production, kind of. <laughs> uh, and this is where two of those executives were just like, fuck this guy. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, because he's one of our great film artists. Uh, but luckily, a director's cut of The Sicilian does exist. And that's, is that what we all watched? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So apparently it was first trimmed down to 120 minutes by Chimino by taking out every action scene <laughs> just as like a fuck you kind of yeah. and then the producer personally trimmed it to like 115 minutes or so interesting yeah you know I, I I'm gonna be honest like I you know we watched these three movies recently this one the other two movies are kind of taking up more of my headspace than these you know this one I agree yeah. I like the Sicilian probably my least favorite Chimino not to say there's not a lot of, to like here. Like yeah. he like knew he had to repent to the Italian gods <laughs> after uh, in Year of the Dragon saying that the Chinese invented the mob. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so he had to come straight back with like a Pusa like adaptation like in Italy like going hardcore to prove his Italian roots. No, yeah, and it's it is like I feel like at least. With this one too, this feels kind of like his last epic. Like this one does definitely does go for like epic proportions. But you also kind of have kind of that strange acting energy that you get from Year of the Dragon, and I, I think you get that in Desperate Hours too. With you know with Rourke, you know, in that. But with Lambert, it's it's just a it's a little bit different. And, yeah. I'm, and of course, I'm one to get over poor acting, and I I did in this movie. But it is it is. A very strange movie to have Christopher Lambert at the center. <laughs> so apparently the producers wouldn't even go ahead with the project with Lambert. And like there was a huge dispute over that at the start. And Shimino was just dead set on having the most French dude ever play an Italian man. <laughs> there was there's something I was definitely won over by Lambert's like placement and his style of acting in this mm-hmm. role by the end of it. It like it for someone 
who is like the character is like an outsider sort of between like various poles, like a real independent man mm-hmm. and like can't understand a lot of like w- him like trying to like uh tightrope walk between like the mob and uh like bourgeois society mm-hmm. it it being a very stilted and kind of awkward performance like i don't know i buy that and i like yeah. i think it works well with this and it's such a weird film in terms of realism for that too because yeah. it's shot in the you know beautiful sicilian countryside with so many sicilian actors as like not just extras but kind of the smaller roles apparently and this is you know wikipedia tier knowledge but one of the halts in production is because there were like union bosses that were mafia guys that were trying to put a hold on the production, but only just so some of their guys could get like cameos and walk on roles. <laughs> so they they shot a bunch of like needless footage of just like Sicilian mafia dudes in the background of shots, I guess, in this movie throughout <laughs> it. And a lot of it is edited out because they were never going to actually see the movie anyway. They just wanted to be in the mm-hmm. fucking movie, yeah. which is hilarious to me. Yeah, you know, it's crazy because I, you know, this is a visually rich movie as all of Shimino's movies are, mm-hmm. but this one does have kind of like mo- some of the more luxurious flir- uh, um, flourishes, you know, and it it's, it sounds like every single Samino set, there's the most wildest shit going on <laughs> yeah. ever. And it's like not only like wild, but it's like a huge set that has so many moving parts, just <laughs> random things that could definitely like disrupt a movie. And, you know, to a lesser director, it probably could ruin a movie. But like you, the kind of the precision that Shimino's, you know, still able to hold here visually is kind of impressive when you think. There's just, uh, you know, mania around him constantly. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, apparently all of like the Sicilian countryside was only granted to them like by the mob after negotiation. <laughs> uh, 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 like uh, uh, uh. they they didn't have all of the exteriors locked down before. Go- and there was like so some stalls early on, but it wasn't anything major. There, There's a lot more production woes to come for Chimino, but what is this film? The text of the film, you know, we said Christopher Lambert uh, is, you know, the French Sicilian, uh, Salvatore Giuliano. <laughs> he he kind of sees himself as this Italian Robin Hood with swag who just wants to liberate the workers and peasants of Sicily. And he wants to redistribute the, the land of the wealthy to those workers and peasants. And uh, it's pretty straightforward in that regard as he kind of gets a bigger ego he kind of becomes more dictatorial and slightly fixated on this idea of incorporated Sicily as an American state, yeah. which is very strange. But I think it's also a very like it's just a very interesting choice for a character who goes from like true, like giving it directly to the people, small community. Yeah. Uh, you know, like communal, uh, I guess, policies to wanting to be part of an empire <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah I, that's i mean i think with a lot of uh, move like chimino's movie politics i feel like it is it's kind of just like indecipherable there's a lot of yeah. different viewpoints and there's a lot more you know you know he tends to tell you know stories of immigrants and stuff like that but it is like yeah i don't like i I, I don't think uh, Chimino could make this the straight up communist superhero movie that, you know, it could it, it could be inviting at the start. No, know? I think that's <laughs> what makes it so like yeah. interesting, though, no, is yeah. how difficult it is in that regard, because, you know, it's like 
uh, he has to separate himself from the rise of the communists because to get in anybody's good graces, he has to say that he denounces communism because he believes in God, which he does. You know, yeah. that's like his thing is, oh, no, he's not a communist. He just wants to give the peasants land, you know? Uh, and yeah. uh, so him and John Turturro uh, and, and their whole following, they, they take on this trifecta of the state, the church, and the mafia and he's also wooing, you know, this duchess, this member of the elite who is also turned to communism, I guess. She lives in the big palace with Terrence Stamp, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because he's prince and duchess. Yeah. I don't know. It's a very strange, like, film where all of the most powerful people just kind of hang out in Sicily. Uh, <laughs> and also the most powerful, like, communist leaders also. Mm-hmm. And it's like all of these... Uh, political clashes of the mid-century are just all taking place in a mafia movie in Sicily. And it definitely doesn't land everything in terms of like a political critique or commentary, but I think it's a very interesting kind of playing ground uh, to just show a character like this have a classic archetypical kind of rise and fall like he does. No, yeah, when I was mentioning earlier yeah, that this couldn't be the communist superhero, that's not necessarily, you know, a negative yeah. <laughs> or positive thing. It's just that Chimino, well, Chimino loves individualism, too. You know mm. what I mean? A lot of his movies seem to have this trend of a misunderstood uh, person who's just trying to do right through ways that everyone else is completely detesting. And you say individualism, we should mention, I don't think we've mentioned it on this mini series yet that he, one of his biggest passion projects that he never got to do was the Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand. Sorry. <laughs> Ayn, how did I say it the first time? Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think that like. grind. It's true. <laughs> Um, going through all of Chimino's movies, like in quick succession, like this has like very much so endeared me into that type of politics that he takes on. Cause he very clearly is like someone from like bourgeois means like, but is concerned with helping like poor people, but has that very particular sense of American individualism about him. Mm. I know when we talked to Nathan about like Oliver Stone. He was like, Stone is as like as woke as a boomer is going to get. And mm-hmm. when he lapses into like kind of dumb boomerisms, it's a very enjoyable quirk of uh, Stone's filmmaking. And I think the same thing applies to Chimino. And for me, like with the Sicilian, it's like interrogating that like very particularly American politics that he brings to Sicily here. And I think it's like reflected in Lambert's like, like being like French, but also very American for a Sicilian. (laughs) And it's like, it doesn't cohere into anything as well as his other like better movies do, but it's still really fun. Mm -hmm. I I think I like this one a little more than you guys. I think in terms of the form uh, he accomplishes something ridiculous here where it's like the genre chops that he carried over from the year of the dragon kind of continue, but he's back in his earlier epic mode. Mm-hmm. So he has these longer drawn out set pieces that are built out of long takes that are sometimes in motion, sometimes still, but he also still has that really like lean sense of action that he developed with year of the dragon it kind of feels like a mix of year of the dragon and his earlier films. Uh, and it also has year of the dragons, racial idiosyncrasies. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
yeah, as I said, it's like all the major power players are in this concentrated area. Uh, we start, though, on this incredible set piece where Lambert and Turturro, you know, rob this like coffin full of wheat and have an altercation with the cops. And uh, there's like a shootout and they run away. And I don't know, just like that first landscape shot of all of those, you know, peasants plowing a field and it's just all yellow and blue after those really doom and gloom kind of shots that open it over the credits just reminded it like took me back to the beginning of just like Chimino the painter. He's back at it, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I found this really stylistically rewarding through and through. You know, I think, and this is not uh, like smart critical thinking, but it's just, I think this, I think I like it just a little bit less just because I've been going through Michael Chimino's filmography like all in a row. You know what I mean? And like, I've, I think like kind of what you were saying earlier, kind of like, well, I've seen like Heaven's Gate and like I've seen Year of the Dragon movies. I like more, not great amount more, but like mm-hmm. I like more than uh, the Sicilian and, you know, seeing some of those, uh, you know, ideas and that kind of getting repackaged and also, you know, rethought in the Sicilian is like good, but it's like, I, I feel like I just needed to wait a little bit more to mm-hmm. soak it in. But it is like in terms of, you know, what you said about him coming off of Year of the Dragon, it is like his most genres in one film. Like it Mm. is like, yeah, there's the action chops and like, uh, you know, the epic, you know, uh, with, you know, the grand landscape photography, but it's also, yeah, it's like the Lambert really gives it kind of like, like a Seagal actions movie feel too, which just kind of gives it, it's just a whole different kind of, uh, melting pot than something like desperate hours, which is like a straight up genre movie. I would say in sun chaser, which kind of harkens back to Thunderbolt and Lightbolt, like that road trip movie. This one's just a huge, huge stew. Yeah, in terms of bozo actors on the spectrum, like uh, Lambert here is definitely closer to Seagal than Mickey Rourke, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, And I'll easily concede that, even if I prefer this to, like, Desperate Hours at least. uh, We'll see about Year of the Dragon in the ranking segment at the end of the episode. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, But, uh, yeah, like, I definitely prefer Mickey Rourke in this type of role. Uh, I think, I I agree that Lambert, I think we all can say Lambert holds this back from being as great as it possibly could be. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I still like him quite a bit. It's just when you think about the other protagonists of Michael Cimino, he doesn't even come close, really. Yeah. 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 He's fun. Like, it is fun, and I do like certain aspects of it, but it is like, I don't know, sometimes just the the times where he's acted, he's he's expected, you know, to show charisma. It's just like, it's kind of more goofy than it is, like, impressive. Great performance, though, from Terrence Stamp, who I wish we saw more of, because he's very reserved in this, Mm -hmm. even though, like, at this point in his career, he's done all kinds of stuff, you know, it's 87, and, like, he's very reserved. There's this one incredible shot of him looking through the telescope where it's, like, split in the cinemascope frame, uh, him looking on the right side of it and the left side of it is just, like the the lens of the telescope reflecting what he's looking at and i don't know i've never seen a telescope shot like that it was incredible but what he's looking at is the mounted policeman like knocking over the communist protester uh that the duchess was like supporting and so like all these political uh and ideological things are brewing as uh lambert takes charge you know if only Christopher Lambert started doing the shit when it wasn't a politically heated time, it could have just <laughs> helped out some Sicilian workers. But unfortunately, it had to be during the worldwide rise of communism. The aspect I liked kind of in the first half of this movie 
and I think it's it's just a movie that's not as direct as others, so it doesn't give you this uh, instant feeling, I guess. But mm. where I, you kind of like, you know, speaking of the individualistic aspect of it, there's like a uh, like a point in this movie where Lambert's like. Like I'm gonna rise, like I'm gonna be God. Like, yeah, and, it, and like, and like it, it, that is like a fun, interesting concept. And yeah, but since it is like it's so kind of muddy, it doesn't quite go down the direction. I, at least one I'd have in my mind going down that. I I find a lot of interest in that though because yeah. of like Chimina's recognition of him as like an icon because. Mm-hmm. By the 80s, a lot of the big political figures of the mid-century were icons already, you know? Yeah. I'm not going to go out on a limb and say in 87, people had, like, Shea t-shirts like they did in the early 2000s. <laughs> I don't know when that... I don't know if Rage Against the Machine started that, like, popular culture. Uh, but, like, there were icons of that, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think Chimino does a very good job of that. The first time, or it's the second... There's one time where the horse kicks up and he strikes that pose with it, Lambert, that is. And then the second time he does it, it immediately cuts to that being on Life magazine before <laughs> fading out to the next shot, you know. And that kind of becomes his worldwide iconic pose. And then at the very end of it, not to, you know, get ahead of ourselves, but there is another person taking that pose in the deep background of that final freeze frame shot. Uh, so Chimino is very aware of, like, you know, things beyond hubris and a rise and fall thing but more of like the worldwide legacy and cultural impact of figures like that as well yeah and at the end he kind of gets humbled right or whatever yeah yeah like so yeah that's also the problem i really don't remember a lot of this <laughs> but like at, well i yeah. in my notes yeah. the f- scenes i've been describing are all in the first 30 minutes yeah like we, we definitely got to go through it more because i mean it does kind of just slowly go through the arc that we have presented though mm-hmm but yeah, as things start to heat up, you know, Lambert executes the barber in front of the whole fucking town. <laughs> and then the priest is killed on the cross in a very brutal manner. A uh, classic like horror movie, kind of open a door and a corpse falls on you kind of thing. Uh, and I like when this movie gets very sleazy in the back half in that way. Yeah, I mean, I agree that like at the beginning you mentioned that like this is the last time we see Chimino in epic mode. Even though like I think he brings like... Uh, an epic like uh formal style to the the latter two features mm-hmm. i think like this is the last time we get like fun big crowds like one of yeah. my favorite sequences is the communist marching where like the sort of chaos unfolds from there oh yeah and it's nice to see him just one last time be able to play with like <clears throat> these huge groups of people so as like basically Sicily is going to war with itself because of Salvatore, uh, Christopher Lambert. He has this meeting with the Don, you know, the head of the mafia in Sicily and their meeting is, I, I really love the way he stages it. It's extremely like gay. It's the most kissing I've ever seen in like Italian men embracing in a situation like this. I, I, I'm not projecting here, right? Are you guys with me on this? I don't remember. I'd say, yeah, I really I don't didn't remember. Fix, I, didn't fi- I didn't fixate on that, but... Okay. Uh, I did kind of zone a, out. Yeah, it's this. a very romantic scene. It's like he's behind the white curtain. Salvatore's behind the white curtain and the Don is like facing him with his hands out. And like the music swells up and the wind is going against the curtain as Lambert steps out. And I, I, I kid you not, it is at least 45 seconds of face kissing between them uh, before <laughs> they before they step away and begin talking. It's very funny. Uh, but, you know, it's just pure respect. Yeah, that's <laughs> when you respect a man so much. 
you know, you have to show them with your, you know, tender with touch. your tongue. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I, you know, it, it's funny because, uh, you know, I haven't I haven't read many, you know, reviews of Shimino's work at, you know, when it was released. But if I had to guess at this point in his career, I feel like a lot of critics would rag on his like uh, representation of women mm. in movies. And it, it's, you know, he's. He's given some to you know the gay fellas too, you know, giving a little bit of <laughs> uh-huh. little gay action. But that it did remind me of the sex scene in this movie where, oh, it, isn't it like a like a rape musical or something? Or like I uh, wouldn't go that far. <laughs> that's what I wrote down, and I'm trying to remember the details. Well, it's but... because <laughs> okay. yeah. well, there is music playing in the room. They're playing a record. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Everyone yeah. downstairs <laughs> hears the record. Rape music. Come on, man. Come on, man. Let's let's the notes I, the notes are unreliable. The notes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's contextualize here. Okay. But it's, well, just, just to the point where it's like, Chimino is not listening to those criticisms. Oh, not, no, at, all. not so, at all. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. So uh, Lambert and the Duchess get alone uh, while his goons are robbing like a foundation dinner at the mansion that Terrence Stamp is the head of the table. And uh, she just, like, brings Lambert up to the room to fuck because they've been, like, together the whole movie. And he just, like, doesn't want to because he's robbing them right now. And she just says, like, rape me. And he's like, you know, no, I am, you know, not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she basically says, like, if you do not rape me, I will rape you. And it's... Oh, yeah, I I remember that line. And (laughs) And then they just, like, fuck... And it's like uh, they had been. Di- it's just like yeah. I don't know. It, I just wanted to clear things up. No, in terms yeah, of the no, context. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, this is still a very goofy scene, unfortunately. Uh, and like dramatically, it's very strange. And I think that Lambert's relationship with this woman is very strange. But so yeah, I'm sorry for that description. I, that it, to be fair, it wasn't really close to what the the phrase I used. So the correction was warranted. But speaking of musicals, they then get married a couple scenes later, and there's like an acapella version of, I think, Take the A-Train, some famous jazz standard, (laughs) and it's a very strange thing, and I don't know, Chimino is always right there with like the American standards, you know, like God Bless America and the Deer Hunter, there's multiple examples of this, like classical American tunes, and then in this, it's a classical American swing tune, you know, Uh, but just having that ceremony in the hills is beautiful because they have to live in exile with the priests in the hills of Sicily because there's a war going on, basically. I do really like them in the hills of Sicily, that imagery there. Like, there are a variety of times where I think it... What bird is it that they cut back to? Is it like an eagle? Something like that. It's some sort of black uh, yeah. bird, but it's cool. I yeah, like it. that's cool. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I like them as, like, the space of them being out in the hills and yeah. just the emptiness On around too. them yeah. like really emphasizes just how out of out of sorts they are with everything else and it's just a really fun setting i feel like yeah. you very rarely get to see just the boys fucking around outside no yeah chimino will is someone who by you know any standard i guess only year of the dragon doesn't really apply to this but like no matter what the setting he'll find a way to go out in nature mm. and you know sh- you know find something beautiful to shoot i guess yeah. that doesn't really happen in year of the dragon but i mean of course there's well composed shots. Well, you're know, very... the dragon even there's yeah. like the, the three shots that were actually shot in bangkok that are like insane oh, you know yeah, when yeah. when there's that huge thai army thing oh, yeah, uh in yeah. the field there i think that's the only thing that stayed in the film that they shot on location in bangkok but yeah I agree with you, and we'll get to that in a minute with Desperate Hours. Uh, (laughs) But uh, back to this one. So 
also before the wedding there's also a meeting that reminded me of godfather 3 a lot where it's him with the cardinal the don and uh the prince uh and it's just kind of like he had earlier represented the three entities the state the mafia and the church as these three uh circles in the dust that he had drawn you know and now their physical forms appear before him as he's risen to power uh but they can't really help him there's a huge war basically he oversees this huge march of communists and he was like come on i told them to stay away but i guess they're coming through and then um the the mafia's like uh assistant dude like basically ordered a hit and it turns out to just be a mass shooting and there's just a guy on a turret that shoots at all of the huge group of communists marching and then his assistant like shoots him in the back of the head with a pistol or whatever uh, and it's it's a pretty fucked up scene, honestly. And it's like definitely the most chaotic of those huge, you know, hundreds of extras set pieces that I've seen from Chimino, probably. No, yeah, like the way he shoots that, the distance you get, and you just see the full scope of all the people, and like it's represented through flags and stuff. It's it's very well done. There's a lot that goes on in this, like just as yeah. this movie comes back to my memory, I feel like this is like because Heaven Heaven's Gate. There's also a lot that goes on in Heaven's Gate, but I think. There's a lot more lax moments where it's like mm. Sicilian. It's like, it's. I think that's my main uh, like uh, argument against it, or not against, because I do like this movie. But I guess why it just it kind of overwhelmed me personally. Just yeah. kind of like it's a lot happens. Yeah, yeah. like a lot, it's, I, I don't. Know, I guess I, I guess I wasn't given enough uh, room to process things. Mm. But hey, you know, I don't want to. You know, that's what the rewatch is for. Yeah, it's that that too and i don't want to meddle with chimino i want to give him final cut i want to be on his side yeah there's a crazy scene after yeah. that like after they kidnap the cardinal that was in that meeting earlier and uh it's just like this really long driving scene where they're just talking and it's like shit we're like two hours and 20 minutes into this movie we just have this crazy action set piece and now this is like this eight minute driving and talking scene <laughs> it's a very strangely uh structured movie but i i kind of admire that about it you know no yeah I, I admire that too i guess it's just sometimes that works and sometimes it's just like the scope is too big but like when you mentioned uh like godfather 3 that's definitely a movie that was on my mind uh, you know, while watching this movie, and I think while skimming Shimino's uh, Wiki- Wikipedia page, he was, you know, once a candidate to uh, direct Godfather Three. Oh wow, which would have been interesting. Yeah. Um, I also it also made me think of like Martin Eden too. It is it is like yeah, I like, could see that definitely yeah, the Italian you know autodidact uh, politics story. Yeah, <laughs> it's Godfather Three, Martin Eden, and like an early '90s Seagal movie. Yeah, all all, all, all in one package. So for that reason alone, it's, you know, big salute to it. So there's eventually a face-off between Christopher Lambert and uh, John Turturro. And at one point, Lambert says to him, like, obey me. And the voice gets all deep and, like, distorted, which is very strange, as if, like, he had the word of God behind him or something. (laughs) Uh, But then we just see him get murked. Totoro kills him and then is killed in jail after. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, And it ends on... Um, Salvatore's funeral and the Don and his advisor are like swept away off screen in this weird wipe transition with a horse and then we see that shot with I believe it's supposed to be the young boy that was following Christopher Lambert and his people throughout the movie uh, on horseback striking the same pose up on top of the mountain on a freeze frame ending and it's really just like a beautiful final shot any final thoughts on the Sicilian 
To be honest, no. Okay. Good movie, though. Uh, like yeah, no, I like it. I think it has a lot of, like, qualities of Chimino that I really like. That it's an interesting grab bag, a melting yeah. pot, a stew, if you will, <laughs> <laughs> as you were saying, Malcolm. Um, but it just, I don't know, it doesn't do all the right things for me. And But I do think, like, what you brought up with the... Uh, um, the the deep voice mod mm. uh and just sort of the relationship this movie has with god in general it's like it's like a prelude to what like some of the weird mystical elements of the sun chaser that i absolutely love i mean you're the dragon too even yeah you're yeah. the dragon is a much less understanding movie than either of these two but Desperate hours. You press play. You see it's in 1.85. What is this? A pan and scan? <laughs> you know, makes movies in scope, baby. Yeah, it is. It is interesting right off the bat. That is the thing that kind of grabs me. It's like, all right, no scope. And it is like, I feel like out of all of Shimino's movies, this one is like the most for hire work he probably did. Like the one where he had the, it was less of his like personal, mm. you know, personal love child he mm. was bringing to screen. So it's kind of interesting to see him work in that mode. And I feel like this is kind of like his most straight up genre movie, which is something that intrigues me about it. Yeah. And that genre being the kind of home invasion movie, Mm -hmm. uh, hostage kind of home invasion thriller is probably why it's in 1.85. Yeah. Most of this movie is in interiors. Unfortunately, Michael Cimino thrives in exteriors and thus lies my main problem with the film. I think it's really good though. I, I, I was just like, I'm kind of on this one the way you guys are with the Sicilian where I really like it, but there are certain elements that hold me back from liking it as much of a lot as a lot of his other movies. But anyway, this is still a very good movie. Yeah. Uh, so an escape from a hearing for, you know, Mickey Rourke and his lawyer goes awry and the convict and his friends have to invade a home and wait for her. Uh, an FBI manhunt ensues after the group finds a nice bourgeoisie family that's in a downward spiral. Uh, Anthony Hopkins, Mimi Rogers, and their two kids, a 15-year-old and an 8-year-old or something like that. Um, the film was mutilated by producers, apparently. There's not too much info on this one because it is like a for-hire work, totally. It's not like one of his passion projects. So not too much like in-depth writing that I could find on it, but... Uh, yeah. There are stills from deleted scenes that have floated around. And also, apparently, after a test screening, they had to take out a scene where uh, the lawyer was being investigated at the FBI offices by the lady in charge of the FBI yeah. because audiences thought it was lesbian. Straight <laughs> <laughs> up. Yeah. That's awesome. Damn. That shit would have sold hot now. Also, it would have been a great scene. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Two of the better performances in the movie are mm-hmm. from the FBI. I mean, that uh, the the blonde lawyer lady, maybe not amazing, but the FBI agent, very good performance. Kind of surprised me there. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Not to, you know, be so feminist, feminist critique here, but yeah, definitely. Yeah, more women FBI agents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely like Chimino's strongest female character. Oh, this in, is his girl boss walk. movie. Yeah. yeah. In a walk. Um, <laughs> But Rourke, Rourke is back, and Rourke is, I feel like he's bringing, yeah. this, like, Rourke is what kind of gives it a, a bigger jump up for me, too, and there's just a lot of weird tonal decisions that Chimino mm-hmm. makes throughout this, uh, 
you know, movie that, you know, earns its title, Desperate Hours. This is like, there's there's something very sad and strange about Rourke, mm. Rourke's character in this movie, but it's also kind of like, it, not as baffling in the Year of the Dragon, but it is just like, some of the things that happen and like the way he acts, just like, that's just movie magic. I really <laughs> love the beginning of this film where you almost have these like Hitchcockian strings under it. Uh, and then you get that lawyer, uh, you know, driving up to this beautiful spot where she parks the car. And it's just like, I kind of forgot that this was a home invasion type movie. And I was just so into these landscapes, which mm-hmm. is why I was kind of mad that it, it doesn't become the whole movie. You know, they get back out of the house around the hour point. Uh, but then, of course, uh, that is kind of the main chunk of this movie is Mickey Wark and his associates holding this family hostage. And Anthony Hopkins is he's pretty good in it, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get you get to see Anthony Hopkins play piano like you do so much on Twitter and in some other movies. <laughs> <laughs> um I do love like the genre elements of his movies about like escaped convicts and stuff. I feel like all of these movies have just like this info dump in the beginning, just like <laughs> off screen in this one. Even you see just Mickey Rourke's hands in the handcuffs. Like it's damn Robert Brisson hours over here, <laughs> but you just hear like, Oh, he's got a high IQ. He's violent. And uh, he it did creative writing while he was in jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was like the lawyer's reasoning why he couldn't have killed or yeah. done anything bad. It's like his, IQ is very high. Yeah. <laughs> there's multiple IQ drops in Chimino's late period action now that I think about it. Because there's one in, De- in Sun Chaser as well, isn't there? I think so. I believe yeah. so. I, I, there's What scene? I can't think. I, I know. Maybe it was just this movie you just might've... hit me so hard yeah. on that line. I'm thinking about baggage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, baggage. That's true. <laughs> Fuck, we have to do a sidebar. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But uh, Malcolm and I watched a TV show last night called Baggage. That's my new sh- favorite show on television <laughs> where there was an IQ drop. Uh, that wasn't someone's baggage. They were just bragging about it. Yeah, it's like a dating It's a dating show and they have to present their three worst qualities, but they, they get a chance to defend him. And one of his reasons is like, I got a, I got a 140 IQ or something. Like that. <laughs> I but, think that guy was like $50,000 in debt or something. So yeah. He knew how he was oh, going to get out of debt. Claimed yeah. to have fucked Anna Nicole Smith. Wait, is that one of the baggage? Claimed yeah. to fuck Anna Nicole <laughs> Smith? Bragging on baggage? <laughs> There's another one that's very questionable. Viewers can see that episode out for themselves. Uh, very strange, very heinous program. Very evil, yeah, yeah, that evil is TV e- show. Especially that episode was particularly evil. I think. And Jerry's like Jerry's like the devil in the corner, just <laughs> slinking his arm around the female contestants, like. Basically, his his goal is to make every contestant look as stupid as possible. <laughs> so everything they say, he's like, "Oh yeah, huh?" Like one of one of the guys' baggage is like, "Oh, I, I take the bus everywhere." He's like, "Oh yeah, you don't want to be with him." <laughs> the contestant, by the way, lived in New York City. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, back yes. to desperate times. <laughs> Watch baggage free streaming on Pluto TV. Pluto TV. We're all about those yeah. streaming. Ser- Contrary to popular belief, Pluto and Tubi. Yeah, all, any any of those free ones. There is one. Uh, there's a really beautiful scene at the FBI agency where it, so it starts to cut away from the house, kind of teasing you out of that one cramped location. Uh, that Chimino does do a very good job at making it feel claustrophobic. You know, slight yeah. hot house atmosphere, not as hot as maybe you want in something like that, but it's 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 pretty tense in there. The FBI office, though, where there was that deleted scene, 
he does this thing where he shoots through a two-way mirror and it's like a rack focus that reveals that he can see through the two-way mirror. Mm-hmm. It's one of the craziest shots uh, in this movie for sure. And I still I can't properly describe it basically, but you'll know it when you see it. <laughs> no, yeah, I thought I thought that shot was amazing. And that kind of, because I was already enjoying it, but that, that got me on the edge of my seat like 30 minutes in. Like, yeah. You let me know it was, it was serious business. And what you're saying about the interiors, I guess that was kind of like the fun of it for me. It's like, all right, what's Shimino going to do with interiors here? Because that's obviously he has a visual focus on that yeah. with like the aspect ratio. And I think, you know, like you said, I guess it's not overwhelming, but I think it's very solid stuff. You know, it's, you know maybe it's not as grand as some of his you know more known you know camera techniques but i don't know just like a good use of like deep focus and just like mm-hmm. a, I don't know just image tra- or um image tracking <laughs> fuck what is tracking shots yeah like yeah tracking shots there is steady- more tracking shots than usual and steady cam and stuff steady like cam that. that's yeah. that's what i was looking like very good use of steady cam in this movie and like even i don't know even find ways to make conversation scenes a little more interesting add movement or like some sort of uh just a like a cute angle to it yeah i'm definitely more on your end of the spectrum with this malcolm where i like i was able to like tap into this because it was it's neat seeing uh chimino like do genre with the shackles more on but still be himself and like sort of see that come to the fore i mean i think like the story in general just the weirdness of the characters like uh is part of a big appeal um and i i mean i feel like in a more uncensored chimino cut it would feel more like um like definitely throughout this because it's like the home invasion thing i thought of three days of a blind girl Mm -hmm, and if i had one main critique it was that he was not mickey rourke was not sexually creepy enough yeah to make it like uh like to i kind of like that was a nice subversion because his goons were very creepy toward the 15 year old daughter he was just very loving toward the wife yeah Uh, yeah (laughs) Well, that's what's very funny. Like, I mean, he's, like, he's like you know? a slick. I mean, it's because he's a smart, slick guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's all right. One of the best, like, all uh, work, no play. Yeah, one yeah. of the best cuts of the movie is when he's asking uh, the wife of the the house of he's invading. You know, does your husband have any fresh clothes here? And then it's cut to him just in oh, a yeah, fully decked out tuxedo. That's awesome. Hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's like that's Rourke in full, like you're the dragon style bozo <laughs> yeah. mode. Absolutely. But and I also Rourke is the best part of the movie for sure. Oh, yeah. For me, although mm-hmm. I, I will say his, his two other goons, Elias Kateas and that other guy with the curly hair, mm-hmm. I think they're quite good. John Seamus, different or kind of energy than you would expect. It's like a more modern energy than what you would expect for Chimino, kind of those kind yeah. of characters. No, definitely. And there's like a lot of ambiguity to them too. To where mm. I think that's all. I mean, this is a good script. I think too to give it to give it credit. Yeah, the good way, enough. Yeah, <laughs> the because like I think those the the complexity of adding those characters. Like yeah, I think the the like I do enjoy the front end. It's a little setupy, but once you kind of get all of those wheels in motion, it's very interesting. And I think of, I we've kind of referred to this a little bit earlier, but the way where John Seamus's thread ends up, the, you know, the goon with the curly hair and how mm. he just wants to leave <laughs> the yeah. home invasion. Oh, I could just go? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of the mo- I've never seen that in a home invasion movie. I loved too. that. Yeah. That, that's what got me back on board because that's like right when I started to get bored with this movie, essentially. So I guess props to the editors. Uh, but <laughs> frankly, I don't know. I, I feel like the Chimino cut would just be an entirely different movie. That's Because yeah. it's an hour 45. Like, come on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he would have at least hit the two hour mark, mm-hmm. you know? 
But when he decides to just go off to Juarez and they'll catch up with him is when I loved it. Because then you're intercutting between the FBI investigation inside the house and him driving. So you kind of have all these different threads going on, two of which are more exterior friendly. And Chimino's pretty much good as ever at shooting exteriors here. There are Mm -hmm. some insane shots he frames for 1.85 quite well. Like there are some where it's just like, I wish it was a little wider. I miss it. Mm-hmm. But uh, he he frames for 1.85 quite well. I think. I think you know it's the, you, you juggle with the decision right, and it is like I feel like he's you know as some there's a lot of scenes that would have looked better if they were more wide. I feel like the the reverse of that is like maybe some of those scenes in the house just don't wouldn't have worked. Just wouldn't have worked. Totally. And it's and I that the. Once, you know, the curly haired goon leaves, that is like one of my favorite moments of Chimino's like filmography because it is it is like this very resilient, his very resilient artistic style coming through in this genre movie. Someone who's like dedicated to his own proclivities, goes back to, you know, to his nature fetishism and it's as good as ever. I mean, the way he's like framing him in that. Like, and just how he has to, like, run away from the cops down, like, this riverbank. And, like, there's a lot of shots where it's, like, you kind of have the, the curly-haired goon and, like, kind of, like, the bottom third of the screen. You have, like, huge headroom. It's some of the oh most beautiful God. stuff he's shot. It, it reminded me almost of, like, Malik when he was just, like, so small in the frame with those two giant boulders, like, in, uh, just totally dwarfing him. And there's a little bit of water that he's walking on top of. That segment of him ditching the car and also escaping the FBI manhunt. That's not necessarily for him, but then ends up being for him Yeah, <laughs> is really incredible. Uh, some maybe my favorite stuff in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last thing I wanted to backtrack to that dinner where he's wearing the suit. He like <laughs> wants to, he wants to do kids rule parents drool. He wants to be like little kid. You can go play Nintendo. I don't care what your dad says. <laughs> <laughs> and the kid says, I'm going to bed. <laughs> he loves his dad. Hilarious. Hilarious. What a fucking moment. Uh, that was hilarious. Yeah. You know, you're talking about, um, you know, the teenage daughter, and that is like a, a, a source of tension in the movie. You're like, oh, I hope nothing. Well, JT, JT hopes something happens. <laughs> no, no. Apparently. <laughs> no, to the wife, to the wife, to the wife, to the wife. We're looking for more wife Or any action. of the of age men. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is, and like, um, there was one scene where like, Elias Cotillas has to like wrap her up to keep her from screaming and it's like all right you got a little too much sound there a little too much sound detail <laughs> but uh, uh but it is like I was look I did look up reviews to this one this might be I mean Heaven's Gate kind of has the spectacle but this might be you know one of his least favored movies just like a lot of people didn't see it and the, those who did didn't really seem to think much of it but a lot of people were hating on the the daughter in the reviews saying like she's so annoying it's like there was a one where it's like you'll you'll want to see her get kidnapped. Dude, in this there's, movie. there's a worse one. Oh my god, Leonard Maltin. No, this of yeah, all people. I think I was paraphrasing. Read the real thing. This is what it what it was. Because he implies about. that you want to beat her up, <laughs> <laughs> which is this Leonard Maltin. Yeah, like, this is supposed to be the nicest guy ever. Like, yeah, like, he says, uh, "Ludicrous with no suspense and at times laughable music score and Shawnee Smith as the daughter victim you'll beg to see cold cocked." The fact what that he even fuck? knows the yeah. actress's name, it's just like, all right. It, you know, it's funny because a lot of a lot of people were like saying like there's a lack of suspense in this. And I feel like that's what's I think there is suspense, but I think it is like it comes at a less traditional sense to where it's like a lot yeah. of just like these character conflicts just bubbling up and like 
these people's head, uh, you know, specifically the goons and Rorik's head and just kind of how confused they are in life. Cause kind of the, de- the device of like, um, the, the lady lawyer coming to pick up Rorik and Rorik's just waiting. There is kind of a strange one. Yeah. He's, he's, he's put back and he's like, I'm just waiting from a fo- uh, for a phone call yeah. from a girl. That's <laughs> 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 so what's going to make it all better. <laughs> so you, like like the movie said, you get desperate hours. See him go desperate mode. Uh, th- that first guy who leaves also takes with him the body of this real estate agent that came through, and they had to murk right away. So he dumps that body, and that's how the FBI finds him. Is Dean Norris and his crew finds the body, and when Dean Norris is introduced, he's like telling the FBI boss lady about it, and Chimino's camera. Is just twirling. Oh, where he's doing that three sixty. Yeah. Never that seen him do something beautiful. like that. And it's as like they're getting off the helicopter too, and you see all of this like motion in the frame, circular motion in the frame. Yeah, definitely unlike anything I've seen. Then right after that, you have that like sniper rifle POV on that guy as all of these like horses are passing, and you just see a guy in a blood red shirt underneath the horses kind of it's incredible and all that stuff in nature definitely recalls the deer hunter like the titular deer hunting scenes for sure you know also another strange thing i noticed about this movie i might be going out on a limb here but towards the back end you know that little fbi room or police room that they have that they're uh convening and it looks like a fucking museum like an art museum (laughs) and like they have like headshots of like rourke and coteus you know it's like you know so they could identify, you know, the criminal. But it looks like like the same type of picture you would have for an artist who has, like, an exhibit at a museum. Yeah. And then just, like, around them, it's just, like, it seems like a room just with, like, tables. Like, I don't know. Maybe it might have just been a low production thing. But I don't know. It just it had such a strange – it had a strange look to it to where I was just, like, this is enjoyable just because there's just something kind of off looking about this. Yeah. I don't know. Um, also – just a just a note. Another thing, when I went on IMDb for this, the first tag was like female frontal nudity, and I think the sixth one was like breasts. Uh, this has like the least nudity of any Chimino film. The yeah. only nudity is like a second when the FBI agent is getting wired, or the lawyer yeah. is getting wired by the FBI agent. Rather, well, there's that that opening scene. You kind of yeah, but it's yeah. not full okay. frontal. Okay, this is that's what I'm saying. It's it's <laughs> okay. It's sidle. <laughs> this is partial sidle. The Mr. Skin debate of 2021. I'm gonna go full like uh, full Mr. Mr. Skin autorism. Uh, it's d- maybe I'm just crazy. But wouldn't you say that like the majority of women we've seen naked, full frontal, in, or, or um, not full frontal, but the tits, you see them in Chimino movies, similar cup sizes. Yeah. I'd have to go back to the well, take some yeah, screenshots. Because I'm thinking about Huper <laughs> now in <laughs> uh, uh, Gates of Heaven and similar like to Desperate Hours. I'm just saying. It's interesting a, for the dedicated authorists there but uh i think well it's just he loves loves beautiful women <laughs> Shimino in particular and like it's just funny like i think in sun chaser not to get too ahead of herself but any like small role there's a woman it's just a strikingly like beautiful woman yeah almost like kind of takes you out of it a little bit but you know i don't i guess i don't mind yeah <laughs> <laughs> also, so many of his movies have like homoerotic subtext, whether it's subtext or just like t- 
subtone, I mm-hmm. guess. Uh, and so it's definitely an interesting contradiction there for sure. Or an interesting like opposing uh, things that he's interested in. I mean, it in. seems <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, I don't know, like his politics where it's like <laughs> kind of right wing, kind of left wing, like his sexuality too. Mm-hmm. There's room for all types. Well, he's, he's pure, like that's, I mean, you know, kind of a... Might be a simple lens to view things through, but Shamino's like ultimate American director. Like it just down to his politics, you know, everything. It's all very muddled, individual, you know, individual based on like individualism and stuff mm. like that. But, you know, like liberal and well-meaning. It's a it's a, b- a big jumble bag of everything. And, I you know, I think his movies often represent that. And I don't know, it's kind of like a lot of people are politically incoherent in America. So it just it makes sense. Yeah. After being reserved for so much of this movie, Rourke really starts to turn up toward the climax and starts <laughs> screaming at yeah. people. And once he starts <laughs> screaming, he's just like losing his voice and it's cracking and he's truly unhinged by <laughs> like the hour, 25 minute mark or so. He's going like goth mode. Yeah. yeah. He's going like goth mode and because well, like, he thinks his girlfriend's not going to come pick him up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like for like I don't know. There's just like there's a point where like uh, like this house gets like fucked up towards the back end, or it's like after I might be getting ahead of the plot, but like no, go ahead. Yeah, like I think it's after like the initial shootout that leaves one of his the goon that didn't leave pretty much dead, and the lawyer holding him, and like. Like Rourke is just like running around this house that's like yeah. like like has a bunch of like gun smoke and like broken <laughs> furniture just screaming. It looks like like a like a fucking like a goth music video yeah. or something <laughs> like that. It is like he's bringing the heat in that moment. And before that, he's totally losing control of the family. And Chimino just gives these slight shots where you have these red dots on the back of his head. Oh, you know, so good. like everyone oh, just yeah. building up. At one point, he has like eight red dots on him when he finally steps outside. <laughs> yeah, just ridiculous. And so he just gets mowed down via firing squad. Like, it's just ridiculous. Oh. And uh, the family's back together, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopkins, you know, reaffirms his... Yeah. That's, that's the funny thread throughout the movie that's, like, just lame. Where it's, like, like the whole thing between Hopkins and the wife is that they're, uh, you know... Well, they're about, separated, They're right? separated, yeah. yeah. They're separated. And then, you know, multiple times throughout the invasion, it's like, you have to trust me, honey. Not the invader, and then we'll get out of it. And I don't know. That's that's how the day is saved somehow. And then yeah, I I kind of like there's a br- brutality to that ending to where it's like it does try to sell you on like okay Hopkins is the man of the house again, mm-hmm. but it's also it's just like re- you just kind of like zoom in past Rourke's cadaver that's still there, and he just closes the door like very yeah. very uh cutthroat ending. Uh, I'll also say he's only in two maybe three scenes like two and a half scenes but dean norris even if he's doing the kind of fake bruce willis thing is really good in this yeah and yeah, I was he's really built higher than you would expect so i feel like he might have deleted scenes too i mean i mean he, he's just got a great cop face too exactly. like especially mm-hmm. like like he just has that very like irish looking like very mm-hmm. steely pudgy yeah he kills it he kills it in this one um, do you want to take a very quick break before we move on and finish up? Yeah, Sounds sure. good. But it's like music labels are like, you know, valuing new music less and less and like spending more money on like uh, acquiring the catalogs oh, of like remembering the classics. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And like, I think like recently in the past like a month, there's been a few huge uh, ca- like I think Prince's catalog got sold. Fleetwood Mac's catalog just got sold like in a month. So it's like, 
I think that's the shit they're going to be scrambling to get because it's. I mean, it's a lot like in movies. It's like I, it's like IP or whatever. Dude, so it's like how much bigger do you think Fleetwood Mac's deal was because of that viral video <laughs> that came out before they made it? They they probably cashed it. They probably yeah. had deals on the table yeah. for years, and then like that video came out. They're like, all right, all right, let's let's. We need a, we need Fleetwood Mac. Now. Whoever made this song, we what's the guy's name? Catalog. Lindsay something. Lindsay. Oh, Lindsay, Lindsay Buckingham. Oh, oh yeah, Lindsay Anderson's a filmmaker. Yeah. I yeah, think. the one who died recently. Oh, of, oh did she? <laughs> Sorry. Wait, Lindsay Anderson? Was that? Did she? She? I thought it was a, Lin, a oh, man. I'm thinking of the one. I'm thinking. <laughs> okay. I was thinking of the dog. Remember that dog? Wasn't there like a female director who's. Ah, fuck, whatever. <laughs> what? There was like. There was a like dog, a, female like, director. There was a fucking. Wendy and Lucy by Kelly Reichardt? <sighs> no. They're no. all dogs, man, if you ask me. <laughs> There's really. I really cannot pull up more details to make this person. She was Lori Anderson. I think it's Lori Anderson. Look her Sounds up. Sounds like a MSNBC person. <laughs> look, look her up. I'm sure she's. <laughs> I think she was like a musician, too. This is like when I was 12 and I thought David Lynch and David Byrne was the same person. To be fair, for a 12-year-old, that's pretty cool that you know who either of them were. Yeah. Yeah. As a 12-year-old, I knew the Talking Heads hit that was on classic rock radio, but mm-hmm. I didn't even know what it was called. I just thought it was called the same as it ever was by whoever. Yeah. You know? I mean, <laughs> Lori Anderson, that was the person I was. I looked it up. It's real. She's a real person, and she had a dog movie. So, What's it called? Oh, is it My Life as a Dog? <laughs> I think so. No, I think Dog's Life by Charles Chaplin. Are you telling me a woman actually directed that? Damn. Yeah, it's like Shakespeare. Actually, a woman directed all of Chaplin's movies. Um, no, Heart of Heart of a Dog. Mm. Heart of Dogness. And she was she t- <laughs> a really racist version of Isle of Dogs by Wes Anderson, and even an actually racist oh, version that of that be, movie. That would be called awesome. Heart of Dogness, where it's just like Greta Gerwig's character, and she's just like. This whole island's just dogs. I didn't know we were recording. Yeah, I literally, we I don't recording. Know. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that wasn't even that good. Either. <laughs> no, that just sucked. That was terrible. I'm cutting it. No, I'm, yeah, yeah, cut it. Definitely cut it. A lot, lot, lot of cuts this episode. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was Year of the Dragon level. <laughs> I, just, well, I'm just I didn't know you were recording. <laughs> Hot mics, baby. Yeah. Yeah, that's how we do it. We're back on big check. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought we'd get some good podcasting out of it, and then you just went Shane Gillis mode. <laughs> well, you could take that. It's completely unrelated, Dude, so you could take that out. 2021 reboot of Year of the Dragon with Shane Gillis. <laughs> <laughs> he needs to shape up Chinatown. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> I'd, I'd watch that. The final feature film that Michael Cimino got to make was The Sun Chaser. A 1996 film um, that unfortunately got dumped on direct video in most markets, which is also really unfortunate because it's in CinemaScope. So you have to imagine it was mainly shown in pan and scan, which is part of the reason why no one thought it was very good. Uh, technically, it's his like biggest flop, even bigger. It depends on which metric you use, but it's kind of bigger than Heaven's Gate. It made like at the time $31 million budget. And made thirty thousand dollars. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, I, I saw like, that. That sucks. Yeah. Also, like I, you know, imagine if they just, you know, shipped it direct to video. Just like looking at the poster of this movie, very like strange and striking 
poster that doesn't quite get the tone. I love of the, the poster, movie. but I understand why someone would not rent it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It, it, like it has this certain tone to the. Yeah, it makes it look lo- like low rent as fuck. First off, and it's like, yeah, it's just. It's very it's a thirty million dollar movie. Like yeah. it looks good. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah, of course it looks good, and it's just yeah, I don't know. I I, I guess I don't have a finished thought on that. Well, but, did yeah. you like it? Oh yeah, Sun Chaser's <laughs> Sun Chaser's great. It is <laughs> Malcolm Bowles, uh, had a little electric accent. Yeah, there. well that that'd be a workplace Scott. You know that'd be on you. I I honestly have no clue why that power strip is there. That is un- I need to clean up the studio mm-hmm. a little bit. Anyway, the Sun Chaser, uh, nineteen ninety six. This this convict, this sixteen year old terminally ill convict named Blue, who killed his stepfather, uh, kidnaps the oncologist that's working on him, the head of oncology over at uh, UCLA, Woody Harrelson. So he kidnaps him. They go on this spiritual journey as Chimino kind of returns to that road movie as a western. Uh, that takes place, you know, going from Westwood to the deserts of Arizona, where, you know, he sets out to find this mystical healing lake and mountain. And those are kind of the object for this great search where they bond over, you know, shared uh, like trauma and being kind of on opposite sides of the world, but, you know, being forced into a car together. Very basic dramatic stuff, but. Chimino pulls it off, I think, very wonderfully. I find this movie very beautiful. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. No, I think what takes it like above and beyond, just like for its, because like it's gonna look good. Chimino's gonna do that, but like in terms of like plot schematics, like yeah, it's like a very specific sense of spirituality and how that like comes in and like especially in the second half of the movie that kind of lets this road trip movie kind of, I don't know, not be green book or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I really love this, but like all signs like on paper, I feel like I should fucking hate this, but like Chimino, like really like takes it to another level where I feel like a script that like, I don't know. I, I would call it a bad script, but I love this movie. I think Mm -hmm. he does a lot of things that take like sort of the characters, like, speaking their feelings and elevates it to something like really poetic and just like I was I was blown away by how much I love this and just especially as um an unintended like end point for yeah. Chimino's uh filmography like I mean Eddie you mentioned bringing it back to the road movie um and the western but also it's just you have his like weird racism and it like uh there's a very strange racial angle that i think is like better than year of the dragon obviously oh, yeah. but i'm mm. glad like i don't know it's it's the full chimino experience there <laughs> well there's there's this one like very strange throwaway moment where it's like a uh because there, there's a good amount of black characters in this movie but there's like a random like extra that's focused on that's stressed a little bit more urban like and just for five seconds like hip-hop music plays yeah. as he's walking by and you're like was that necessary was yeah that i mean that's a point of detraction for a yeah. lot of like you know epic people like i yeah. know the the top review of this is from av club writer nathan rabin i don't know if you know oh, who that is yeah i know he can be a bit of a groaner i actually used to like him as kind of a general like pop culture writer when i was yeah. like a freshman uh in college i i was like i heard him on some podcasts whatever Anytime I see him on Letterboxd, I'm like, come on, man. And yeah, he focuses on, on how this movie's about like bad rap slang and stuff like that. And it's like, if that's what you're going to focus that's on. That's such a fucking stupid thing to like take away yeah. like from this. I, it's something that becomes like very beautiful. And I feel like especially 
is the the actor who plays uh the blue. kid blue yeah he's he's white in in real life right like i thought he was latino or like but give I, me a second i'll pull it up i think the ambiguity there of like whether or not like he i, I don't know I, I think it's sketchy to like say like native american background to it but yeah. i think that like i don't know there's something about like white people appropriating uh like native american culture for like uh spiritual success that like i don't know generally like is very bankrupt but chimino does that in a way that like i don't know it makes sense with the like really confusing like muddied american like ideology that we were getting at like previously in this i think it is i don't know it's it's definitely messy at points but that's why i really like it and i feel like the way he's using the native american sense of spirituality in this is really earnest and not like um i don't know too reductive mm-hmm. no i think sorry i just have to make a quick the note about the actor yeah <laughs> so he does definitely look like a white guy's name is john Seda or Seda. i found it like his wikipedia is linked through uh see also list of puerto ricans so he is like of puerto rican descent but he was born in like new jersey it doesn't say whether his parents were born in puerto rico or new jersey uh but like yeah it, it it's definitely like it's more productive than something like Year of the Dragon in that yeah. regard. Yeah. And also Chimino kind of giving himself over to the mysticism and letting him really be the main character. Like he's introduced over the opening credits. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where he's just in cuffs in the cop car on the freeway in LA. You see the same shot that you do in Night of Cups on the freeway of mm-hmm. all those arms of the freeways overlapping at like the 10, 134 and something like that. Um, sorry, I'm, I haven't been driving the freeway during <laughs> quarantine much, so I forget where that is exactly. Uh, but I think he does a really good job at introing that before introing Woody Harrelson singing along to uh, a really fast version of What a Difference a Day Makes in his Porsche <laughs> uh, while he's speeding yeah. around. Very funny intro to Woody Harrelson there, just going full bozo mode in this movie. And yeah, his priorities are set up right away. You know, you see him leave a patient to go make bourgeois plans and then return to the patient. And uh, it's all drawn very clearly, but I think there's enough emotional depth to kind of push it forward, you know? No. Yeah. In terms of like the spirituality stuff too, I think maybe why it works for me and this is, you know, the way I saw it, like it's less about like uh, in a lot of like these movies, it's about like someone finding personal fulfillment through this spirituality where it's like the Harrelson character, it's more of a critique of like the hyper educated or like the high status, you know, scientists or just people who uh, are, you know, highly trained and highly educated and kind of like their cynical attitudes towards spirituality and God in general and how that's like a very closed off way to live the world, whether they're right or not. It's just Mm. like they're closing themselves off from, you know, different types of people, even, you know, even different races of people in some circumstances. One of my favorite things about the movie is that it takes that spirit of attacking the social climbing class. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's easy to make a false dichotomy out of this movie of, like, spirituality versus medicine, but it's definitely about not just the in-between, but about the closed-offedness of someone like Harrelson because he was able to achieve what, you know, in this 
uh, society we call success, which is making mm-hmm. a lot of money because he was a doctor. Uh, and so obviously he feels that that's, you know, above any notion of spirituality. But I, I think the journey that he has as a character is very sincere, even if he seems straight up goofy, even at the end when, uh, you know, he's talking about uh, the mystical healing lake and its powers and stuff like yeah. Chimino still lets him sound goofy as fuck when he's talking about that uh, because he's still very much out of place. He's just opening up a bit, you know? Yeah, I think I mean, I don't know what this says about me personally, but I love movies with like a cuck character <laughs> in it. And like Woody Harrelson, his journey is getting uncucked. Yeah, throughout that's this. True. I mean, he's still goofy and whatnot, but like he's more of a free spirit. Uh, so he is kidnapped it, like it's a pretty you know slick uh breakout for blue here where one of his associates hides a gun in the hospital for him <laughs> <laughs> and then he just like uh is able to get out kidnap woody harrelson they drive away in the porsche go to the hood to change the car you get one classic like slow motion shot of the hood where woody harrelson's all like man this looks like the evening news (laughs) he also says how do they live like this and then they ditch the porsche steal a car get like uh they like gta mode pull into the uh garage get a spray paint job and like a new uh some of the plastics changed it seems like (laughs) and then they're off on the road to arizona uh because blue was introduced like reading the book the man who travels while he was in the cop car initially so you, you know his eyes were on the prize from the opening frames of the movie so we already know where he's going where while he's just forcing woody along uh, at gunpoint they stop at this like western diner yeah uh, which is crazy and there's just like all this smoke pouring through these dirty ass fans and this waitress with her boobs all the way out hilariously <laughs> like yeah. that waitress is such a funny character who's just so mean to everyone throws his carrot right into his eggs to <laughs> burst the yolk <laughs> no that scene like visually at least kind of like reminded me of some of like uh heaven's gate or some of his more epic i think yeah even in the deer hunter like some something that harkens more to his epic works because it is like a, a lot of the same visual motifs of like yeah like smoke and light just like kind of oppressively pouring into like dark areas and whatnot and then just kind of like uh that lighting technique he uh, he develops with like the the shadow of the fan on Woody Harrelson oh, that looks insane. Fantastic! I love that. It's such like he makes that scene so beautiful and perfect that I think it allows for it just to be like I don't know. So many intimate details about both of the characters are revealed in that. Uh, Woody Harrelson then goes to the bathroom uh, and Blue catches him trying to make a phone call, uh, and so. How he gets him in trouble with the local biker gang is he comes out, you know, this might be an exception for the Patreon feed. I might have to put a clip here. Uh, (laughs) Help! Help! What's the matter? You wanted to suck my dick. I was hitching a ride back to the restaurant. He promised to buy me breakfast. Oh, fuck. That's what I need. Gentlemen, I am a married man with a child. Do I look like a homosexual to you? Stupid motherfucker. 
can't suck his dick. You can sure as hell suck mine. So he starts a fight uh, by insinuating that uh, Woody Harrelson was trying to suck his dick and steals the car and gets away. But, you know, can't quite get away. They end up back in the car together, driving away from there. There's a classic rock radio versus rap radio dispute (laughs) at one point that plays very corny, but I don't know. Both actors do good enough mugging to play it off well. You know, it's a very like, it's really the most lowbrow of his genre films, I would even say. But then it transcends into a spiritual journey in the third act. And it's like, it's almost like he sheds all of the genre pretense in the last 45 minutes of the movie almost, even though there's still you know, death, I guess, but it's like a slow march toward death rather than the outlaw first hour and a half, you know? No, definitely. Like, yeah, I think there's a lot more, there's, this might be the Shamino movie filled with like the most cliches or just like scenes you'd see in another movie. Like, like you said, kind of more in the first two thirds, first half of the movie. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's just like, I feel like with those scenes and then contrasted with the scene at the gas station, which is just mm. uh, very emotionally intense and kind of one of Chimino's, because uh, Chimino, we, we love him going wide, you know, nice, big, long, wide shots for Chimino. But we get, I like, I like his close up work in, uh, in that scene and it brings a, you know, good, you know, strange intensity that the, you know, the scene definitely warrants. Oh, mm. the tightness in the close-ups where he's like, like gun- threatening to kill him. Yeah. And just how that bleeds into the really like, I don't know. I think the flashback narrative for framing like Woody Harrelson's like uh brother who died earlier. That's like, it's such a hokey concept, mm-hmm. but like the way Chimino does it and sort of strips away like a lot of details to it makes just the formal quality of it so beautiful and such a powerful little story. Like I like the uh the like very angelic score that's mm. over it. It's I don't know. That is one of my favorite sequences in the entire movie. Yeah, the flashbacks for Woody Harrelson's uh big traumatic moment are in black and white too, which took me back at first, but he he does the black and white quite well, I would say. Uh even if it's just done in post production. Yeah. It looks good enough in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the most beautiful stuff in the movie, but, you know, looks good enough. And so they have this shared uh, trauma of essentially killing a family member where Woody Harrelson had to pull the plug on his older brother and still feels all this guilt about it, you know, uh, despite it being the thing he had to do. And Blue having, you know, among all the other people he's killed, uh, his stepfather, I guess, being one of that. Was it his stepfather or one of his uh, uh, adoption father. Ad- foster parents yeah. or something like that? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think they say stepfather. Someone says stepfather in passing and then he says the story eventually, which also would indicate that uh, he like even the people his lawyers or the law themselves don't even have the story straight on, you know, his upbringing because he's just been in and out of juvenile detention or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, and I, you know, the fact that he is 16, right? Like that is something that's played with at, at the beginning. Cause you know, you want some go down the, you know, pediatric ward or whatever. And then you have just other doctor characters being like, that guy's a real, real savage, huh? Yeah. Just like commenting on that, just almost like... He's a grown man. He's a grown man, yeah. I mean, he looks like a grown man. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah, he does. He does. I mean, to be fair, you know... If I, that's the way you criticize it, <laughs> fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine. I, I concede that he does not look 16, but, but that's fine by me. No, yeah. But, like, I, I like how it kind of comes back 
towards the end to where, um, you know, he still has like, you know, youthful mistakes and innocence of how he was just not talking to the medicine man he'd been mm. reporting to talk to the whole time. Uh, so the car finally breaks down while they're in the deserts of Arizona and they uh, just like are walking on foot before they're picked up by this like crazy spiritual lady driving this like mini RV type thing uh, where she's just like going to some crazy spiritual healing center in uh, Arizona somewhere. And let me tell you folks, this is patron exclusive. Oh, okay. I feel okay saying this. Uh, whatever. I, I went on like a trip to Sedona, Arizona with an ex-girlfriend of mine. And it was like the whole town was like every store was about like healing crystals and stuff. I didn't like, I didn't necessarily realize that's why we were going until I got there. <laughs> and so like apparently the Airbnb was like a, like an energy vortex or something Ooh, like that. Wow. See, I, yeah. <laughs> Were you Woody Harrelson? Exactly. (laughs) Right over. You'll live in Los Angeles. You try to date women. You just gotta say, okay. No, yeah. That's just crystals. Yeah, that's fine. Why not? I feel so bad saying that. (laughs) A a lovely woman. I, you know. No, I I, I swear, you know. No, yeah, yeah. You know how many fucking movies she sat through with me? I'll, I'll give it up for the crystals, you know? No, yeah. That is the. Uh, we don't. I don't need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking no, about this. It's yeah. It's it, it's a trade. You know? yeah, yeah. And there was other lovely stuff to do. We hiked and it was beautiful. It was oh, like yeah. yeah, yeah. No, yeah. That's what I was about to say. Like I, I, I kind of sometimes there's a sour feel when you like you tell like a funny or kind of like goofy story of like an ex girlfriend. You're like, well, I, you know, I like them generally. You yeah, know, it's still, <laughs> still pretty good. Don't yeah, want to yeah. paint a negative picture of this person. Yeah, exactly. But this is just I, something funny that happened. <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh but it just reminded me because of these beautiful arizona landscapes and these you know people talking about healing energies and stuff like that so she and blue are like ganging up on woody harrelson in the car and she i guess has a phd in like (laughs) native healing or something like that (laughs) uh and it's it's a pretty funny scene and i felt like woody i was like come on let's get out of this fucking car yeah (laughs) But then they end up at this black church in a town in Arizona. Is it in uh, Scottsdale, I think it is, where they steal the Cadillac? No, yeah. I had it written down. Damn. Well, just some town in Arizona. I had it written down, though. (laughs) The podcast, if we don't get that town, the listener's going to be upset. It's like, where's the detail? Yeah, well, they want to know when they're doing the Chimino tour of America. <laughs> like, do I skip Scottsdale or not? That would be sick to do a Chimino tour of America. It's either Scottsdale or Flagstaff. Okay. Okay, okay. well, take... Okay. Make sure you visit both cities. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I didn't... Damn, I, I didn't write down the city. That's so annoying to me. Because like, there's a there's a frame where it's there, you know. Yeah. And I'm not gonna go back to it now. And the the people who remember it are <laughs> screaming at their podcast player of choice. As someone who definitely remembers what town or. <laughs> so anyway, uh, very funny scene, frankly, where they steal the Cadillac from the black church service and like 30 people come out of the church and try to stop them and people are hanging from the car and it's a very funny scene uh mm-hmm. kind of recalls thunderbolt and lightfoot again you know and i i really like the way 
that these two bookend his filmography with these road movies that kind of invoke the Western uh, and have, you know, two dudes sitting very close to each other in a car for very long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think this one is far less homoerotic than Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, yeah. but it's, it's still a little there other than just the gay joke at the bar, which is, or at the diner rather, which is hilarious. So they take the Cadillac into, uh, Shiprock, I guess, uh, which is where like the reservation was. Oh, before that though, I wanted to say when they got away from the cops, uh, after they stole a car, they're hiding under this Gatorade billboard. Yeah. And there's this insane crane shot over the Gatorade billboard where the guy has the orange Gatorade glasses, uh, (laughs) over to, uh, Woody Harrelson healing him. Oh, actually, that's after they robbed the pharmacy when they got away from the cops. Yeah. That he's healing them there. They they rob a pharmacy or the pharmacy of a hospital because Blue refuses to go into the hospital. So Harrelson robs the uh, pharmacy at gunpoint and then they escape hiding behind the Gatorade billboard, <laughs> which is, <laughs> yeah, I love that image. So once they get into the territory, there's like roadblocks set up and stuff. So they just follow this pack of natives that are on horseback. Oh, my God. And it's just like as hard as you can get of the Western and the road movie coming together. It's so you beautiful. Know, where you have these horse, a horde of horses and car driving, kicking up a storm of dust, evading the road uh, roadblocks that the cops set up on the highway. Just this is when the film just purely kicks into overdrive and it's just like as good as Chimino can be. You know, them just riding with the horses on the car because it is it's it's like it is like kind of how you're saying, like turning the road trip into a Western, turning your car into a horse kind of thing. And it's just like just a glorious, you know, because I feel like um, the great, you know, visual moments in Chimino's uh, movies are like a lot of like dialogue less scenes of, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like big huge angles and you're not getting that much of that in sun chaser you're st- you're still um you don't they're not as long i guess as they yeah. as they are in sun in sun chaser there's a lot to do in sun chaser yeah. like yeah. you get so many landscape shots yeah. that are incredible you just don't hold on them yeah, exactly. for nearly yeah. as long which maybe is a conceit to it being a genre film and having so yeah. many plot points to get through but man Toward the last 30 minutes or so, he luxuriates in those images a little longer. Yeah. And it's really incredible. Once they get deeper into the territory, they find the house of the magical... uh, I shouldn't say magical. They find the house of the healer that uh, Blue had been writing to and sending voicemails to. uh, And they only find his granddaughter there with a shotgun ready to kill them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I also... I like that scene, too, because it is kind of like... You know, the world's getting less and less spiritual. It's like even like this, you know, this famous medicine man, he's fighting, he's hiding from the IRS. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. And like Woody's Woody Harrelson's like a perfect representative of like a soulless world is like a like very like a uh, just empty, you know, social climber who's trying mm-hmm. to come up in the medical world. Yeah, that moment and like also the the Liz Warren style PhD character <laughs> they encounter earlier. It's like that's why I feel like the spiritual stuff, like, I, I don't know, it's sort of puncturing it and breaking at it being like uh, too much of the real world and modern trappings are like creeping in mm-hmm. to like make uh, Chimino's vision of mysticism and spirituality like too idealistic. He knows that that's sort of waning. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so once they go deeper and deeper into this reservation, they finally found it. Like the mountain is real and you see it and it's such an incredible image. Like mm-hmm. one of the most beautiful landscapes in the entire film. Well worth it. Uh, but you also see it first introduced while they're driving. So splitting the screen half with that mountain and half with the car kicking up a bunch of dust as it does throughout this whole movie uh, is a really just like perfect way to introduce it. And geez, the more we talk about this movie, I'm like literally shifting my rankings right now before we get to that segment. Uh, yeah, I don't know. This is like, it gets really great there. And once again, much like the, uh, FBI chase in Desperate Hours. We get a lot of helicopter stuff toward the end, which I re- I really like how he starts using helicopter footage toward the end of his career. A lot of really incredible shots there. No, yeah, just another way for him to you know widen widen the frame, widen the scope. And it is like I feel like because I, I enjoy all of this movie, but the back end of this movie is packed with just you know next level moments mm. that are no, yeah, like you said, it, it is it does like there's part part of me it's like this is like one of the you know, greatest Shimino movies. And I feel like it is like kind of like, you know, as an end movie, I know this wasn't planned to be his final feature, mm-hmm. but it is like <laughs> people retreating from society just to be surrounded by more and more beautiful, beautiful images. You know, it yeah. totally makes sense. I think it's even explicitly said, you know, the boy quotes, it's like, I just want to be surrounded by beautiful things. And, you know, that's where we find Shimino at the end of his career. I think it's a good Damn. fit. Yeah. You got to retreat into nature sometimes. Yeah, it is. That's it, how I feel. We should start doing the podcast in nature. There is like a like a, a pariah element to Shimino to where it's like, yeah, I think it's like he like someone just retreating in, into beauty and like spiritualism kind of like makes sense as someone who was kind of blamed for like, I don't know, ending New Hollywood or whatever. Yeah. They find the healer and he points them to the way of the lake. And, you know, the helicopter is getting closer and closer, but Blue gets to the lake and, you know, repeats the prayer, I guess, that he had said earlier in the film at one point as he just dissolves into the lake. So, you know, it didn't heal him, but it passed him through. Uh, and it it's just one of the most beautiful, like, deaths I've ever seen in a mm-hmm. movie, frankly. I, I, was, I was very moved by that. Uh, and then, of course, cutting back to Harrelson getting arrested and taken away. Not, not even cutting back to that. Cutting back to that over the credits. Yeah. Because yeah. Chimino knew he had to end the movie on that beautiful of a moment. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. It's, you know, it's trying to transcend. We're all just trying to transcend in our lifetimes. And, you know, yeah. through death, that boy found it. But it is it is funny. Yeah, he knows just straight to the credits, and then you kind of get like this nice slow mo footage of like Woody just hugging his family. It's funny. So, it's yeah. like an exploitation movie ending yeah. almost. It's just like I don't know. It was very out of left field for me the way that it cut to footage over credits of Harrelson getting and, arrested. But I loved it. And it brings back the what a difference that a day makes. Yeah, it does <laughs> as yeah. well. Oh God, love it. That might be the the soundtrack we have to. Uh, end on which is yeah. so funny because we talked about him invoking all these great you know classic american tunes whether they're great or not obviously yeah. uh the what a difference a day make drop in sun chaser is among his best yeah definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. i mean there are a lot of good drops in this i like his use of roy orbison the mm. blue bayou in the mm-hmm. diner mm. yeah uh going all the way back to deer hunter of course the uh frankie valley in yeah. the bar that's great Oh my, yeah. Love you. I love you, baby. What a great song. (laughs) 
that's that's like not to skip ahead to the rankings but like i don't i'm trying to i'm trying to think clear i'm trying to transcend much like samino did and you know i don't want to underrate deer hunter because it's overrated mm-hmm. or maybe you know i not even over it's a it's a fucking classic you know it i deserves yeah. classic we'll status. see we'll see we'll see i think it you know this is the films people deem classic sometimes are fucking garbage so it's like i'm glad deer hunter I mean, we talked about deer hunter yeah. how fucking great it is yeah. like it's you know we love it yeah so i mean a shout out you if you've listened <laughs> to the pod you know that how much we've enjoyed all these films so if one comes in like second to last place it still means i loved the film you don't know? get offended <laughs> you know? don't go crying to the censors just because we put your least favorite Shimino movie at the top or whatever any final thoughts on this one before we go to his contribution to uh chanson son cinema uh great movie yeah, no, I think I'm good. Yeah, I really love the Sun Chaser. Check it out. Make sure you get it in the right aspect ratio because on RAR BG for the for the weird pirates out there, uh, <laughs> I think it's in it's cropped to like 1.85 because it's I, I think that's what's on Amazon too maybe because mm. it says that's an Amazon rip. Make sure you find a copy that is in cinema scope. <laughs> Please watch this movie correctly. Amazon, oh my god! Yeah. I couldn't even imagine. Amazon, they'll get their fingers yeah. in there. They'll stretch That's out the movie. That's why I have Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like the way he sexts. I, I saw those leaks. <laughs> I might be stealing some of those lines. So, no translation needed is the name of his contribution. And so there are no subtitles, uh, mm-hmm. but the establishing shot is at the Arrow Theater, our favorite in <laughs> Santa Monica. Uh, and I believe the Coen brothers contribution to this also was shot there. Have you seen that one, JT? Um, yeah, I think it's so. like Josh Brolin walking up to the ticket office. Yeah, yeah. I don't even remember what happens. He chooses to go to a movie. He's just he like talks to someone very, in like a, a quirky way about the movie. It's like Oh, it's cute. idiosyncratic. <laughs> sorry i love the coen brothers i you know i just uh, we're, we're just too cool for them yeah anyway so the arrow is showing amoris peros by inurito and uh, la vida loca so there's like a director character you know a sexy lady comes in they yeah. start setting up a musical performance that he's gonna shoot and she's like, uh, she's getting all pissed off because the director's grabbing her ass, and he's like, "Very beautiful, but uh, in you know <laughs> Italian, I think." And she's like, "Are you Chimino or Godard?" And he's like, "Oh, Chimino, Godard." And it's like very well, strange. Well, doesn't he say he? She calls him out for the Chimino thing because he's wearing sunglasses. Oh, and then, I he, thought, and then he switches to the, to glasses. the Godard glasses. Yeah. To be honest, I didn't know that was Samino's look, to be honest. The sunglasses? Yeah. yeah. Come on, man. You haven't seen any of the pictures we posted? A lot of people wear sunglasses. No, that's <laughs> like Chimino, like the I mean we've t- I yeah. I famously have brought up trying to figure out yeah, you what thought his race surgery he was. was a racial thing. Yeah, it's just like he's I, an Italian American. I because I didn't see the I mean, I knew he was Italian American, but it like you couldn't tell like from those pictures like yeah. or young chimino like that's a that's an italian man yeah. a real stud so you think he went like transracial when he got a surgery i mean stranger things have happened white. <laughs> <laughs> made himself a powerful white man <laughs> <laughs> anyway i just thought about dolezal and then i was like what was i thinking about it lately and it was because of 
the Ilya Kazan film Pinky. There's a oh, white woman yeah. playing a light-skinned black woman. And when I searched for it on Twitter, the first thing I saw was a reply to TCM promoting the film. And someone said, liberals love this, but hate Rachel Dolezal. <laughs> liberals can't stop talking about this movie Pinky from <laughs> yeah. 1949. Yeah. These liberals, man, they fucking eat that garbage up. I, I laughed so I really because I had to watch it for class and I wanted to bring that tweet up in class so bad. I didn't, yeah. obviously, but I wanted to just like drop oh. that in the chat box. That's I mean, that's what a very specific life that person's living. Just Dole- to TCM about liberalism. Yeah, well, specific dolazol activism. <laughs> yeah, that's like that's a weird mantle to rest upon, but hey, keep the good good word going. I follow Dolazol. She's very nice. She replied to me. I said, like, she painted something, and I was like, great picture. And she's like, thanks. So that was not, we're, we're kind of like friends on Twitter. I'm glad you could reach out yeah. to the community. Dole's all much like Chimino, an established great painter. Yeah, exactly. Come on, man. I know there's, there's irony to it sometimes, mm-hmm. but come on, mm-hmm. man. The Dole is all. Anyway, uh, the Chimino Godard snafu goes on for a second he begins to shoot her i think the whole thing is on digital if not just uploaded in terrible quality yeah. <laughs> uh, uploaded by the editor of the short who also has every commercial he's ever worked on uploaded on his vimeo he's, he's getting work he's get, getting a lot of work he's gotta give him credit hustling but yeah it, it's very interesting he then goes and like uh <laughs> it's like Oh, I'm so sorry, my baby, or whatever, to the the screen showing the woman in the editing booth yeah. and the editor he's working with, like, throws his hands up and he's angry, encapsulates his whole career pretty much. Yeah. Well, this whole, I think, like, the whole narrative, like, he show it ends with him, you know, showing the the footage to the, the dancer and one of the musicians. They enjoy it at first because, you well, know. Well, she's a singer. Singer. Oh, yeah. But it, is, it shows a lot of dancing footage. No, yeah, that yeah. was, no, you're right. You're right. Singer, dancer. And musician, and um, <laughs> um, producer, yeah, yeah, artist, and uh, what do you call it? You got the director in the background, and then like the it's edited in a very like abrupt, like jump cutty type ways, you know, kind of takes the naturalism out of it, and then uh, you know, the singer slash dancer attacks Chimino, and that's how the movie ends, but it's like you know, Chimino's talents being appreciated at the start of his career, you know. Great reward, very heralded towards the back end of his career. You know, as we know, the film the film quality didn't drop, but to the critics thought otherwise, and now everyone hates him, and that's how his career ends. Uh, very fun and playful and, like, a cute little encapsulation of, like, his struggles as a filmmaker. I just wish there was more, like, background detail about, like, the circumstances leading him to make this after, like... Yeah. I mean, I know he like obviously couldn't get a feature like off the ground, but just why he would participate in this after like such a dry spell. Like it's an interesting work to come. Uh, Sun Chaser was 97. This was 2007. Yeah. So like 10 years. Like I, I might have to do a little deeper research on this. I'll just update it on another episode or whatever, because I was looking like through Chimino stuff about this and I couldn't find anything. I'm sure there's some sort of like in-depth writing about this omnibus film in full, you know? Yeah. Uh, At least a journalistic type thing. I know that he also returned to the film festival scene when the Criterion's release, the uh, Heaven's Gate director's cut screened, I believe at Berlin, and he got a standing ovation for it. And uh, that was like one of his last, that was 2012, and he died in 2016. I I saw, just skimming his wiki, 
after Sun Chaser, it seemed like he got a, a passion for writing and he started writing novels. And I think mm. his novel won like some French award, whatever Damn. like the French award is for like best novel or whatever. That's crazy. Won. I didn't yeah. even look that. It was it just all the auteurist critics in France. I know, like, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> and he, like, I he guess watched De Palma's novel that came out last year. Is gonna be. <laughs> and like, I guess he, there was a quote from it. It's like, this is like the happiest I've ever been. So I feel like he really appreciated getting recognized in another field like that i mean like he had to have known at least toward the end that people knew he was a master and like the standing o for heaven's gate yeah that's that's the unfortunately because i fucking hate film festivals and stuff but that is kind of like the redemption moment is a standing ovation for your proper cut of heaven's gate 50 years after people or 40 years i guess after people say it ruined new hollywood i guess that's only 32 years after yeah yeah 1980 to 2012 yeah Good math. Good math. <laughs> so it's, it's a small, it's small history. It's a short history. This film business. Yeah, you know, it's very new. I, I, speaking of some math, we're going to talk about some numbers. Are you guys ready to do? I'll pull it up. The classic uh, segment, the bank check season finale, us saying goodbye segment, the ranking segment. Yeah, I think this, you know, this is uh, what we call cashing in our checks here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think here we can at least take number eight as a gimme for no translation needed, correct? Yeah. So we'll start at seven. All right. All right. Seven. Uh, the Sicilian. I Also, for me, number seven is the Sicilian. Desperate Hours. Six. Uh, Desperate Hours. Year of the Dragon. Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, this list is going to be very different. Keep in mind, I love Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Listen to the episode. Even Desperate Hours, I showed a lot of love to. I need to stop saying that. (laughs) I love them all. They're great. They're great. (laughs) They're great. We we show love. Don't ever accuse us of not showing love. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we'll get to it, but... Five. A Year of the Dragon. Desperate Hours. Sun Chaser. <sighs> These are the ones Four. I fucking decide. Yeah, I know. Okay, go. All right. Four. Uh, the Deer Hunter. Sun Chaser. Year of the Dragon. Uh, three. Uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Three is the Deer Hunter. My number three is the Sicilian. I think I saw that coming. You're 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 you gave proper credit to the Sicilian. Two. Uh the Sun Chaser. Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. The Deer Hunter. One. Oh, number one. Well, I guess you can tell it's Heaven's <laughs> Gate. Yep. Yeah. Heaven's Gate uh swept it there. Pretty obvious. Yeah, that's uh, that's no, yeah, definitely I was I was not expecting you to put Thunderbolt and Lightfoot six. that low. I was I was yeah. in my head that was top three locked for everyone. I almost mm-hmm. gave it four and a half when I watched it too, yeah. but like I don't know. All of these films are just ridiculous to me. Like yeah. I, the more I think about them, you know. Yeah, ranking uh, them is kind of splitting hairs. But like, yeah. I don't know. It's fun too. It's yeah. harder to rank this than like the Fairleys because Definitely. the Fairleys, like, they had so much work, and there's more definitive tiers to the work. This one, it's like maybe two tiers, if that. Like masterpieces and great films. Like yeah. that's you know that's kind of it. Uh, so. Yeah, I it, don't know. It was in bet- like the one I was having trouble with deciding with the ranking was Deer Hunter and Sun Chaser because it's mm. like I think Sun Chaser has some of I think him like him riding with uh, 
the horses. One of my favorite moments in his filmography. Amazing Absolutely. moment. And just like that backhand transcends so high. But like, I don't know, the, the deer hunter is just kind of rock solid and amazing throughout. So it's like kind of like, do I take that like that high feeling at the end of Sun Chaser or that solid masterwork consistency throughout Deer Hunter? But uh, I ended up going Deer Hunter. All the ones that I gave four bullets to, which are Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, Sun Chaser, Year of the Dragon, and Sicilian. Four films that are pretty much interchangeable. But that's yeah. the ranking I'm sticking with for now. You know? Yeah. Any, any final thoughts on Michael Cimino other than may he rest in peace? Great man. You know, he was... Uh, you know, he was trying to break away from everything. You know what I mean? He wanted he wanted to be a part of the system. He did great things within the system. He proved almost the you know validity of Hollywood and like if you know Hollywood is producing these grand types of movies, maybe it's a good thing that it's around. But ultimately, they you know swept him to the curb, and a lot of his movies kind of deal with that. And uh, I don't know, it was it was a great experience, and I think his movies are overwhelming. I think that's kind of like a, a one word I'd you to describe it. They're always like overpacked and overwhelming. And I, I use that as, you know, a positive term. So yeah, no one else like them. <laughs> what about you, JT? Anything else? Um, yeah, no, I wasn't expecting to love Chimino as much as mm-hmm. I did, especially cause it's like, I don't know the new Hollywood stuff. I like really like, but I feel like like over long, it can wear a little thin, but Chimino really was a master. And it's just like, I don't know, much like when we were at this point with the Farrelly's, I'm just very sad by, like... Uh, I don't want to say goodbye. I don't yeah. want to say goodbye and just, like, where their careers are at now. Like, obviously, yeah. there will be more Farrelly films probably of, like, lesser quality. But with Chimino, it's like... I mean, I'm glad you brought up him, his uh, getting into writing books and that it made him happy. And that's very fulfilling and, and good to know. But it's just... Uh, I don't know. You watch these masterful films, and it's like there could have been so many more. The industry burned him. Like one of the worst cases of that, you know, ever happening. And if, you know, maybe from a business standpoint, he wasn't making the best decisions. But that's why he's a great filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, it's the it's the simple, like, very simple uh, logic of thinking that a film's quality uh, has to has anything to do with how much profit it makes its studio. Yeah. You know, like if you think that way, then maybe you will only like, you know, his first two movies. Uh, but Hey, Hey, you know, you're the dragon broke even, (laughs) (laughs) but it is funny to watch his arc. And after new Hollywood kind of collapses around his failure and it being, you know, harder to get movies made for guys like him in the eighties. Uh, but the independent route is always still kind of there. Not fully independent, obviously, yeah. but working with people like Dino De Laurentiis or whatever, but just still couldn't fully get that full auteurist vision back, even when he thought he had uh, director's cut for a year of the dragon and then was told in a court case over his next film that he didn't, <laughs> which is if it, like, that's even more than heaven's gate, like just, shows how ruthless the industry is and how profit driven it is and just purely about executives making money rather than artists making great work so of course Chimino was suppressed by the system because he was an artist who saw what it was like to purely just make commercials and would much rather make great art and for that we salute him (laughs) (laughs) and also 
he made some really great art in the commercial sphere when he had to. I, I think his genre work is what really took me aback, honestly. Yeah. Like uh, the the Sun Chaser as like a road movie and just I mean Year of the Dragon still <laughs> I'm I can't stop thinking about that I'm gonna need to rewatch that one ASAP Yeah I feel like man that's already having reservations about the list but yeah I'm like Year of the Dragon was a little low for me because that yeah. that has like just kind of a like I, I feel like every time I talk about it I'm just like the only thing I have to say is like I'm blown back like yeah. I don't movie makes like, no sense it, it's like, un- uncomprehensible inter- like, yeah it, it's a perfectly comprehensible plot yeah. but as an object yeah you look at it and you just kind of don't know what to do with it and uh, that, that's why it's one of the films that keeps on giving that's valuable yeah it's, you know it's you know us know-it-alls us uh, <laughs> film geeks you know we like to you know we're not scared by horror movies if we think we know it all and then you just get some weird racial politics and great formal precision in Year of the Dragon. And you're sitting there, you don't even know what to think. <laughs> <laughs> so that's valuable. You got to hang on to that. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's another season of Bank Check. Goodbye, Michael Chimino. While you're at the club, we'll be at the bank. May beauty be before me. May beauty be behind me. May beauty be above me. May beauty be below me. May beauty be all around me.